Part 4. Catalactics, or Economics of the Market Society Chapter 14. The Scope and Method of Catalactics 1. The Delimitation of Catalactic Problems There have never been any doubts and uncertainties about the scope of economic science. Ever since people have been eager for a systematic study of economics or political economy, all have agreed that it is the task of this branch of knowledge to investigate the market phenomena, that is, the determination of the mutual exchange ratios of the goods and services negotiated on markets, their origin in human action, and their effects upon later action. The intricacy of a precise definition of the scope of economics does not stem from uncertainty with regard to the orbit of the phenomena to be investigated. It is due to the fact that the attempts to elucidate the phenomena concerned must go beyond the range of the market and of market transactions. In order to conceive the market fully, one is forced to study the action of hypothetical isolated individuals on one hand, and to contrast the market system with an imaginary socialist commonwealth on the other hand. In studying interpersonal exchange, one cannot avoid dealing with autistic exchange. But then it is no longer possible to define neatly the boundaries between the kind of action which is the proper field of economic science in the narrower sense, and other action. Economics widens its horizon and turns into a general science of all and every human action, into praxeology. The question emerges of how to distinguish precisely, within the broader field of general praxeology, a narrower orbit of specifically economic problems. The abortive attempts to solve this problem of a precise delimitation of the scope of catalactics have chosen as a criterion either the motives causing action or the goals which action aims at. But the variety and manifoldness of the motives instigating a man's action is without relevance for a comprehensive study of acting. Every action is motivated by the urge to remove a felt uneasiness. It does not matter for the science of action how people qualify this uneasiness from a physiological, psychological, or ethical point of view. It is the task of economics to deal with all commodity prices as they are really asked and paid in market transactions. It must not restrict its investigations to the study of those prices which result, or are likely to result, from a conduct displaying attitudes to which psychology, ethics, or any other way of looking at human behavior would attach a definite label. The classification of actions according to their various motives may be momentous for psychology, and may provide a yardstick for a moral evaluation. For economics, it is inconsequential. Essentially the same is valid with regard to the endeavors to restrict the scope of economics to those actions which aim at supplying people with tangible material things of the external universe. Strictly speaking, people do not long for tangible goods as such, but for the services which these goods are fitted to render them. They want to attain the increment in well-being which these services are able to convey. 
But if this is so, it is not permissible to accept from the orbit of economic action those actions which remove uneasiness directly without the interposition of any tangible and visible things. The advice of a doctor, the instruction of a teacher, the recital of an artist, and other personal services are no less an object of economic studies than the architect's plans for the construction of a building, the scientist's formula for the production of a chemical compound, and the author's contribution to the publishing of a book. The subject matter of catalactics is all market phenomena, with all their roots, ramifications, and consequences. It is a fact that people in dealing on the market are motivated not only by the desire to get food, shelter, and sexual enjoyment, but also by manifold ideal urges. Acting man is always concerned both with material and ideal things. He chooses between various alternatives, no matter whether they are to be classified as material or ideal. In the actual scales of value, material and ideal things are jumbled together. Even if it were feasible to draw a sharp line between material and ideal concerns, one must realize that every concrete action either aims at the realization both of material and ideal ends, or is the outcome of a choice between something material and something ideal. Whether it is possible to separate neatly those actions which aim at the satisfaction of needs exclusively conditioned by man's physiological constitution from other, higher needs can be left undecided. But we must not overlook the fact that in reality no food is valued solely for its nutritive power, and no garment or house solely for the protection it affords against cold weather and rain. It cannot be denied that the demand for goods is widely influenced by metaphysical, religious, and ethical considerations, by aesthetic value judgments, by customs, habits, prejudices, tradition, changing fashions, and many other things. To an economist who would try to restrict his investigations to material aspects only, the subject matter of inquiry vanishes as soon as he wants to catch it. All that can be contended is this. Economics is mainly concerned with the analysis of the determination of money prices of goods and services exchanged on the market. In order to accomplish this task, it must start from a comprehensive theory of human action. Moreover, it must study not only the market phenomena, but no less the hypothetical conduct of an isolated man and of a socialist community. Finally, it must not restrict its investigations to those modes of action which, in mundane speech, are called economic actions, but must deal also with actions which are, in a loose manner of speech, called uneconomic. The scope of praxeology, the general theory of human action, can be precisely defined and circumscribed. The specifically economic problems, the problems of economic action in the narrower sense, can only by and large be disengaged from the comprehensive body of praxeological theory. 
accidental facts of the history of science and conventions play a role in all attempts to provide a definition of the scope of genuine economics. Not logical or epistemological rigor, but considerations of expediency and traditional convention make us declare that the field of catalactics, or of economics in the narrower sense, is the analysis of the market phenomena. This is tantamount to the statement, catalactics is the analysis of those actions which are conducted on the basis of monetary calculation. Market exchange and monetary calculation are inseparably linked together. A market in which there is direct exchange only is merely an imaginary construction. On the other hand, money and monetary calculation are conditioned by the existence of the market. It is certainly one of the tasks of economics to analyze the working of an imaginary socialist system of production. But access to this study, too, is possible only through the study of catalactics, the elucidation of a system in which there are money prices and economic calculation. The Denial of Economics There are doctrines flatly denying that there can be a science of economics. What is taught nowadays at most of the universities under the label of economics is practically a denial of it. He who contests the existence of economics virtually denies that man's well-being is disturbed by any scarcity of external factors. Everybody, he implies, could enjoy the perfect satisfaction of all his wishes, provided a reform succeeds in overcoming certain obstacles brought about by inappropriate man-made institutions. Nature is open-handed. It lavishly loads mankind with presents. Conditions could be paradisiac for an indefinite number of people. Scarcity is an artificial product of established practices. The abolition of such practices would result in abundance. In the doctrine of Karl Marx and his followers, scarcity is a historical category only. It is the feature of the primeval history of mankind which will be forever liquidated by the abolition of private property. Once mankind has effected the leap from the realm of necessity into the realm of freedom, and thereby reached the higher phase of communist society, there will be abundance, and consequently it will be feasible to give to each according to his needs. There is in the vast flood of Marxian writings not the slightest allusion to the possibility that a communist society in its higher phase might have to face a scarcity of natural factors of production. The fact of the disutility of labor is spirited away by the assertion that to work, under communism, of course, will no longer be pain, but pleasure, the primary necessity of life. The unpleasant experiences of the Russian experiment are interpreted as caused by the capitalists' hostility, by the fact that socialism in one country only is not yet perfect, and therefore has not yet been able to bring about the higher phase, and, more recently, by the war. Then there are the radical inflationists, as represented, for example, by Proudhon, Ernest Solvay, and, in present-day America, by the doctrine of functional finance. 
In their opinion, scarcity is created by the artificial checks upon credit expansion and other methods of increasing the quantity of money in circulation, enjoined upon the gullible public by the selfish class interests of bankers and other exploiters. They recommend unlimited public spending as the panacea. The foremost American champion of the substitution of an economy of abundance for the allegedly artificial economy of scarcity is the former Vice President of the United States, Henry A. Wallace. Mr. Wallace will be remembered in history as the originator of the vastest scheme ever carried out to restrict by government decree the supply of essential foodstuffs and raw materials. However, this record in no way impairs the popularity of his teachings. Such is the myth of potential plenty and abundance. Economics may leave it to the historians and psychologists to explain the popularity of this kind of wishful thinking and indulgence in daydreams. All that economics has to say about such idle talk is that economics deals with the problems man has to face on account of the fact that his life is conditioned by natural factors. It deals with action, that is, with the conscious endeavors to remove, as far as possible, felt uneasiness. It has nothing to assert with regard to the state of affairs in an unrealizable, and for human reason even inconceivable, universe of unlimited opportunities. In such a world, it may be admitted, there will be no law of value, no scarcity, and no economic problems. These things will be absent because there will be no choices to be made, no action, and no tasks to be solved by reason. Beings which would have thrived in such a world would never have developed reasoning and thinking. If ever such a world were to be given to the descendants of the human race, these blessed beings would see their power to think wither away, and would cease to be human. For the primary task of reason is to cope consciously with the limitations imposed upon man by nature, to fight against scarcity. Acting and thinking man is the product of a universe of scarcity, in which whatever well-being can be attained is the prize of toil and trouble, of conduct popularly called economic. 2. The Method of Imaginary Constructions The specific method of economics is the method of imaginary constructions. This method is the method of praxeology. That it has been carefully elaborated and perfected in the field of economic studies in the narrower sense is due to the fact that economics, at least until now, has been the best developed part of praxeology. Everyone who wants to express an opinion about the problems commonly called economic takes recourse to this method. The employment of these imaginary constructions is, to be sure, not a procedure peculiar to the scientific analysis of these problems. The layman, in dealing with them, resorts to the same method. But while the layman's constructions are more or less confused and muddled, economics is intent upon elaborating them with the utmost care, scrupulousness, and precision, and upon examining their conditions and assumptions critically. 
An imaginary construction is a conceptual image of a sequence of events logically evolved from the elements of action employed in its formation. It is a product of deduction, ultimately derived from the fundamental category of action, the act of preferring and setting aside. In designing such an imaginary construction, the economist is not concerned with the question of whether or not it depicts the conditions of reality which he wants to analyze, nor does he bother about the question of whether or not such a system as his imaginary construction posits could be conceived as really existent and in operation. Even imaginary constructions which are inconceivable, self-contradictory, or unrealizable can render useful, even indispensable services in the comprehension of reality, provided the economist knows how to use them properly. The method of imaginary constructions is justified by its success. Praxeology cannot, like the natural sciences, base its teachings upon laboratory experiments and sensory perception of external objects. It had to develop methods entirely different from those of physics and biology. It would be a serious blunder to look for analogies to the imaginary constructions in the field of the natural sciences. The imaginary constructions of praxeology can never be confronted with any experience of things external, and can never be appraised from the point of view of such experience. Their function is to serve man in a scrutiny which cannot rely upon his senses. In confronting the imaginary constructions with reality, we cannot raise the question of whether they correspond to experience and depict adequately the empirical data. We must ask whether the assumptions of our construction are identical with the conditions of those actions which we want to conceive. The main formula for designing of imaginary constructions is to abstract from the operation of some conditions present in actual action. Then we are in a position to grasp the hypothetical consequences of the absence of these conditions, and to conceive the effects of their existence. Thus we conceive the category of action by constructing the image of a state in which there is no action either because the individual is fully contented and does not feel any uneasiness, or because he does not know any procedure from which an improvement in his well-being, state of satisfaction, could be expected. Thus we conceive the notion of originary interest from an imaginary construction in which no distinction is made between satisfactions in periods of time equal in length but unequal with regard to their distance from the instant of action. The method of imaginary constructions is indispensable for praxeology. It is the only method of praxeological and economic inquiry. It is, to be sure, a method very difficult to handle, because it can easily result in fallacious syllogisms. It leads along a sharp edge. On both sides yawns the chasm of absurdity and nonsense. Only merciless self-criticism can prevent a man from falling headlong into these abysmal depths. 3. The Pure Market Economy 
The imaginary construction of a pure or unhampered market economy assumes that there is a division of labor and private ownership, control of the means of production, and that, consequently, there is market exchange of goods and services. It assumes that the operation of the market is not obstructed by institutional factors. It assumes that the government, the social apparatus of compulsion and coercion, is intent upon preserving the operation of the market system, abstains from hindering its functioning, and protects it against encroachments on the part of other people. The market is free. There is no interference of factors foreign to the market with prices, wage rates, and interest rates. Starting from these assumptions, economics tries to elucidate the operation of a pure market economy. Only at a later stage, having exhausted everything which can be learned from the study of this imaginary construction, does it turn to the study of the various problems raised by interference with the market on the part of governments and other agencies employing coercion and compulsion. It is amazing that this logically incontestable procedure, the only one that is fitted to solve the problems involved, has been passionately attacked. People have branded it as a prepossession in favor of a liberal economic policy, which they stigmatize as reactionary economic royalism, Manchesterism, negativism, and so on. They deny that anything can be gained for the knowledge of reality from occupation with this imaginary construction. However, these turbulent critics contradict themselves as they take recourse to the same method in advancing their own assertions. In asking for minimum wage rates, they depict the alleged unsatisfactory conditions of a free labor market and in asking for tariffs, they describe the alleged disasters brought about by free trade. There is, of course, no other way available for the elucidation of a measure limiting the free play of the factors operating on an unhampered market than to study first the state of affairs prevailing under economic freedom. It is true that economists have drawn from their investigations the conclusion that the goals which most people, practically even all people, are intent on attaining by toiling and working and by economic policy, can best be realized where the free market system is not impeded by government decrees. But this is not a preconceived judgment stemming from an insufficient occupation with the operation of government interference with business. It is, on the contrary, the result of a careful, unbiased scrutiny of all aspects of interventionism. It is also true that the classical economists and their epigones used to call the system of unhampered market economy natural, and government meddling with market phenomena artificial and disturbing. But this terminology also was the product of their careful scrutiny of the problems of interventionism. They were in conformity with the semantic practice of their age in calling an undesirable state of social affairs contrary to nature. Theism and deism of the Age of Enlightenment viewed the regularity of natural phenomena as an emanation of the decrees of providence. 
when the philosophers of the Enlightenment discovered that there prevails a regularity of phenomena also in human action and in social evolution, they were prepared to interpret it, likewise, as evidence of the paternal care of the Creator of the universe. This was the true meaning of the doctrine of the predetermined harmony as expounded by some economists. The doctrine of the predetermined harmony in the operation of an unhampered market system must not be confused with the theorem of the harmony of the rightly understood interests within a market system, although there is a certain congeniality between them. The social philosophy of paternal despotism laid stress upon the divine mission of kings and autocrats predestined to rule the peoples. The liberals retorted that the operation of an unhampered market, on which the consumer, that is, every citizen, is sovereign, brings about more satisfactory results than the decrees of anointed rulers. Observe the functioning of the market system, they said, and you will discover in it the finger of God. Along with the imaginary construction of a pure market economy, the classical economists elaborated its logical counterpart, the imaginary construction of a socialist commonwealth. In the heuristic process which finally led to the discovery of the operation of a market economy, this image of a socialist order even had logical priority. The question which preoccupied the economists was whether a tailor could be supplied with bread and shoes if there was no government decree compelling the baker and the shoemaker to provide for his needs. The first thought was that authoritarian interference is required to make every specialist serve his fellow citizens. The economists were taken aback when they discovered that no such compulsion is needed. In contrasting productivity and profitability, self-interest and public welfare, selfishness and altruism, the economists implicitly referred to the image of a socialist system. Their astonishment at the automatic, as it were, steering of the market system was precisely due to the fact that they realized that an anarchic state of production results in supplying people better than the orders of a centralized omnipotent government. The idea of socialism, a system of the division of labor entirely controlled and managed by a planning authority, did not originate in the heads of utopian reformers. These utopians aimed rather at the autarkic coexistence of small self-sufficient bodies. Take, for instance, Fourier's Falange. The radicalism of the reformers turned toward socialism when they took the image of an economy managed by a national government or a world authority, implied in the theories of the economists, as a model for their new order. The Maximization of Profits It is generally believed that economists, in dealing with the problems of a market economy, are quite unrealistic in assuming that all men are always eager to gain the highest attainable advantage. They construct, it is said, the image of a perfectly selfish and rationalistic being, for whom nothing counts but profit. Such a homo economicus may be a likeness of stock jobbers and speculators, but the immense majority are very different. 
nothing for the cognition of reality can be learned from the study of the conduct of this delusive image. It is not necessary to enter again into a refutation of all the confusion, error, and distortion inherent in this contention. The first two parts of this book have unmasked the fallacies implied. At this point it is enough to deal with the problem of the maximization of profits. Praxeology in general and economics in its special field assume with regard to the springs of human action nothing other than that acting man wants to remove uneasiness. Under the particular conditions of dealing on the market, action means buying and selling. Everything that economics asserts about demand and supply refers to every instance of demand and supply, and not only to demand and supply brought about by some special circumstances requiring a particular description or definition. To assert that a man faced with the alternative of getting more or less for a commodity he wants to sell, ceteris paribus, chooses the high price, does not require any further assumption. A higher price means for the seller a better satisfaction of his wants. The same applies mutatis mutandis to the buyer. The amount saved in buying the commodity concerned enables him to spend more for the satisfaction of other needs. To buy in the cheapest market and to sell in the dearest market is, other things being equal, not conduct which would presuppose any special assumptions concerning the actor's motives and morality. It is merely the necessary offshoot of any action under the conditions of market exchange. In his capacity as a businessman, a man is a servant of the consumers, bound to comply with their wishes. He cannot indulge in his own whims and fancies, but his customers' whims and fancies are, for him, ultimate law, provided these customers are ready to pay for them. He is under the necessity of adjusting his conduct to the demand of the consumers. If the consumers, without a taste for the beautiful, prefer things ugly and vulgar, he must, contrary to his own convictions, supply them with such things. A painter is a businessman if he is intent upon making paintings which could be sold at the highest price. A painter who does not compromise with the taste of the buying public, and, disdaining all unpleasant consequences, lets himself be guided solely by his own ideals, is an artist, a creative genius. If consumers do not want to pay a higher price for domestic products than for those produced abroad, he must buy the foreign product, provided it is cheaper. An employer cannot grant favors at the expense of his customers. He cannot pay wage rates higher than those determined by the market if the buyers are not ready to pay proportionately higher prices for commodities produced in plants in which wage rates are higher than in other plants. It is different with man in his capacity as spender of his income. He is free to do what he likes best. He can bestow alms. He can, motivated by various doctrines and prejudices, discriminate against goods of a certain origin or source, and prefer the worse or more expensive product to the technologically better and cheaper one. As a rule, people in buying do not make gifts to the seller, 
but nonetheless that happens. The boundaries between buying goods and services needed and giving alms are sometimes difficult to discern. He who buys at a charity sale usually combines a purchase with a donation for a charitable purpose. He who gives a dime to a blind street musician certainly does not pay for the questionable performance, he simply gives alms. Man in acting is a unity. The businessman who owns the whole firm may sometimes efface the boundaries between business and charity. If he wants to relieve a distressed friend, delicacy of feeling may prompt him to resort to a procedure which spares the latter the embarrassment of living on alms. He gives the friend a job in his office, although he does not need his help or could hire an equivalent helper at a lower salary. Then the salary granted appears formally as a part of business outlays. In fact, it is the spending of a fraction of the businessman's income. It is, from a correct point of view, consumption, and not an expenditure designed to increase the firm's profits. Such overlapping of the boundaries between business outlays and consumptive spending is often encouraged by institutional conditions. An expenditure debited to the account of trading expenses reduces net profits and thereby the amount of taxes due. If taxes absorb 50% of profits, the charitable businessman spends only 50% of the gift out of his own pocket. The rest burdens the Department of Internal Revenue. Awkward mistakes are due to the tendency to look only upon things tangible, visible, and measurable, and to neglect everything else. What the consumer buys is not simply food or calories. He does not want to feed like a wolf. He wants to eat like a man. Food satisfies the appetite of many people the better, the more appetizingly and tastefully it is prepared. The finer the table is set, and the more agreeable the environment is in which the food is consumed. Such things are regarded as of no consequence by a consideration exclusively occupied with the chemical aspects of the process of digestion. To be sure, a consideration from the point of view of the physiology of nutrition will not regard such things as negligible. But the fact that they play an important role in the determination of food prices is perfectly compatible with the assertion that people prefer, ceteris paribus, to buy in the cheapest market. Whenever a buyer, in choosing between two things which chemists and technologists deem perfectly equal, prefers the more expensive, he has a reason. If he does not err, he pays for services which chemistry and technology cannot comprehend with their specific methods of investigation. If a man prefers an expensive place to a cheaper one because he likes to sip his cocktails in the neighborhood of a duke or of cafe society, we may remark on his ridiculous vanity, but we must not say that the man's conduct does not aim at an improvement of his own state of satisfaction. What a man does is always aimed at an improvement of his own state of satisfaction. In this sense, and in no other, we are free to use the term selfishness and to emphasize that action is necessarily always selfish. 
Even an action directly aiming at the improvement of other people's conditions is selfish. The actor considers it as more satisfactory for himself to make other people eat than to eat himself. His uneasiness is caused by the awareness of the fact that other people are in want. It is a fact that many people behave in another way and prefer to fill their own stomach and not that of their fellow citizens. But this has nothing to do with economics. It is a datum of historical experience. At any rate, economics refers to every kind of action, no matter whether motivated by the urge of a man to eat or to make other people eat. If maximizing profits means that a man in all market transactions aims at increasing to the utmost the advantage derived, it is a pleonastic and paraphrastic circumlocution. It only asserts what is implied in the very category of action. If it means anything else, it is the expression of an erroneous idea. Some economists believe that it is the task of economics to establish how in the whole of society the greatest possible satisfaction of all people, or of the greatest number, could be attained. They do not realize that there is no method which would allow us to measure the state of satisfaction attained by various individuals. They misconstrue the character of judgments, which are based on the comparison between various people's happiness. While expressing arbitrary value judgments, they believe themselves to be establishing facts. One may call it just to rob the rich in order to make presents to the poor. However, to call something fair or unfair is always a subjective value judgment, and as such purely personal, and not liable to any verification or falsification. Economics is not intent upon pronouncing value judgments. It aims at a cognition of the consequences of certain modes of acting. It has been asserted that the physiological needs of all men are of the same kind, and that this equality provides a standard for the measurement of the degree of their objective satisfaction. In expressing such opinions, and in recommending the use of such criteria to guide the government's policy, one proposes to deal with men as the breeder deals with his cattle. But the reformers fail to realize that there is no universal principle of alimentation valid for all men. Which one of the various principles one chooses depends entirely on the aims one wants to attain. The cattle breeder does not feed his cows in order to make them happy, but in order to attain the ends which he has assigned to them in his own plans. He may prefer more milk, or more meat, or something else. What type of man do the man-breeders want to rear? Athletes or mathematicians? Warriors or factory hands? He who would make man the material of a purposeful system of breeding and feeding would arrogate to himself despotic powers, and would use his fellow citizens as means for the attainment of his own ends, which differ from those they themselves are aiming at. The value judgments of an individual differentiate between what makes him more satisfied and what less. The value judgments a man pronounces about another man's satisfaction do not assert anything about this other man's satisfaction, 
They only assert what condition of this other man better satisfies the man who pronounces the judgment. The reformers, searching for the maximum of general satisfaction, have told us merely what state of other people's affairs would best suit themselves. 4. The Autistic Economy No other imaginary construction has caused more offense than that of an isolated economic actor entirely dependent on himself. However, economics cannot do without it. In order to study interpersonal exchange, it must compare it with conditions under which it is absent. It constructs two varieties of the image of an autistic economy in which there is only autistic exchange, the economy of an isolated individual and the economy of a socialist society. In employing this imaginary construction, the economists do not bother about the problem of whether or not such a system could really work. We are dealing here with problems of theory, not of history. We can therefore abstain from refuting the objections raised against the concept of an isolated actor by referring to the historical role of the self-sufficient household economy. They are fully aware of the fact that their imaginary construction is fictitious. Robinson Crusoe, who for all that may have existed, and the general manager of a perfectly isolated socialist commonwealth that never existed, would not have been in a position to plan and to act as people can only when taking recourse to economic calculation. However, in the frame of our imaginary construction, we are free to pretend that they could calculate whenever such a fiction may be useful for the discussion of the specific problem to be dealt with. The imaginary construction of an autistic economy is at the bottom of the popular distinction between productivity and profitability as it developed as a yardstick of value judgments. Those resorting to this distinction consider the autistic economy, especially that of the socialist type, the most desirable and most perfect system of economic management. Every phenomenon of the market economy is judged with regard to whether or not it could be justified from the viewpoint of a socialist system. Only to acting that would be purposeful in the plans of such a system's manager are positive value and the epithet productive attached. All other activities performed in the market economy are called unproductive, in spite of the fact that they may be profitable to those who perform them. Thus, for example, sales promotion, advertising, and banking are considered as activities profitable but non-productive. Economics, of course, has nothing to say about such arbitrary value judgments. 5. The State of Rest and the Evenly Rotating Economy The only method of dealing with the problem of action is to conceive that action ultimately aims at bringing about a state of affairs in which there is no longer any action whether because all uneasiness has been removed, or because any further removal of felt uneasiness is out of the question. Action thus tends toward a state of rest, absence of action. The theory of prices accordingly analyzes interpersonal exchange from this aspect. 
people keep on exchanging on the market until no further exchange is possible, because no party expects any further improvement of its own conditions from a new act of exchange. The potential buyers consider the prices asked by the potential sellers unsatisfactory, and vice versa. No more transactions take place. A state of rest emerges. This state of rest, which we may call the plain state of rest, is not merely an imaginary construction. It comes to pass again and again. When the stock market closes, the brokers have carried out all orders which could be executed at the market price. Only those potential sellers and buyers who consider the market price too low or too high, respectively, have not sold or bought. For the sake of simplicity, we disregard the price fluctuations in the course of the business day. The same is valid with regard to all transactions. The whole market economy is a big exchange or marketplace, as it were. At any instant, all those transactions take place which the parties are ready to enter into at the realizable price. New sales can only be effected when the valuations of the parties have changed. It has been asserted that the notion of the plain state of rest is unsatisfactory. It refers, people have said, only to the determination of prices of goods of which a definite supply is already available, and does not say anything about the effects brought about by these prices upon production. The objection is unfounded. The theorems implied in the notion of the plain state of rest are valid with regard to all transactions without exception. It is true, the buyers of factors of production will immediately embark upon producing and very soon re-enter the market in order to sell their products and to buy what they want for their own consumption and for continuing production processes. But this does not invalidate the scheme. This scheme, to be sure, does not contend that the state of rest will last. The lull will certainly disappear as soon as the momentary conditions which brought it about change. The notion of the plain state of rest is not an imaginary construction, but the adequate description of what happens again and again on every market. In this regard, it differs radically from the imaginary construction of the final state of rest. In dealing with the plain state of rest, we look only at what is going on right now. We restrict our attention to what has happened momentarily and disregard what will happen later, in the next instant, or tomorrow, or later. We are dealing only with prices really paid in sales, that is, with the prices of the immediate past. We do not ask whether or not future prices will equal these prices. But now we go a step further. We pay attention to factors which are bound to bring about a tendency toward price changes. We try to find out to what goal this tendency must lead before all its driving force is exhausted and a new state of rest emerges. The price corresponding to this future state of rest was called the natural price by older economists. Nowadays, the term static price is often used. 
In order to avoid misleading associations, it is more expedient to call it the final price, and accordingly to speak of the final state of rest. This final state of rest is an imaginary construction, not a description of reality. For the final state of rest will never be attained. New disturbing factors will emerge before it will be realized. What makes it necessary to take recourse to this imaginary construction is the fact that the market at every instant is moving toward a final state of rest. Every later new instant can create new facts altering this final state of rest, but the market is always disquieted by a striving after a definite final state of rest. The market price is a real phenomenon. It is the exchange ratio which was actual in business transacted. The final price is a hypothetical price. The market prices are historical facts, and we are therefore in a position to note them with numerical exactitude in dollars and cents. The final price can only be defined by defining the conditions required for its emergence. No definite numerical value in monetary terms or in quantities of other goods can be attributed to it. It will never appear on the market. The market price can never coincide with the final price coordinated to the instant in which this market structure is actual. But catalactics would fail lamentably in its task of analyzing the problems of price determination if it were to neglect dealing with the final price. For in the market situation from which the market price emerges, there are already latent forces operating which will go on bringing about price changes until, provided no new data appear, the final price and the final state of rest are established. We would unduly restrict our study of price determination if we were to look only upon the momentary market prices and the plain state of rest, and to disregard the fact that the market is already agitated by factors which must result in further price changes, and a tendency toward a different state of rest. The phenomenon with which we have to cope is the fact that changes in the factors which determine the formation of prices do not produce all their effects at once. A span of time must elapse before all their effects are exhausted. Between the appearance of a new datum and the perfect adjustment of the market to it, some time must pass. And, of course, while this period of time elapses, other new data appear. In dealing with the effects of any change in the factors operating on the market, we must never forget that we are dealing with events taking place in succession, with a series of effects succeeding one another. We are not in a position to know in advance how much time will have to elapse, but we know for certain that some time must elapse, although this period may sometimes be so small that it hardly plays any role in practical life. Economists often erred in neglecting the element of time. Take, for instance, the controversy concerning the effects of changes in the quantity of money. Some people were only concerned with its long-run effects, that is, with the final prices and the final state of rest. 
Others saw only the short-run effects, that is, the prices of the instant following the change in the data. Both were mistaken, and their conclusions were consequently vitiated. Many more examples of the same blunder could be cited. The imaginary construction of the final state of rest is marked by paying full regard to change in the temporal succession of events. In this respect, it differs from the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy, which is characterized by the elimination of change in the data and of the time element. It is inexpedient and misleading to call this imaginary construction, as is usual, the static economy or the static equilibrium, and it is a bad mistake to confuse it with the imaginary construction of a stationary economy. The evenly rotating economy is a fictitious system in which the market prices of all goods and services coincide with the final prices. There are in its frame no price changes whatever. There is perfect price stability. The same market transactions are repeated again and again. The goods of the higher orders pass in the same quantities through the same stages of processing until ultimately the produced consumer's goods come into the hands of the consumers and are consumed. No changes in the market data occur. Today does not differ from yesterday, and tomorrow will not differ from today. The system is in perpetual flux, but it remains always at the same spot. It revolves evenly around a fixed center. It rotates evenly. The plain state of rest is disarranged again and again, but it is instantly reestablished at the previous level. All factors, including those bringing about the recurring disarrangement of the plain state of rest, are constant. Therefore, prices, commonly called static or equilibrium prices, remain constant too. The essence of this imaginary construction is the elimination of the lapse of time and of the perpetual change in the market phenomena. The notion of any change with regard to supply and demand is incompatible with this construction. Only such changes as do not affect the configuration of the price-determining factors can be considered in its frame. It is not necessary to people the imaginary world of the evenly rotating economy with immortal, non-aging, and non-proliferating men. We are free to assume that infants are born, grow old, and finally die, provided that total population figures and the number of people in every age group remain equal. Then the demand for commodities whose consumption is limited to certain age groups does not alter, although the individuals from whom it originates are not the same. In reality, there is never such a thing as an evenly rotating economic system. However, in order to analyze the problems of change in the data and of unevenly and irregularly varying movement, we must confront them with a fictitious state in which both are hypothetically eliminated. 
It is therefore preposterous to maintain that the construction of an evenly rotating economy does not elucidate conditions within a changing universe, and to require the economists to substitute a study of dynamics for their alleged exclusive occupation with statics. This so-called static method is precisely the proper mental tool for the examination of change. There is no means of studying the complex phenomena of action other than first to abstract from change altogether, then to introduce an isolated factor provoking change, and ultimately to analyze its effects under the assumption that other things remain equal. It is furthermore absurd to believe that the services rendered by the construction of an evenly rotating economy are the more valuable, the more the object of our studies, the realm of real action, corresponds to this construction in respect to absence of change. The static method, the employment of the imaginary construction of an evenly rotating economy, is the only adequate method of analyzing the changes concerned without regard to whether they are great or small, sudden or slow. The objections hitherto raised against the use of the imaginary construction of an evenly rotating economy missed the mark entirely. Their authors did not grasp in what respect this construction is problematic, and why it can easily engender error and confusion. Action is change, and change is in the temporal sequence. But in the evenly rotating economy, change and succession of events are eliminated. Action is to make choices and to cope with an uncertain future, but in the evenly rotating economy there is no choosing, and the future is not uncertain, as it does not differ from the present known state. Such a rigid system is not peopled with living men making choices and liable to error. It is a world of soulless, unthinking automatons. It is not a human society. It is an anthill. These insoluble contradictions, however, do not affect the service which this imaginary construction renders for the only problem for whose treatment it is both appropriate and indispensable, the problem of the relation between the prices of products and those of the factors required for their production, and the implied problems of entrepreneurship and of profit and loss. In order to grasp the function of entrepreneurship and the meaning of profit and loss, we construct a system from which they are absent. This image is merely a tool for our thinking. It is not the description of a possible and realizable state of affairs. It is even out of the question to carry the imaginary construction of an evenly rotating system to its ultimate logical consequences for it is impossible to eliminate the entrepreneur from the picture of a market economy. The various complementary factors of production cannot come together spontaneously. They need to be combined by the purposive efforts of men aiming at certain ends and motivated by the urge to improve their state of satisfaction. In eliminating the entrepreneur, one eliminates the driving force of the whole market system. Then there is a second deficiency. 
In the imaginary construction of an evenly rotating economy, indirect exchange and the use of money are tacitly implied. But what kind of money can that be? In a system without change, in which there is no uncertainty whatever about the future, nobody needs to hold cash. Every individual knows precisely what amount of money he will need at any future date. He is therefore in a position to lend all the funds he receives in such a way that the loans fall due on the date he will need them. Let us assume that there is only gold money and only one central bank. With the successive progress toward the state of an evenly rotating economy, all individuals and firms restrict step by step their holding of cash, and the quantities of gold thus released flow into non-monetary, industrial employment. When the equilibrium of the evenly rotating economy is finally reached, there are no more cash holdings. No more gold is used for monetary purposes. The individuals and firms own claims against the central bank, the maturity of each part of which precisely corresponds to the amount they will need on the respective dates for the settlement of their obligations. The central bank does not need any reserves, as the total sum of the daily payments of its customers exactly equals the total sum of withdrawals. All transactions can, in fact, be effected through transfer in the bank's books without any recourse to cash. Thus, the money of this system is not a medium of exchange. It is not money at all. It is merely a numeraire, an ethereal and undetermined unit of accounting of that vague and indefinable character which the fancy of some economists and the errors of many laymen mistakenly have attributed to money. The interposition of these numerical expressions between seller and buyer does not affect the essence of the sales. It is neutral with regard to the people's economic activities. But the notion of a neutral money is unrealizable and inconceivable in itself. If we were to use the inexpedient terminology employed in many contemporary economic writings, we would have to say, money is necessarily a dynamic factor. There is no room left for money in a static system. But the very notion of a market economy without money is self-contradictory. The imaginary construction of an evenly rotating system is a limiting notion. In its frame there is, in fact, no longer any action. Automatic reaction is substituted for the conscious striving of thinking man after the removal of uneasiness. We can employ this problematic imaginary construction only if we never forget what purposes it is designed to serve. We want, first of all, to analyze the tendency prevailing in every action toward the establishment of an evenly rotating economy. In doing so, we must always take into account that this tendency can never attain its goal in a universe not perfectly rigid and immutable, that is, in a universe which is living and not dead. Secondly, we need to comprehend in what respects the conditions of a living world in which there is action differ from those of a rigid world. 
This we can discover only by the argumentum a contrario, provided by the image of a rigid economy. Thus we are led to the insight that dealing with the uncertain conditions of the unknown future, that is, speculation, is inherent in every action, and that profit and loss are necessary features of acting which cannot be conjured away by any wishful thinking. The procedures adopted by those economists who are fully aware of these fundamental cognitions may be called the logical method of economics, as contrasted with the technique of the mathematical method. The mathematical economists disregard dealing with the actions which, under the imaginary and unrealizable assumption that no further new data will emerge, are supposed to bring about the evenly rotating economy. They do not notice the individual speculator who aims not at the establishment of the evenly rotating economy, but at profiting from an action which adjusts the conduct of affairs better to the attainment of the ends sought by acting, the best possible removal of uneasiness. They stress exclusively the imaginary state of equilibrium which the whole complex of all such actions would attain in the absence of any further change in the data. They describe this imaginary equilibrium by sets of simultaneous differential equations. They fail to recognize that the state of affairs they are dealing with is a state in which there is no longer any action, but only a succession of events provoked by a mystical prime mover. They devote all their efforts to describing in mathematical symbols various equilibria, that is, states of rest and the absence of action. They deal with equilibrium as if it were a real entity and not a limiting notion, a mere mental tool. What they are doing is vain playing with mathematical symbols, a pastime not suited to convey any knowledge. 6. THE STATIONARY ECONOMY The imaginary construction of a stationary economy has sometimes been confused with that of an evenly rotating economy, but in fact these two constructions differ. The stationary economy is an economy in which the wealth and income of the individuals remain unchanged. With this image, changes are compatible which would be incompatible with the construction of the evenly rotating economy. Population figures may rise or drop, provided that they are accompanied by a corresponding rise or drop in the sum of wealth and income. The demand for some commodities may change but these changes must occur so slowly that the transfer of capital from those branches of production which are to be restricted, in accordance with them, into those to be expanded, can be effected by not replacing equipment used up in the shrinking branches, and instead investing in the expanding ones. The imaginary construction of a stationary economy leads to two further imaginary constructions the progressing, expanding economy, and the retrogressing, shrinking economy. In the former, the per capita quota of wealth and income of the individuals and the population figure tend toward a higher numerical value, in the latter toward a lower numerical value. 
In the stationary economy, the total sum of all profits and of all losses is zero. In the progressing economy, the total amount of profits exceeds the total amount of losses. In the retrogressing economy, the total amount of profits is smaller than the total amount of losses. The precariousness of these three imaginary constructions is to be seen in the fact that they imply the possibility of the measurement of wealth and income. As such measurements cannot be made, and are not even conceivable, it is out of the question to apply them for a rigorous classification of the conditions of reality. Whenever economic history ventures to classify economic evolution within a certain period, according to the scheme stationary, progressing, or retrogressing, it resorts, in fact, to historical understanding, and does not measure. 7. The Integration of Catalactic Functions When men in dealing with the problems of their own actions, and when economic history, descriptive economics, and economic statistics in reporting other people's actions, employ the terms entrepreneur, capitalist, landowner, worker, and consumer, they speak of ideal types. When economics employs the same terms, it speaks of catalactic categories. The entrepreneurs, capitalists, landowners, workers, and consumers of economic theory are not living men as one meets them in the reality of life and history. They are the embodiment of distinct functions in the market operations. The fact that both acting men and historical sciences apply in their reasoning the results of economics, and that they construct their ideal types on the basis of and with reference to the categories of praxeological theory, does not modify the radical logical distinction between ideal type and economic category. The economic categories we are concerned with refer to purely integrated functions. The ideal types refer to historical events. Living and acting man, by necessity, combines various functions. He is never merely a consumer. He is, in addition, either an entrepreneur, landowner, capitalist, or worker, or a person supported by the intake earned by such people, Moreover, the functions of the entrepreneur, the landowner, the capitalist, and the worker are very often combined by the same persons. History is intent upon classifying men according to the ends they aim at and the means they employ for the attainment of these ends. Economics, exploring the structure of acting in the market society without any regard to the ends people aim at and the means they employ, is intent upon discerning categories and functions. These are two different tasks. The difference can best be demonstrated in discussing the catalactic concept of the entrepreneur. In the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy, there is no room left for entrepreneurial activity, because this construction eliminates any change of data that could affect prices. As soon as one abandons this assumption of rigidity of data, one finds that action must needs be affected by every change in the data. 
as action necessarily is directed toward influencing a future state of affairs, even if sometimes only the immediate future of the next instant, it is affected by every incorrectly anticipated change in the data occurring in the period of time between its beginning and the end of the period for which it aimed to provide, period of provision. Thus the outcome of action is always uncertain. Action is always speculation. This is valid not only with regard to a market economy, but no less for Robinson Crusoe, the imaginary isolated actor, and for the conditions of a socialist economy. In the imaginary construction of an evenly rotating system, nobody is an entrepreneur and speculator. In any real and living economy, every actor is always an entrepreneur and speculator. The people taken care of by the actors, the minor family members in the market society, and the masses of a socialist society, are, although themselves not actors and therefore not speculators, affected by the outcome of the actors' speculations. Economics, in speaking of entrepreneurs, has in view not men, but a definite function. This function is not the particular feature of a special group or class of men. It is inherent in every action and burdens every actor. In embodying this function in an imaginary figure, we resort to a methodological makeshift. The term entrepreneur, as used by catalactic theory, means acting man exclusively seen from the aspect of the uncertainty inherent in every action. In using this term, one must never forget that every action is embedded in the flux of time, and therefore involves a speculation. The capitalists, the landowners, and the laborers are, by necessity, speculators. So is the consumer in providing for anticipated future needs. There's many a slip, twixt cup and lip. Let us try to think the imaginary construction of a pure entrepreneur to its ultimate logical consequences. This entrepreneur does not own any capital. The capital required for his entrepreneurial activities is lent to him by the capitalists in the form of money loans. The law, it is true, considers him the proprietor of the various means of production purchased by expending the sums borrowed. Nevertheless, he remains propertyless, for the amount of his assets is balanced by his liabilities. If he succeeds, the net profit is his. If he fails, the loss must fall upon the capitalists who have lent him the funds. Such an entrepreneur would, in fact, be an employee of the capitalists who speculates on their account and takes a 100% share in the net profits without being concerned about the losses. But even if the entrepreneur is in a position to provide himself a part of the capital required and borrows only the rest, things are essentially not different. To the extent that the losses incurred cannot be borne out of the entrepreneur's own funds, they fall upon the lending capitalists, whatever the terms of the contract may be. A capitalist is always also virtually an entrepreneur and speculator. He always runs the chance of losing his funds. There is no such thing as a perfectly safe investment.
The self-sufficient landowner who tills his estate only to supply his own household is affected by all changes influencing the fertility of his farm or the object of his needs. Within a market economy, the result of a farmer's activities is affected by all changes regarding the importance of his piece of land for supplying the market. The farmer is clearly, even from the point of view of mundane terminology, an entrepreneur. No proprietor of any means of production, whether they are represented in tangible goods or in money, remains untouched by the uncertainty of the future. The employment of any tangible goods or money for production, that is, the provision for later days, is in itself an entrepreneurial activity. Things are essentially the same for the laborer. He is born the proprietor of certain abilities. His innate faculties are a means of production which is better fitted for some kinds of work, less fitted for others, and not at all fitted for still others. If he has acquired the skill needed for the performance of certain kinds of labor, he is, with regard to the time and the material outlays absorbed by this training, in the position of an investor. He has made an input in the expectation of being compensated by an adequate output. The laborer is an entrepreneur insofar as his wages are determined by the price the market allows for the kind of work he can perform. This price varies according to the change in conditions, in the same way in which the price of every other factor of production varies. In the context of economic theory, the meaning of the terms concerned is this. Entrepreneur means acting man in regard to the changes occurring in the data of the market. Capitalist and landowner mean acting man in regard to the changes in value and price, which, even with all the market data remaining equal, are brought about by the mere passing of time as a consequence of the different valuation of present goods and of future goods. Worker means man in regard to the employment of the factor of production, human labor. Thus every function is nicely integrated. The entrepreneur earns profit or suffers loss. The owners of means of production, capital goods or land, earn originary interest. The workers earn wages. In this sense we elaborate the imaginary construction of functional distribution as different from the actual historical distribution. Economics, however, always did and still does use the term entrepreneur in a sense other than that attached to it in the imaginary construction of functional distribution. It also calls entrepreneurs those who are especially eager to profit from adjusting production to the expected changes in conditions, those who have more initiative, more venturesomeness, and a quicker eye than the crowd the pushing and promoting pioneers of economic improvement. This notion is narrower than the concept of an entrepreneur as used in the construction of functional distribution. It does not include many instances which the latter includes. It is awkward that the same term should be used to signify two different notions. It would have been more expedient to employ another term for this second notion, for instance, the term promoter.
It is to be admitted that the notion of the entrepreneur-promoter cannot be defined with praxeological rigor. In this, it is like the notion of money, which also defies, different from the notion of a medium of exchange, a rigid praxeological definition. However, economics cannot do without the promoter concept, for it refers to a datum that is a general characteristic of human nature, that is present in all market transactions and marks them profoundly. This is the fact that various individuals do not react to a change in conditions with the same quickness and in the same way. The inequality of men, which is due to differences both in their inborn qualities and in the vicissitudes of their lives, manifests itself in this way, too. There are in the market pacemakers and others who only imitate the procedures of their more agile fellow-citizens. The phenomenon of leadership is no less real on the market than in any other branch of human activities. The driving force of the market, the element tending toward unceasing innovation and improvement, is provided by the restlessness of the promoter and his eagerness to make profits as large as possible. There is, however, no danger that the equivocal use of this term may result in any ambiguity in the exposition of the catalactic system. Wherever any doubts are likely to appear, they can be dispelled by the employment of the term promoter instead of entrepreneur. The Entrepreneurial Function in the Stationary Economy the futures market can relieve an entrepreneur of a part of his entrepreneurial function. As far as an entrepreneur has insured himself through suitable forward transactions against losses he may possibly suffer, he ceases to be an entrepreneur, and the entrepreneurial function devolves on the other party to the contract. The cotton spinner, who, when buying raw cotton for his mill, sells the same quantity forward, has abandoned a part of his entrepreneurial function. He will neither profit nor lose from changes in the cotton price occurring in the period concerned. Of course, he does not entirely cease to serve in the entrepreneurial function. Those changes in the price of yarn in general, or in the price of the special counts and kinds he produces, which are not brought about by a change in the price of raw cotton, affect him nonetheless. Even if he spins only as a contractor for a remuneration agreed upon, he is still in an entrepreneurial function with regard to the funds invested in his outfit. We may construct the image of an economy in which the conditions required for the establishment of futures markets are realized for all kinds of goods and services. In such an imaginary construction, the entrepreneurial function is fully separated from all other functions. There emerges a class of pure entrepreneurs. The prices determined on the futures markets direct the whole apparatus of production. The dealers in futures alone make profits and suffer losses. All other people are insured, as it were, against the possible adverse effects of the uncertainty of the future. They enjoy security in this regard. The heads of the various business units are employees, as it were, with a fixed income. 
If we further assume that this economy is a stationary economy and that all futures transactions are concentrated in one corporation, it is obvious that the total amount of losses precisely equals the total amount of profits. We need only to nationalize this corporation in order to bring about a socialist state without profits and losses, a state of undisturbed security and stability. But this is so only because our definition of a stationary economy implies equality of the total sum of losses and that of profits. In a changing economy, an excess either of profits or of losses must emerge. It would be a waste of time to dwell longer upon such over-sophisticated images which do not further the analysis of economic problems. The only reason for mentioning them is that they reflect ideas which are at the bottom of some criticisms made against the economic system of capitalism, and of some delusive plans suggested for a socialist control of business. Now, it is true that a socialist scheme is logically compatible with the unrealizable imaginary constructions of an evenly rotating economy and of a stationary economy. The predilection with which mathematical economists almost exclusively deal with the conditions of these imaginary constructions, and with the state of equilibrium implied in them, has made people oblivious of the fact that these are unreal, self-contradictory, and imaginary expedients of thought, and nothing else. They are certainly not suitable models for the construction of a living society of acting men. Chapter 15 The Market 1. The Characteristics of the Market Economy the market economy is the social system of the division of labor under private ownership of the means of production. Everybody acts on his own behalf, but everybody's actions aim at the satisfaction of other people's needs as well as at the satisfaction of his own. Everybody in acting serves his fellow citizens. Everybody, on the other hand, is served by his fellow citizens. Everybody is both a means and an end in himself, an ultimate end for himself and a means to other people in their endeavors to attain their own ends. This system is steered by the market. The market directs the individual's activities into those channels in which he best serves the wants of his fellow men. There is in the operation of the market no compulsion and coercion. The state the social apparatus of coercion and compulsion does not interfere with the market and with the citizen's activities directed by the market. It employs its power to beat people into submission solely for the prevention of actions destructive to the preservation and the smooth operation of the market economy. It protects the individual's life, health, and property against violent or fraudulent aggression on the part of domestic gangsters and external foes. Thus the state creates and preserves the environment in which the market economy can safely operate. The Marxian slogan, Anarchic Production, pertinently characterizes this social structure as an economic system which is not directed by a dictator a production czar who assigns to each a task and compels him to obey this command. Each man is free, 
nobody is subject to a despot. Of his own accord, the individual integrates himself into the cooperative system. The market directs him and reveals to him in what way he can best promote his own welfare as well as that of other people. The market is supreme. The market alone puts the whole social system in order and provides it with sense and meaning. The market is not a place, a thing, or a collective entity. The market is a process, actuated by the interplay of the actions of the various individuals cooperating under the division of labor. The forces determining the continually changing state of the market are the value judgments of these individuals and their actions as directed by these value judgments. The state of the market at any instant is the price structure, that is, the totality of the exchange ratios as established by the interaction of those eager to buy and those eager to sell. There is nothing inhuman or mystical with regard to the market. The market process is entirely a resultant of human actions. Every market phenomenon can be traced back to definite choices of the members of the market society. The market process is the adjustment of the individual actions of the various members of the market society to the requirements of mutual cooperation. The market prices tell the producers what to produce, how to produce, and in what quantity. The market is the focal point to which the activities of the individuals converge. It is the center from which the activities of the individuals radiate. The market economy must be strictly differentiated from the second thinkable, although not realizable, system of social cooperation under the division of labor, the system of social or government ownership of the means of production. This second system is commonly called socialism, communism, planned economy, or state capitalism. The market economy, or capitalism, as it is usually called, and the socialist economy preclude one another. There is no mixture of the two systems possible or thinkable. There is no such thing as a mixed economy, a system that would be in part capitalistic and in part socialist. Production is directed either by the market or by the decrees of a production czar or a committee of production czars. If within a society based on private ownership of the means of production, some of these means are publicly owned and operated, that is, owned and operated by the government or one of its agencies, this does not make for a mixed system which would combine socialism and capitalism. The fact that the state or municipalities own and operate some plants does not alter the characteristic features of the market economy. These publicly owned and operated enterprises are subject to the sovereignty of the market. They must fit themselves as buyers of raw materials, equipment, and labor, and as sellers of goods and services, into the scheme of the market economy. They are subject to the laws of the market, and thereby depend on the consumers who may or may not patronize them. They must strive for profits, or, at least, to avoid losses. The government may cover losses of its plants or shops by drawing on public funds, 
But this neither eliminates nor mitigates the supremacy of the market. It merely shifts it to another sector. For the means for covering the losses must be raised by the imposition of taxes. But this taxation has its effects on the market, and influences the economic structure according to the laws of the market. It is the operation of the market, and not the government collecting the taxes, that decides upon whom the incidence of the taxes falls, and how they affect production and consumption. Thus the market, not a government bureau, determines the working of these publicly operated enterprises. Nothing that is in any way connected with the operation of a market is, in the praxeological or economic sense, to be called socialism. The notion of socialism as conceived and defined by all socialists implies the absence of a market for factors of production and of prices of such factors. The socialization of individual plants, shops, and farms, that is, their transfer from private into public ownership, is a method of bringing about socialism by successive measures. It is a step on the way toward socialism, but not in itself socialism. Marx and the orthodox Marxians flatly deny the possibility of such a gradual approach to socialism. According to their doctrine, the evolution of capitalism will one day reach a point in which, at one stroke, capitalism is transformed into socialism. Government-operated enterprises and the Russian Soviet economy are, by the mere fact that they buy and sell on markets, connected with the capitalist system. They themselves bear witness to this connection by calculating in terms of money. They thus utilize the intellectual methods of the capitalist system that they fanatically condemn. For monetary economic calculation is the intellectual basis of the market economy. The tasks set to acting within any system of the division of labor cannot be achieved without economic calculation. The market economy calculates in terms of money prices. That it is capable of such calculation was instrumental in its evolution and conditions its present-day operation. The market economy is real because it can calculate. 2. Capital The metal tool of the market economy is economic calculation. The fundamental notion of economic calculation is the notion of capital and its correlative income. The notions of capital and income as applied in accountancy and in the mundane reflections of which accountancy is merely a refinement, contrast the means and the ends. The calculating mind of the actor draws a boundary line between the consumer's goods, which he plans to employ for the immediate satisfaction of his wants, and the goods of all orders, including those of the first order, which he plans to employ for providing, by further acting, for the satisfaction of future wants. The differentiation of means and ends thus becomes a differentiation of acquisition and consumption, of business and household, of trading funds and of household goods. The whole complex of goods destined for acquisition is evaluated in money terms. 
and this sum, the capital, is the starting point of economic calculation. The immediate end of acquisitive action is to increase, or at least to preserve, the capital. That amount which can be consumed within a definite period without lowering the capital is called income. If consumption exceeds the income available, the difference is called capital consumption. If the income available is greater than the amount consumed, the difference is called saving. Among the main tasks of economic calculation are those of establishing the magnitudes of income, saving, and capital consumption. The reflections which led acting man to the notions implied in the concepts of capital and income are latent in every premeditation and planning of action. Even the most primitive husbandmen are dimly aware of the consequences of acts which to a modern accountant would appear as capital consumption. The hunter's reluctance to kill a pregnant hind, and the uneasiness felt even by the most ruthless warriors in cutting fruit trees, were manifestations of a mentality which was influenced by such considerations. These considerations were present in the age-old legal institution of usufruct, and in analogous customs and practices. But only people who are in a position to resort to monetary calculation can evolve to full clarity the distinction between an economic substance and the advantages derived from it, and can apply it neatly to all classes, kinds, and orders of goods and services. They alone can establish such distinctions with regard to the perpetually changing conditions of highly developed processing industries and the complicated structure of the social cooperation of hundreds of thousands of specialized jobs and performances. Looking backward from the cognition provided by modern accountancy to the conditions of the savage ancestors of the human race, we may say metaphorically that they, too, used capital. A contemporary accountant could apply all the methods of his profession to their primitive tools of hunting and fishing, to their cattle breeding and their tilling of the soil, if he knew what prices to assign to the various items concerned. Some economists concluded, therefrom, that capital is a category of all human production, that it is present in every thinkable system of the conduct of production processes, that is, no less in Robinson Crusoe's involuntary hermitage than in a socialist society, and that it does not depend upon the practice of monetary calculation. This is, however, a confusion. The concept of capital cannot be separated from the context of monetary calculation and from the social structure of a market economy in which alone monetary calculation is possible. It is a concept which makes no sense outside the conditions of a market economy. It plays a role exclusively in the plans and records of individuals acting on their own account in such a system of private ownership of the means of production, and it developed with the spread of economic calculation in monetary terms. Modern accountancy is the fruit of a long historical evolution. Today there is, among businessmen and accountants, unanimity with regard to the meaning of capital. 
Capital is the sum of the money equivalent of all assets minus the sum of the money equivalent of all liabilities as dedicated at a definite date to the conduct of the operations of a definite business unit. It does not matter in what these assets may consist, whether they are pieces of land, buildings, equipment, tools, goods of any kind and order, claims, receivables, cash, or whatever. It is a historical fact that in the early days of accountancy, the tradesmen, the pacemakers on the way toward monetary calculation, did not for the most part include the money equivalent of their buildings and land in the notion of capital. It is another historical fact that agriculturists were slow in applying the capital concept to their land. Even today, in the most advanced countries, only a part of the farmers are familiar with the practice of sound accountancy. Many farmers acquiesce in a system of bookkeeping that neglects to pay heed to the land and its contribution to production. Their book entries do not include the money equivalent of the land, and are consequently indifferent to changes in this equivalent. Such accounts are defective because they fail to convey that information which is the sole aim sought by capital accounting. They do not indicate whether or not the operation of the farm has brought about a deterioration in the land's capacity to contribute to production, that is, in its objective use value. If an erosion of the soil has taken place, their books ignore it and thus the calculated income, net yield, is greater than a more complete method of bookkeeping would have shown. It is necessary to mention these historical facts because they influence the endeavors of the economists to construct the notion of real capital. The economists were and are still today confronted with the superstitious belief that the scarcity of factors of production could be brushed away, either entirely, or at least to some extent, by increasing the amount of money in circulation and by credit expansion. In order to deal adequately with this fundamental problem of economic policy, they considered it necessary to construct a notion of real capital, and to oppose it to the notion of capital as applied by the businessman whose calculation refers to the whole complex of his acquisitive activities. At the time the economists embarked upon these endeavors, the place of the money equivalent of land in the concept of capital was still questioned. Thus the economists thought it reasonable to disregard land in constructing their notion of real capital. They defined real capital as the totality of the produced factors of production available. Hair-splitting discussions were started as to whether inventories of consumers' goods held by business units are or are not real capital, but there was almost unanimity that cash is not real capital. Now this concept of a totality of the produced factors of production is an empty concept. The money equivalent of the various factors of production owned by a business unit can be determined and summed up. But if we abstract from such an evaluation in money terms, the totality of the produced factors of production is merely an enumeration of physical quantities of thousands and thousands of various goods.
Such an inventory is of no use to acting. It is a description of a part of the universe in terms of technology and topography, and has no reference whatever to the problems raised by the endeavors to improve human well-being. We may acquiesce in the terminological usage of calling the produced factors of production capital goods, but this does not render the concept of real capital any more meaningful. The worst outgrowth of the use of the mythical notion of real capital was that economists began to speculate about a spurious problem called the productivity of real capital. A factor of production is, by definition, a thing that is able to contribute to the success of a process of production. Its market price reflects entirely the value that people attach to this contribution. The services expected from the employment of a factor of production, that is, its contribution to productivity, are in market transactions paid according to the full value people attach to them. These factors are considered valuable only on account of these services. These services are the only reason why prices are paid for them. Once these prices are paid, nothing remains that can bring about further payments on the part of anybody as a compensation for additional productive services of these factors of production. It was a blunder to explain interest as an income derived from the productivity of capital. No less detrimental was a second confusion derived from the real capital concept. People began to meditate upon a concept of social capital as different from private capital. Starting from the imaginary construction of a socialist economy, they were intent upon defining a capital concept suitable to the economic activities of the general manager of such a system. They were right in assuming that this manager would be eager to know whether his conduct of affairs was successful, namely, from the point of view of his own valuations and the ends aimed at in accordance with these valuations, and how much he could expend for his ward's consumption without diminishing the available stock of factors of production and thus impairing the yield of further production. A socialist government would badly need the concepts of capital and income as a guide for its operations. However, in an economic system in which there is no private ownership of the means of production, no market and no prices for such goods, the concepts of capital and income are mere academic postulates devoid of any practical application. In a socialist economy, there are capital goods but no capital. The notion of capital makes sense only in the market economy. It serves the deliberations and calculations of individuals or groups of individuals operating on their own account in such an economy. It is a device of capitalists, entrepreneurs, and farmers eager to make profits and to avoid losses. It is not a category of all acting, it is a category of acting within a market economy. 3. Capitalism All civilizations have up to now been based on private ownership of the means of production. In the past, civilization and private property have been linked together. 
Those who maintain that economics is an experimental science, and nevertheless recommend public control of the means of production, lamentably contradict themselves. If historical experience could teach us anything, it would be that private property is inextricably linked with civilization. There is no experience to the effect that socialism could provide a standard of living as high as that provided by capitalism. The system of market economy has never been fully and purely tried, but there prevailed in the orbit of Western civilization since the Middle Ages, by and large, a general tendency toward the abolition of institutions hindering the operation of the market economy. With the successive progress of this tendency, population figures multiplied, and the masses' standard of living was raised to an unprecedented and hitherto undreamed-of level. The average American worker enjoys amenities for which Croesus, Crassus, the Medici, and Louis XIV would have envied him. The problems raised by the socialist and interventionist critique of the market economy are purely economic and can be dealt with only in the way in which this book tries to deal with them, by a thorough analysis of human action and all thinkable systems of social cooperation. The psychological problem of why people scorn and disparage capitalism and call everything they dislike capitalistic and everything they praise socialistic concerns history and must be left to the historians. But there are several other issues which we must stress at this point. The advocates of totalitarianism consider capitalism a ghastly evil, an awful illness that came upon mankind. In the eyes of Marx, it was an inevitable stage of mankind's evolution, but for all that, the worst of evils. Fortunately, salvation is imminent and will free man forever from this disaster. In the opinion of other people, it would have been possible to avoid capitalism if only men had been more moral or more skillful in the choice of economic policies. All such lucubrations have one feature in common. They look upon capitalism as if it were an accidental phenomenon, which could be eliminated without altering conditions that are essential in civilized man's acting and thinking. As they neglect to bother about the problem of economic calculation, they are not aware of the consequences which the abolition of the monetary calculus is bound to bring about. They do not realize that socialist men, for whom arithmetic will be of no use in planning action, will differ entirely in their mentality and in their mode of thinking from our contemporaries. In dealing with socialism, we must not overlook this mental transformation, even if we were ready to pass over in silence the disastrous consequences which would result for man's material well-being. The market economy is a man-made mode of acting under the division of labor. But this does not imply that it is something accidental or artificial and could be replaced by another mode. The market economy is the product of a long evolutionary process. It is the outcome of man's endeavors to adjust his action in the best possible way to the given conditions of his environment that he cannot alter. 
It is the strategy, as it were, by the application of which man has triumphantly progressed from savagery to civilization. This mode of argumentation is very popular among present-day authors. Capitalism was the economic system which brought about the marvelous achievements of the last two hundred years. Therefore, it is done for, because what was beneficial in the past cannot be so for our time and for the future. Such reasoning is in open contradiction to the principles of experimental cognition. There is no need at this point to raise again the question of whether or not the science of human action can adopt the methods of the experimental natural sciences. Even if it were permissible to answer this question in the affirmative, it would be absurd to argue as these Arabur experimentalists do. Experimental science argues that because A was valid in the past, it will be valid in the future, too. It must never argue the other way round, and assert that because A was valid in the past, it is not valid in the future. It is customary to blame the economists for an alleged disregard of history. The economists, it is contended, consider the market economy as the ideal and eternal pattern of social cooperation. They concentrate their studies upon investigating the conditions of the market economy and neglect everything else. They do not bother about the fact that capitalism emerged only in the last two hundred years, and that even today it is restricted to a comparatively small area of the earth's surface and to a minority of peoples. There were and are other civilizations with a different mentality and different modes of conducting economic affairs. Capitalism is, when seen sub specie eternitatis, a passing phenomenon, an ephemeral stage of historical evolution, just the transition from pre-capitalistic ages to a post-capitalistic future. All these criticisms are spurious. Economics is, of course, not a branch of history or of any other historical science. It is the theory of all human action, the general science of the immutable categories of action, and of their operation under all thinkable special conditions under which man acts. It provides, as such, the indispensable mental tool for dealing with historical and ethnographic problems. A historian or an ethnographer who neglects in his work to take full advantage of the results of economics is doing a poor job. In fact, he does not approach the subject matter of his research unaffected by what he disregards as theory. He is at every step of his gathering of allegedly unadulterated facts, in arranging these facts and in his conclusions derived from them, guided by confused and garbled remnants of perfunctory economic doctrines constructed by botchers in the centuries preceding the elaboration of an economic science, and long since entirely exploded. The analysis of the problems of the market society, the only pattern of human action in which calculation can be applied in planning action, opens access to the analysis of all thinkable modes of action and of all economic problems with which historians and ethnographers are confronted. 
all non-capitalistic methods of economic management can be studied only under the hypothetical assumption that in them, too, cardinal numbers can be used in recording past action and planning future action. This is why economists place the study of the pure market economy in the center of their investigations. It is not the economists who lack the historical sense and ignore the factor of evolution, but their critics. The economists have always been fully aware of the fact that the market economy is the product of a long historical process, which began when the human race emerged from the ranks of the other primates. The champions of what is mistakenly called historicism are intent upon undoing the effects of evolutionary changes. In their eyes, everything the existence of which they cannot trace back to a remote past or cannot discover in the customs of some primitive Polynesian tribes is artificial, even decadent. They consider the fact that an institution was unknown to savages as a proof of its uselessness and rottenness. Marx and Engels and the Prussian professors of the historical school exulted when they learned that private property is only a historical phenomenon. For them, this was the proof that their socialist plans were realizable. The creative genius is at variance with his fellow citizens. As the pioneer of things new and unheard of, he is in conflict with their uncritical acceptance of traditional standards and values. In his eyes, the routine of the regular citizen, the average or common man, is simply stupidity. For him, bourgeois is a synonym of imbecility. The frustrated artists who take delight in aping the genius's mannerism in order to forget and to conceal their own impotence adopt this terminology. These bohemians call everything they dislike bourgeois. Since Marx has made the term capitalist equivalent to bourgeois, they use both words synonymously. In the vocabularies of all languages, the words capitalistic and bourgeois signify today all that is shameful, degrading, and infamous. Contrarywise, people call all that they deem good and praiseworthy socialist. The regular scheme of arguing is this. A man arbitrarily calls anything he dislikes capitalistic, and then deduces from this appellation that the thing is bad. This semantic confusion goes still further. Sismondi, the romantic eulogists of the Middle Ages, all socialist authors, the Prussian historical school, and the American institutionalists, taught that capitalism is an unfair system of exploitation, sacrificing the vital interests of the majority of people for the sole benefit of a small group of profiteers. No decent man can advocate this mad system, the economists who contend that capitalism is beneficial not only to a small group, but to everyone, are sycophants of the bourgeoisie. They are either too dull to recognize the truth, or bribed apologists of the selfish class interests of the exploiters. Capitalism, in the terminology of these foes of liberty, democracy, and the market economy, means the economic policy advocated by big business and millionaires. 
confronted with the fact that some, but certainly not all, wealthy entrepreneurs and capitalists nowadays favor measures restricting free trade and competition and resulting in monopoly, they say, Contemporary capitalism stands for protectionism, cartels, and the abolition of competition. It is true, they add, that at a definite period of the past, British capitalism favored free trade, both on the domestic market and in international relations. This was because, at that time, the class interests of the British bourgeoisie were best served by such a policy. Conditions, however, changed, and today, capitalism, that is, the policy advocated by the exploiters, aims at another policy. It has already been pointed out that this doctrine badly distorts both economic theory and historical facts. There were, and there will always be, people whose selfish ambitions demand protection for vested interests, and who hope to derive advantage from measures restricting competition. Entrepreneurs grown old and tired, and the decadent heirs of people who succeeded in the past, dislike the agile parvenus who challenge their wealth and their eminent social position. Whether or not their desire to make economic conditions rigid and to hinder improvements can be realized depends on the climate of public opinion. The ideological structure of the nineteenth century, as fashioned by the prestige of the teachings of the liberal economists, rendered such wishes vain. When the technological improvements of the age of liberalism revolutionized the traditional methods of production, transportation, and marketing, those whose vested interests were hurt did not ask for protection because it would have been a hopeless venture. But today it is deemed a legitimate task of government to prevent an efficient man from competing with the less efficient. Public opinion sympathizes with the demands of powerful pressure groups to stop progress. The butter producers are with considerable success fighting against margarine and the musicians against recorded music. The labor unions are deadly foes of every new machine. It is not amazing that in such an environment, less efficient businessmen aim at protection against more efficient competitors. It would be correct to describe this state of affairs in this way. Today, many or some groups of business are no longer liberal. They do not advocate a pure market economy and free enterprise, but on the contrary are asking for various measures of government interference with business. But it is entirely misleading to say that the meaning of the concept of capitalism has changed, and that mature capitalism, as the Americans call it, or late capitalism, as the Marxians call it, is characterized by restrictive policies to protect the vested interests of wage earners, farmers, shopkeepers, artisans, and sometimes also of capitalists and entrepreneurs. The concept of capitalism is, as an economic concept, immutable. If it means anything, it means market economy. One deprives oneself of the semantic tools to deal adequately with the problems of contemporary history and economic policies, if one acquiesces in a different terminology. This faulty nomenclature becomes understandable only if we realize that the pseudo-economists and the politicians who apply it 
want to prevent people from knowing what the market economy really is. They want to make people believe that all the repulsive manifestations of restrictive government policies are produced by capitalism. 4. The Sovereignty of the Consumers The direction of all economic affairs is, in the market society, a task of the entrepreneurs. Theirs is the control of production. They are at the helm and steer the ship. A superficial observer would believe that they are supreme, but they are not. They are bound to obey unconditionally the captain's orders. The captain is the consumer. Neither the entrepreneurs, nor the farmers, nor the capitalists determine what has to be produced. The consumers do that. If a businessman does not strictly obey the orders of the public as they are conveyed to him by the structure of market prices, he suffers losses, he goes bankrupt, and is thus removed from his eminent position at the helm. Other men who did better in satisfying the demand of the consumers replace him. The consumers patronize those shops in which they can buy what they want at the cheapest price. Their buying and their abstention from buying decides who should own and run the plants and the land. They make poor people rich and rich people poor. They determine precisely what should be produced, in what quality and in what quantities. They are merciless, egoistic bosses, full of whims and fancies, changeable and unpredictable. For them, nothing counts other than their own satisfaction. They do not care a whit for past merit and vested interests. If something is offered to them that they like better or that is cheaper, they desert their old purveyors. In their capacity as buyers and consumers, they are hard-hearted and callous, without consideration for other people. Only the sellers of goods and services of the first order are in direct contact with the consumers and directly depend on their orders. But they transmit the orders received from the public to all those producing goods and services of the higher orders. For the manufacturers of consumers' goods, the retailers, the service trades, and the professions are forced to acquire what they need for the conduct of their own business from those purveyors who offer them at the cheapest price. If they were not intent upon buying in the cheapest market and arranging their processing of the factors of production so as to fill the demands of the consumers in the best and cheapest way, they would be forced to go out of business. More efficient men, who succeeded better in buying and processing the factors of production, would supplant them. The consumer is in a position to give free rein to his caprices and fancies. The entrepreneurs, capitalists, and farmers have their hands tied. They are bound to comply in their operations with the orders of the buying public. Every deviation from the lines prescribed by the demand of the consumers debits their account. The slightest deviation, whether willfully brought about or caused by error, bad judgment, or inefficiency, restricts their profits or makes them disappear. A more serious deviation results in losses and thus impairs or entirely absorbs their wealth. 
Capitalists, entrepreneurs, and landowners can only preserve and increase their wealth by filling best the orders of the consumers. They are not free to spend money which the consumers are not prepared to refund to them in paying more for the products. In the conduct of their business affairs, they must be unfeeling and stony-hearted, because the consumers, their bosses, are themselves unfeeling and stony-hearted. The consumers determine ultimately not only the prices of the consumers' goods, but no less the prices of all factors of production. They determine the income of every member of the market economy. The consumers, not the entrepreneurs, pay ultimately the wages earned by every worker, the glamorous movie star as well as the charwoman. With every penny spent, the consumers determine the direction of all production processes and the minutest details of the organization of all business activities. This state of affairs has been described by calling the market a democracy, in which every penny gives a right to cast a ballot. It would be more correct to say that a democratic constitution is a scheme to assign to the citizens in the conduct of government the same supremacy the market economy gives them in their capacity as consumers. However, the comparison is imperfect, In the political democracy, only the votes cast for the majority candidate or the majority plan are effective in shaping the course of affairs. The votes polled by the minority do not directly influence policies. But on the market, no vote is cast in vain. Every penny spent has the power to work upon the production processes. The publishers cater not only to the majority by publishing detective stories, but also to the minority, reading lyrical poetry and philosophical tracts. The bakeries bake bread not only for healthy people, but also for the sick on special diets. The decision of a consumer is carried into effect with the full momentum he gives it through his readiness to spend a definite amount of money. It is true, in the market the various consumers have not the same voting right. The rich cast more votes than the poorer citizens. But this inequality is itself the outcome of a previous voting process. To be rich in a pure market economy is the outcome of success in filling best the demands of the consumers. A wealthy man can preserve his wealth only by continuing to serve the consumers in the most efficient way. Thus the owners of the material factors of production and the entrepreneurs are virtually mandatories or trustees of the consumers, revocably appointed by an election daily repeated. There is in the operation of a market economy only one instance in which the proprietary class is not completely subject to the supremacy of the consumers. Monopoly prices are an infringement of the sway of the consumers. The Metaphorical Employment of the Terminology of Political Rule The orders given by businessmen in the conduct of their affairs can be heard and seen. Nobody can fail to become aware of them. Even messenger boys know that the boss runs things around the shop. But it requires a little more brains to notice the entrepreneur's dependence on the market. 
The orders given by the consumers are not tangible. They cannot be perceived by the senses. Many people lack the discernment to take cognizance of them. They fall victim to the delusion that entrepreneurs and capitalists are irresponsible autocrats whom nobody calls to account for their actions. The outgrowth of this mentality is the practice of applying to business the terminology of political rule and military action. Successful businessmen are called kings or dukes, their enterprises an empire, a kingdom, or a dukedom. If this idiom were only a harmless metaphor, there would be no need to criticize it, but it is the source of serious errors which play a sinister role in contemporary doctrines. Government is an apparatus of compulsion and coercion. It has the power to obtain obedience by force. The political sovereign, be it an autocrat or the people as represented by its mandatories, has power to crush rebellions as long as his ideological might subsists. The position which entrepreneurs and capitalists occupy in the market economy is of a different character. A chocolate king has no power over the consumers, his patrons. He provides them with chocolate of the best possible quality and at the cheapest price. He does not rule the consumers. He serves them. The consumers are not tied to him. They are free to stop patronizing his shops. He loses his kingdom if the consumers prefer to spend their pennies elsewhere. Nor does he rule his workers. He hires their services by paying them precisely that amount which the consumers are ready to restore to him in buying the product. Still less do the capitalists and entrepreneurs exercise political control. The civilized nations of Europe and America were long controlled by governments which did not considerably hinder the operation of the market economy. Today, many of these countries, too, are dominated by parties which are hostile to capitalism, and believe that every harm inflicted upon capitalists and entrepreneurs is extremely beneficial to the people. In an unhampered market economy, the capitalists and entrepreneurs cannot expect an advantage from bribing officeholders and politicians. On the other hand, the officeholders and politicians are not in a position to blackmail businessmen and to extort graft from them. In an interventionist country, powerful pressure groups are intent upon securing for their members privileges at the expense of weaker groups and individuals. Then the businessmen may deem it expedient to protect themselves against discriminatory acts on the part of the executive officers and the legislature by bribery. Once used to such methods, they may even try to employ them in order to secure privileges for themselves. At any rate, the fact that businessmen corrupt politicians and officeholders and are blackmailed by such people does not indicate that they are supreme and rule the countries. It is those ruled and not the rulers who bribe and are paying tribute. The majority of businessmen are prevented from resorting to bribery either by their moral convictions or by fear. They venture to preserve the free enterprise system and to defend themselves against discrimination by legitimate democratic methods. They form trade associations and try to influence public opinion. 
The results of these endeavors have been rather poor, as is evidenced by the triumphant advance of anti-capitalist policies. The best that they have been able to achieve is to delay for a while some especially obnoxious measures. Demagogues misrepresent this state of affairs in the crassest way. They tell us that these associations of bankers and manufacturers are the true rulers of their countries, and that the whole apparatus of what they call Pluto-democratic government is dominated by them. A simple enumeration of the laws passed in the last decades by any country's legislature is enough to explode such legends. 5. Competition In nature there prevail irreconcilable conflicts of interests. The means of subsistence are scarce. Proliferation tends to outrun subsistence. Only the fittest plants and animals survive. The antagonism between an animal starving to death and another that snatches the food away from it is implacable. Social cooperation under the division of labor removes such antagonisms. It substitutes partnership and mutuality for hostility. The members of society are united in a common venture. The term competition as applied to the conditions of animal life signifies the rivalry between animals which manifests itself in their search for food. We may call this phenomenon biological competition. Biological competition must not be confused with social competition, that is, the striving of individuals to attain the most favorable position in the system of social cooperation. As there will always be positions which men value more highly than others, people will strive for them and try to outdo rivals. Social competition is consequently present in every conceivable mode of social organization. If we want to think of a state of affairs in which there is no social competition, we must construct the image of a socialist system in which the chief in his endeavors to assign to everybody his place and task in society is not aided by any ambition on the part of his subjects. The individuals are entirely indifferent and do not apply for special appointments. They behave like the stud horses, which do not try to put themselves in a favorable light when the owner picks out the stallion to impregnate his best brood mare. But such people would no longer be acting men. In a totalitarian system, social competition manifests itself in the endeavors of people to court the favor of those in power. In the market economy, competition manifests itself in the facts that the sellers must outdo one another by offering better or cheaper goods and services, and that the buyers must outdo one another by offering higher prices. In dealing with this variety of social competition, which may be called catalactic competition, we must guard ourselves against various popular fallacies. The classical economists favored the abolition of all trade barriers preventing people from competing on the market. Such restrictive laws, they explained, result in shifting production from those places in which natural conditions of production are more favorable to places in which they are less favorable. They protect the less efficient man against his more efficient rival. 
they tend to perpetuate backward technological methods of production. In short, they curtail production and thus lower the standard of living. In order to make all people more prosperous, the economists argued, competition should be free to everybody. In this sense, they used the term free competition. There was nothing metaphysical in their employment of the term free. They advocated the nullification of privileges barring people from access to certain trades and markets. All the sophisticated lucubrations caviling at the metaphysical connotations of the adjective free as applied to competition are spurious. They have no reference whatever to the catalactic problem of competition. As far as natural conditions come into play, competition can only be free with regard to those factors of production which are not scarce, and therefore not objects of human action. In the catalactic field, competition is always restricted by the inexorable scarcity of the economic goods and services. Even in the absence of institutional barriers erected to restrict the number of those competing, the state of affairs is never such as to enable everyone to compete in all sectors of the market. In each sector, only comparatively small groups can engage in competition. Catalactic competition, one of the characteristic features of the market economy, is a social phenomenon. It is not a right, guaranteed by the state and the laws, that would make it possible for every individual to choose ad libitum the place in the structure of the division of labor he likes best. To assign to everybody his proper place in society is the task of the consumers. Their buying and abstention from buying is instrumental in determining each individual's social position. Their supremacy is not impaired by any privileges granted to the individual's qua producers. Entrance into a definite branch of industry is virtually free to newcomers only as far as the consumers approve of this branch's expansion or as far as the newcomers succeed in supplanting those already occupied in it by filling better or more cheaply the demands of the consumers. Additional investment is reasonable only to the extent that it fills the most urgent among the not-yet-satisfied needs of the consumers. If the existing plants are sufficient, it would be wasteful to invest more capital in the same industry. The structure of market prices pushes the new investors into other branches. It is necessary to emphasize this point because the failure to grasp it is at the root of many popular complaints about the impossibility of competition. Some fifty years ago, people used to declare, You cannot compete with the railroad companies. It is impossible to challenge their position by starting competing lines. In the field of land transportation, there is no longer competition. The truth was that at that time the already operating lines were by and large sufficient. For additional capital investment, the prospects were more favorable in improving the serviceableness of the already operating lines, and in other branches of business than in the construction of new railroads. However, this did not interfere with further technological progress in transportation technique. 
the bigness and the economic power of the railroad companies did not impede the emergence of the motor car and the airplane. Today, people assert the same with regard to various branches of big business. You cannot challenge their position. They are too big and too powerful. But competition does not mean that anybody can prosper by simply imitating what other people do. It means the opportunity to serve the consumers in a better or cheaper way without being restrained by privileges granted to those whose vested interests the innovation hurts. What a newcomer who wants to defy the vested interests of the old established firms needs most is brains and ideas. If his project is fit to fill the most urgent of the unsatisfied needs of the consumers, or to purvey them at a cheaper price than their old purveyors, he will succeed, in spite of the much-talked-of bigness and power of the old firms. Catalactic competition must not be confused with prize fights and beauty contests. The purpose of such fights and contests is to discover who is the best boxer or the prettiest girl. The social function of catalactic competition is, to be sure, not to establish who is the smartest boy and to reward the winner by a title and medals. Its function is to safeguard the best satisfaction of the consumers which they can attain under the given state of the economic data. Equality of opportunity is a factor neither in prize fights and beauty contests nor in any other field of competition, whether biological or social. The immense majority of people are, by the physiological structure of their bodies, deprived of a chance to attain the honors of a boxing champion or a beauty queen. Only very few people can compete on the labor market as opera singers and movie stars. The most favorable opportunity to compete in the field of scientific achievement is provided to the university professors. Yet thousands and thousands of professors pass away without leaving any trace in the history of ideas and scientific progress, while many of the handicapped outsiders win glory through marvelous contributions. It is usual to find fault with the fact that catalactic competition is not open to everybody in the same way. The start is much more difficult for a poor boy than for the son of a wealthy man. But the consumers are not concerned about the problem of whether or not the men who shall serve them start their careers under equal conditions. Their only interest is to secure the best possible satisfaction of their needs. If the system of hereditary property is more efficient in this regard, they prefer it to other less efficient systems. They look at the matter from the point of view of social expediency and social welfare, not from the point of view of an alleged, imaginary, and unrealizable natural right of every individual to compete with equal opportunity. The realization of such a right would require placing at a disadvantage those born with better intelligence and greater willpower than the average man. It is obvious that this would be absurd. The term competition is mainly employed as the antithesis of monopoly. In this mode of speech, the term monopoly is applied in different meanings, which must be clearly separated. 
The first connotation of monopoly, very frequently implied in the popular use of the term, signifies a state of affairs in which the monopolist, whether an individual or a group of individuals, exclusively controls one of the vital conditions of human survival. Such a monopolist has the power to starve to death all those who do not obey his orders. He dictates, and the others have no alternative but either to surrender or to die. With regard to such a monopoly, there is no market or any other kind of catalactic competition. The monopolist is the master, and the rest are slaves, entirely dependent on his good graces. There is no need to dwell upon this kind of monopoly. It has no reference whatever to a market economy. It is enough to cite one instance. A world-embracing socialist state would exercise such an absolute and total monopoly. It would have the power to crush its opponents by starving them to death. The second connotation of monopoly differs from the first in that it describes a state of affairs compatible with the conditions of a market economy. A monopolist in this sense is an individual or a group of individuals, fully combining for joint action, who has the exclusive control of the supply of a definite commodity. If we define the term monopoly in this way, the domain of monopoly appears very vast. The products of the processing industries are more or less different from one another. Each factory turns out products different from those of the other plants. Each hotel has a monopoly on the sale of its services on the site of its premises. The professional services rendered by a physician or a lawyer are never perfectly equal to those rendered by any other physician or lawyer. Except for certain raw materials, foodstuffs, and other staple goods, monopoly is everywhere on the market. However, the mere phenomenon of monopoly is without any significance and relevance for the operation of the market and the determination of prices. It does not give the monopolist any advantage in selling his products. Under copyright law, every rhymester enjoys a monopoly in the sale of his poetry. But this does not influence the market. It may happen that no price whatever can be realized for his stuff and that his books can only be sold at their waste-paper value. Monopoly in this second connotation of the term becomes a factor in the determination of prices only if the demand curve for the monopoly good concerned is shaped in a particular way. If conditions are such that the monopolist can secure higher net proceeds by selling a smaller quantity of his product at a higher price, than by selling a greater quantity of his supply at a lower price, there emerges a monopoly price higher than the potential market price would have been in the absence of monopoly. Monopoly prices are an important market phenomenon, while monopoly as such is only important if it can result in the formation of monopoly prices. It is customary to call prices which are not monopoly prices competitive prices. While it is questionable whether or not this terminology is expedient, it is generally accepted, and it would be difficult to change it. But one must guard oneself against its misinterpretation. 
It would be a serious blunder to deduce from the antithesis between monopoly price and competitive price that the monopoly price is the outgrowth of the absence of competition. There is always catalactic competition on the market. Catalactic competition is no less a factor in the determination of monopoly prices than it is in the determination of competitive prices. The shape of the demand curve that makes the appearance of monopoly prices possible and directs the monopolist's conduct is determined by the competition of all other commodities competing for the buyer's dollars. The higher the monopolist fixes the price at which he is ready to sell, the more potential buyers turn their dollars toward other vendable goods. On the market, every commodity competes with all other commodities. There are people who maintain that the catalactic theory of prices is of no use for the study of reality, because there has never been free competition, or because, at least today, there is no longer any such thing. All these doctrines are wrong. They misconstrue the phenomena, and simply do not know what competition really is. It is a fact that the history of the last decades is a record of policies aiming at the restriction of competition. It is the manifest intention of these schemes to grant privileges to certain groups of producers by protecting them against the competition of more efficient competitors. In many instances, these policies have brought about the conditions required for the emergence of monopoly prices. In many other instances, this was not the case, and the result was only a state of affairs preventing many capitalists, entrepreneurs, farmers, and workers from entering those branches of industry in which they would have rendered the most valuable services to their fellow citizens. Catalactic competition has been seriously restricted, but the market economy is still in operation, although sabotaged by government and labor union interference. The system of catalactic competition is still functioning, although the productivity of labor has been seriously reduced. It is the ultimate end of these anti-competition policies to substitute for capitalism a socialist system of planning, in which there is no catalactic competition at all. While shedding crocodile tears about the decline of competition, the planners want to abolish this mad competitive system. They have attained their goal in some countries but in the rest of the world they have only restricted competition in some branches of business by increasing the number of people competing in other branches. The forces aiming at restriction of competition play a great role in our day. It is an important task of the history of our age to deal with them. Economic theory has no need to refer to them in particular, the fact that there are trade barriers, privileges, cartels, government monopolies, and labor unions is merely a datum of economic history. It does not require special theorems for its interpretation. 6. Freedom The words freedom and liberty signified for the most eminent representatives of mankind one of the most precious and desirable goods. Today it is fashionable to sneer at them. They are, trumpets the modern sage, slippery notions and bourgeois prejudices. 
Freedom and liberty are not to be found in nature. In nature, there is no phenomenon to which these terms could be meaningfully applied. Whatever man does, he can never free himself from the restraints which nature imposes upon him. If he wants to succeed in acting, he must submit unconditionally to the laws of nature. Freedom and liberty always refer to interhuman relations. A man is free as far as he can live and get on without being at the mercy of arbitrary decisions on the part of other people. In the frame of society, everybody depends upon his fellow citizens. Social man cannot become independent without forsaking all the advantages of social cooperation. The self-sufficient individual is independent, but he is not free. He is at the mercy of everybody who is stronger than himself. The stronger fellow has the power to kill him with impunity. It is therefore nonsense to rant about an alleged natural and inborn freedom which people are supposed to have enjoyed in the ages preceding the emergence of social bonds. Man was not created free. What freedom he may possess has been given to him by society. Only societal conditions can present a man with an orbit within the limits of which he can attain liberty. Liberty and freedom are the conditions of man within a contractual society. Social cooperation under a system of private ownership of the means of production means that within the range of the market, the individual is not bound to obey and to serve an overlord. As far as he gives and serves other people, he does so of his own accord, in order to be rewarded and served by the receivers. He exchanges goods and services. He does not do compulsory labor and does not pay tribute. He is certainly not independent. He depends on the other members of society. But this dependence is mutual. The buyer depends on the seller, and the seller on the buyer. The main concern of many writers of the nineteenth and twentieth centuries was to misrepresent and to distort this obvious state of affairs. The workers, they said, are at the mercy of their employers. Now it is true that the employer has the right to fire the employee, but if he makes use of this right in order to indulge in his whims, he hurts his own interests. It is to his own disadvantage if he discharges a better man in order to hire a less efficient one. The market does not directly prevent anybody from arbitrarily inflicting harm on his fellow citizens. It only puts a penalty upon such conduct. The shopkeeper is free to be rude to his customers, provided he is ready to bear the consequences. The consumers are free to boycott a purveyor, provided they are ready to pay the costs. What impels every man to the utmost exertion in the service of his fellow men, and curbs innate tendencies toward arbitrariness and malice, is, in the market, not compulsion and coercion on the part of gendarmes, hangmen, and penal courts. It is self-interest. The member of a contractual society is free because he serves others only in serving himself. What restrains him is only the inevitable natural phenomenon of scarcity. For the rest, he is free in the range of the market.
There is no kind of freedom and liberty other than the kind which the market economy brings about. In a totalitarian, hegemonic society, the only freedom that is left to the individual, because it cannot be denied to him, is the freedom to commit suicide. The state, the social apparatus of coercion and compulsion, is by necessity a hegemonic bond. If government were in a position to expand its power ad libitum, it could abolish the market economy and substitute for it all-round totalitarian socialism. In order to prevent this, it is necessary to curb the power of government. This is the task of all constitutions, bills of rights, and laws. This is the meaning of all the struggles which men have fought for liberty. The detractors of liberty are, in this sense, right in calling it a bourgeois issue, and in blaming the rights guaranteeing liberty for being negative. In the realm of state and government, liberty means restraint imposed upon the exercise of the police power. Liberty and freedom are terms employed for the description of the social conditions of the individual members of a market society in which the power of the indispensable hegemonic bond, the state, is curbed, lest the operation of the market be endangered. In a totalitarian system there is nothing to which the attribute free could be attached but the unlimited arbitrariness of the dictator. There would be no need to dwell upon this obvious fact if the champions of the abolition of liberty had not purposely brought about a semantic confusion. They realized that it was hopeless for them to fight openly and sincerely for restraint and servitude. The notions liberty and freedom had such prestige that no propaganda could shake their popularity. Since time immemorial in the realm of Western civilization, liberty has been considered as the most precious good. What gave to the West its eminence was precisely its concern about liberty, a social ideal foreign to the Oriental peoples. The social philosophy of the Occident is essentially a philosophy of freedom. The main content of the history of Europe and the communities founded by European emigrants and their descendants in other parts of the world was the struggle for liberty. Rugged individualism is the signature of our civilization. No open attack upon the freedom of the individual had any prospect of success. Thus the advocates of totalitarianism chose other tactics. They reversed the meaning of words. They call true or genuine liberty the condition of the individuals under a system in which they have no right other than to obey orders. They call themselves true liberals because they strive after such a social order. They call democracy the Russian methods of dictatorial government. They call the labor union methods of violence and coercion industrial democracy. They call freedom of the press a state of affairs in which only the government is free to publish books and newspapers. They define liberty as the opportunity to do the right things, and, of course, they arrogate to themselves the determination of what is right and what is not. In their eyes, government omnipotence means full liberty. To free the police power from all restraints is the true meaning of their struggle for freedom.
The market economy, say these self-styled liberals, grants liberty only to a parasitic class of exploiters, the bourgeoisie. These scoundrels enjoy the freedom to enslave the masses. The wage earner is not free. He must toil for the sole benefit of his masters, the employers. The capitalists appropriate to themselves what, according to the inalienable rights of man, should belong to the worker. Under socialism, the worker will enjoy freedom and human dignity, because he will no longer have to slave for a capitalist. Socialism means the emancipation of the common man, means freedom for all. It means, moreover, riches for all. These doctrines have been able to triumph because they did not encounter effective rational criticism. Some economists did a brilliant job in unmasking their crass fallacies and contradictions, but the public ignores the teachings of economics. They are too heavy for the readers of tabloids and pulp magazines. The arguments advanced by average politicians and writers against socialism are either silly or irrelevant. It is useless to stand upon an alleged natural right of individuals to own property if other people assert that the foremost natural right is that of income equality. Such disputes can never be settled. It is beside the point to criticize non-essential attendant features of the socialist program. One does not refute socialism by attacking the socialist stand on religion, marriage, birth control, and art. Moreover, in dealing with such matters, the critics of socialism were often in the wrong. Thus, for instance, they were so inept as to turn the disapproval of the Bolshevist persecution of the Russian church into an approbation of this debased, adamantly intolerant church and its superstitious practices. In spite of these serious shortcomings of the defenders of economic freedom, it was impossible to fool all the people all the time about the essential features of socialism. The most fanatical planners were forced to admit that their projects involved the abolition of many freedoms people enjoy under capitalism and pluto-democracy. Pressed hard, they resorted to a new subterfuge. The freedom to be abolished, they emphasize, is merely the spurious economic freedom of the capitalists that harms the common man. Outside the economic sphere, freedom will not only be fully preserved, but considerably expanded. Planning for freedom has lately become the most popular slogan of the champions of totalitarian government and the Russification of all nations. The fallacy of this argument stems from the spurious distinction between two realms of human life and action, entirely separated from one another, namely the economic sphere and the non-economic sphere. With regard to this issue, there is no need to add anything to what has been said in the preceding parts of this book. However, there is another point to be stressed. Freedom, as people enjoyed it in the democratic countries of Western civilization in the years of the old liberalism's triumph, was not a product of constitutions, bills of rights, laws, and statutes. Those documents aimed only at safeguarding liberty and freedom, firmly established by the operation of the market economy against encroachments on the part of officeholders. 
No government and no civil law can guarantee and bring about freedom otherwise than by supporting and defending the fundamental institutions of the market economy. Government means always coercion and compulsion, and is by necessity the opposite of liberty. Government is a guarantor of liberty and is compatible with liberty only if its range is adequately restricted to the preservation of economic freedom. Where there is no market economy, the best-intentioned provisions of constitutions and laws remain a dead letter. The freedom of man under capitalism is an effect of competition. The worker does not depend on the good graces of an employer. If his employer discharges him, he finds another employer. The consumer is not at the mercy of the shopkeeper. He is free to patronize another shop if he likes. Nobody must kiss other people's hands or fear their disfavor. Interpersonal relations are businesslike. The exchange of goods and services is mutual. It is not a favor to sell or to buy. It is a transaction dictated by selfishness on either side. It is true that in his capacity as a producer, every man depends either directly, for example, the entrepreneur, or indirectly, for example, the hired worker, on the demands of the consumers. However, this dependence upon the supremacy of the consumers is not unlimited. If a man has a weighty reason for defying the sovereignty of the consumers, he can try it. There is in the range of the market a very substantial and effective right to resist oppression. Nobody is forced to go into the liquor industry or into a gun factory if his conscience objects. He may have to pay a price for his conviction. There are in this world no ends the attainment of which is gratuitous. But it is left to a man's own decision to choose between a material advantage and the call of what he believes to be his duty. In the market economy, the individual alone is the supreme arbiter in matters of his satisfaction. In the political sphere, resistance to oppression practiced by the established government is the ultima ratio of those oppressed. However illegal and unbearable the oppression, however lofty and noble the motives of the rebels, and however beneficial the consequences of their violent resistance, a revolution is always an illegal act, disintegrating the established order of state and government. It is an essential mark of civil government that it is, in its territory, the only agency which is in a position to resort to measures of violence, or to declare legitimate whatever violence is practiced by other agencies. A revolution is an act of warfare between the citizens. It abolishes the very foundations of legality, and is at best restrained by the questionable international customs concerning belligerency. If victorious, it can afterwards establish a new legal order and a new government. But it can never enact a legal right to resist oppression. Such an impunity granted to people venturing armed resistance to the armed forces of the government is tantamount to anarchy and incompatible with any mode of government. The Constituent Assembly of the First French Revolution was foolish enough to decree such a right, but it was not so foolish as to take its own decree seriously.
Capitalist society has no means of compelling a man to change his occupation or his place of work, other than to reward those complying with the wants of the consumers by higher pay. It is precisely this kind of pressure which many people consider as unbearable, and hope to see abolished under socialism. They are too dull to realize that the only alternative is to convey to the authorities full power to determine in what branch and at what place a man should work. In his capacity as a consumer, man is no less free. He alone decides what is more and what is less important for him. He chooses how to spend his money according to his own will. The substitution of economic planning for the market economy removes all freedom, and leaves to the individual merely the right to obey. The authority directing all economic matters controls all aspects of a man's life and activities. It is the only employer. All labor becomes compulsory labor, because the employee must accept what the chief deigns to offer him. The economic czar determines what and how much of each the consumer may consume. There is no sector of human life in which a decision is left to the individual's value judgments. The authority assigns a definite task to him, trains him for this job, and employs him at the place and in the manner it deems expedient. As soon as the economic freedom which the market economy grants to its members is removed, all political liberties and bills of rights become humbug. Habeas corpus and trial by jury are a sham if, under the pretext of economic expediency, the authority has full power to relegate every citizen it dislikes to the Arctic or to a desert and to assign him hard labor for life. Freedom of the press is a mere blind if the authority controls all printing offices and paper plants and so are all the other rights of men. A man has freedom as far as he shapes his life according to his own plans. A man whose fate is determined by the plans of a superior authority, in which the exclusive power to plan is vested, is not free, in the sense in which this term free was used and understood by all people, until the semantic revolution of our day brought about a confusion of tongues. 7. INEQUALITY OF WEALTH AND INCOME The inequality of individuals with regard to wealth and income is an essential feature of the market economy. The fact that freedom is incompatible with equality of wealth and income has been stressed by many authors. There is no need to enter into an examination of the emotional arguments advanced in these writings. Neither is it necessary to raise the question of whether the renunciation of liberty could in itself guarantee the establishment of equality of wealth and income, and whether or not a society could subsist on the basis of such an equality. Our task is merely to describe the role inequality plays in the framework of the market society. In the market society, direct compulsion and coercion are practiced only for the sake of preventing acts detrimental to social cooperation. For the rest, individuals are not molested by the police power. The law-abiding citizen is free from the interference of jailers and hangmen. 
what pressure is needed to impel an individual to contribute his share to the cooperative effort of production is exercised by the price structure of the market. This pressure is indirect. It puts on each individual's contribution a premium, graduated according to the value which the consumers attach to this contribution. In rewarding the individual's effort according to its value, it leaves to everybody the choice between a more or less complete utilization of his own faculties and abilities. This method can, of course, not eliminate the disadvantages of inherent personal inferiority, but it provides an incentive to everybody to exert his faculties and abilities to the utmost. The only alternative to this financial pressure, as exercised by the market, is direct pressure and compulsion, as exercised by the police power. The authorities must be entrusted with the task of determining the quantity and quality of work that each individual is bound to perform. As individuals are unequal with regard to their abilities, this requires an examination of their personalities on the part of the authorities. The individual becomes an inmate of a penitentiary, as it were, to whom a definite task is assigned. If he fails to achieve what the authorities have ordered him to do, he is liable to punishment. It is important to realize in what the difference consists between direct pressure exercised for the prevention of crime and that exercised for the extortion of a definite performance. In the former case, all that is required from the individual is to avoid a certain mode of conduct, precisely determined by law. As a rule, it is easy to establish whether or not this interdiction has been observed. In the second case, the individual is liable to accomplish a definite task. The law forces him toward an indefinite action, the determination of which is left to the decision of the executive power. The individual is bound to obey whatever the administration orders him to do. Whether or not the command issued by the executive power was adequate to his forces and faculties, and whether or not he has complied with it to the best of his abilities, is extremely difficult to establish. Every citizen is, with regard to all aspects of his personality, and with regard to all manifestations of his conduct, subject to the decisions of the authorities. In the market economy, in a trial before a penal court, the prosecutor is obliged to produce sufficient evidence that the defendant is guilty. But in matters of the performance of compulsory work, it devolves upon the defendant to prove that the task assigned to him was beyond his abilities, or that he has done all that can be expected of him. The administrators combine in their persons the offices of the legislator, the executor of the law, the public prosecutor, and the judge. The defendants are entirely at their mercy. This is what people have in mind when speaking of lack of freedom. No system of the social division of labor can do without a method that makes individuals responsible for their contributions to the joint productive effort. If this responsibility is not brought about by the price structure of the market and the inequality of wealth and income it begets, it must be enforced by the methods of direct compulsion as practiced by the police.
8. Entrepreneurial Profit and Loss Profit, in a broader sense, is the gain derived from action. It is the increase in satisfaction, decrease in uneasiness, brought about. It is the difference between the higher value attached to the result attained and the lower value attached to the sacrifices made for its attainment. It is, in other words, yield minus costs. To make profit is invariably the aim sought by any action. If an action fails to attain the end sought, yield either does not exceed costs or lags behind costs. In the latter case, the outcome means a loss, a decrease in satisfaction. Profit and loss in this original sense are psychic phenomena, and as such not open to measurement, and a mode of expression which could convey to other people precise information concerning their intensity. A man can tell a fellow man that A suits him better than B, but he cannot communicate to another man, except in vague and indistinct terms, how much the satisfaction derived from A exceeds that derived from B. In the market economy, all those things that are bought and sold against money are marked with money prices. In the monetary calculus, profit appears as a surplus of money received over money expended, and loss as a surplus of money expended over money received. Profit and loss can be expressed in definite amounts of money. It is possible to ascertain in terms of money how much an individual has profited or lost. However, this is not a statement about this individual's psychic profit or loss. It is a statement about a social phenomenon, about the individual's contribution to the societal effort as it is appraised by the other members of society. It does not tell us anything about the individual's increase or decrease in satisfaction or happiness. It merely reflects his fellow men's evaluation of his contribution to social cooperation. This evaluation is ultimately determined by the efforts of every member of society to attain the highest possible psychic profit. It is the resultant of the composite effect of all these people's subjective and personal value judgments as manifested in their conduct on the market. But it must not be confused with these value judgments as such. We cannot even think of a state of affairs in which people act without the intention of attaining psychic profit, and in which their actions result neither in psychic profit nor in psychic loss. If an action neither improves nor impairs the state of satisfaction, it still involves a psychic loss, because of the uselessness of the expended psychic effort. The individual concerned would have been better off if he had inertly enjoyed life. In the imaginary construction of an evenly rotating economy, there are neither money profits nor money losses. But every individual derives a psychic profit from his actions, or else he would not act at all. The farmer feeds and milks his cows and sells the milk because he values the things he can buy against the money thus earned more highly than the costs expended. 
The absence of money profits or losses in such an evenly rotating system is due to the fact that if we disregard the differences brought about by the higher valuation of present goods as compared with future goods, the sum of the prices of all complementary factors needed for production precisely equals the price of the product. In the changing world of reality, differences between the sum of the prices of the complementary factors of production and the prices of the products emerge again and again. It is these differences that bring about money profits and money losses. As far as such changes affect the sellers of labor and those of the original nature-given factors of production and of the capitalists as moneylenders, we will deal with them later. At this point, we are dealing with entrepreneurial profit and loss. It is this problem that people have in mind when employing the terms profit and loss in mundane speech. Like every acting man, the entrepreneur is always a speculator. He deals with the uncertain conditions of the future. His success or failure depends on the correctness of his anticipation of uncertain events. If he fails in his understanding of things to come, he is doomed. The only source from which an entrepreneur's profits stem is his ability to anticipate better than other people the future demand of the consumers. If everybody is correct in anticipating the future state of the market of a certain commodity, its price, and the prices of the complementary factors of production concerned, would already today be adjusted to this future state. Neither profit nor loss can emerge for those embarking upon this line of business. The specific entrepreneurial function consists in determining the employment of the factors of production. The entrepreneur is the man who dedicates them to special purposes. In doing so, he is driven solely by the selfish interest in making profits and in acquiring wealth. But he cannot evade the law of the market. He can succeed only by best serving the consumers. His profit depends on the approval of his conduct by the consumers. One must not confuse entrepreneurial profit and loss with other factors affecting the entrepreneur's proceeds. The entrepreneur's technological ability does not affect the specific entrepreneurial profit or loss. As far as his own technological activities contribute to the returns earned and increase his net income, we are confronted with a compensation for work rendered. It is wages paid to the entrepreneur for his labor. Neither does the fact that not every process of production succeeds technologically in bringing about the product expected influence the specific entrepreneurial profit or loss. Such failures are either avoidable or unavoidable. In the first case, they are due to the technologically inefficient conduct of affairs. Then, the losses resulting are to be debited to the entrepreneur's personal insufficiency, that is, either to his lack of technological ability or to his lack of the ability to hire adequate helpers. In the second case, the failures are due to the fact that the present state of technological knowledge prevents us from fully controlling the conditions on which success depends. 
This deficiency may be caused either by incomplete knowledge concerning the conditions of success, or by ignorance of methods for controlling fully some of the known conditions. The price of the factors of production takes into account this unsatisfactory state of our knowledge and technological power. The price of arable land, for instance, takes into full account the fact that there are bad harvests, as it is determined by the anticipated average yield. The fact that the bursting of bottles reduces the output of champagne does not affect entrepreneurial profit and loss. It is merely one of the factors determining the cost of production and the price of champagne. Accidents affecting the process of production, the means of production, or the products while they are still in the hands of the entrepreneur are an item in the bill of production costs. Experience, which conveys to the businessman all other technological knowledge, provides him also with information about the average reduction in the quantity of physical output which such accidents are likely to bring about. By opening contingent reserves, he converts their effects into regular costs of production. With regard to contingencies, the expected incidence of which is too rare and too irregular to be dealt with in this way by individual firms of normal size, concerted action on the part of sufficiently large groups of firms takes care of the matter. The individual firms cooperate under the principle of insurance against damage caused by fire, flood, or other similar contingencies. Then an insurance premium is substituted for an appropriation to a contingency reserve. At any rate, the risks incurred by accidents do not introduce uncertainty into the conduct of the technological processes. If an entrepreneur neglects to deal with them duly, he gives proof of his technical insufficiency. The losses thus incurred are to be debited to bad techniques applied, not to his entrepreneurial function. The elimination of those entrepreneurs who fail to give to their enterprises the adequate degree of technological efficiency, or whose technological ignorance vitiates their cost calculation, is effected on the market in the same way in which those deficient in the performance of the specific entrepreneurial functions are eliminated. It may happen that an entrepreneur is so successful in his specific entrepreneurial function that he can compensate losses caused by his technological failure. It may also happen that an entrepreneur can counterbalance losses due to failure in his entrepreneurial function by the advantages derived from his technological superiority or from the differential rent yielded by the higher productivity of the factors of production he employs. But one must not confuse the various functions which are combined in the conduct of a business unit. The technologically more efficient entrepreneur earns higher wage rates, or quasi-wage rates, than the less efficient, in the same way in which the more efficient worker earns more than the less efficient. The more efficient machine and the more fertile soil produce higher physical returns per unit of costs expended. They yield a differential rent when compared with the less efficient machine and the less fertile soil. 
the higher wage rates and the higher rent are, ceteris paribus, the corollary of higher physical output. But the specific entrepreneurial profits and losses are not produced by the quantity of physical output. They depend on the adjustment of output to the most urgent wants of the consumers. What produces them is the extent to which the entrepreneur has succeeded or failed in anticipating the future, necessarily uncertain, state of the market. The entrepreneur is also jeopardized by political dangers. Government policies, revolutions, and wars can damage or annihilate his enterprise. Such events do not affect him alone, they affect the market economy as such, and all individuals, although not all of them to the same extent. For the individual entrepreneur, they are data which he cannot alter. If he is efficient, he will anticipate them in time. But it is not always possible for him to adjust his operations in such a way as to avoid damage. If the dangers expected concern only a part of the territory which is accessible to his entrepreneurial activities, he can avoid operating in the menaced areas, and can prefer countries in which the danger is less imminent. But if he cannot emigrate, he must stay where he is. If all entrepreneurs were fully convinced that the total victory of Bolshevism was impending, they would nevertheless not abandon their entrepreneurial activities. The expectation of imminent expropriation will impel the capitalists to consume their funds. The entrepreneurs will be forced to adjust their plans to the market situation created by such capital consumption, and the threatened nationalization of their shops and plants. But they will not stop operating. If some entrepreneurs go out of business, others will take their place. Newcomers or old entrepreneurs expanding the size of their enterprises. In the market economy there will always be entrepreneurs. Policies hostile to capitalism may deprive the consumers of the greater part of the benefits they would have reaped from unhampered entrepreneurial activities, but they cannot eliminate the entrepreneurs as such if they do not entirely destroy the market economy. The ultimate source from which entrepreneurial profit and loss are derived is the uncertainty of the future constellation of demand and supply. If all entrepreneurs were to anticipate correctly the future state of the market, there would be neither profits nor losses. The prices of all the factors of production would already today be fully adjusted to tomorrow's prices of the products. In buying the factors of production, the entrepreneur would have to expend, with due allowance for the difference between the prices of present goods and future goods, no less an amount than the buyers will pay him later for the product. An entrepreneur can make a profit only if he anticipates future conditions more correctly than other entrepreneurs. Then he buys the complementary factors of production at prices the sum of which is smaller than the price at which he sells the product. If we want to construct the image of changing economic conditions in which there are neither profits nor losses, we must resort to an unrealizable assumption.
perfect foresight of all future events on the part of all individuals. If those primitive hunters and fishermen to whom it is customary to ascribe the first accumulation of produced factors of production had known in advance all the future vicissitudes of human affairs, and if they and all their descendants until the last day of judgment, equipped with the same omniscience, had appraised all factors of production accordingly, entrepreneurial profits and losses would never have emerged. Entrepreneurial profits and losses are created through the discrepancy between the expected prices and the prices later really fixed on the markets. It is possible to confiscate profits and to transfer them from the individuals to whom they have accrued to other people, but neither profits nor losses can ever disappear from a changing world not populated solely with omniscient people. 9. Entrepreneurial Profits and Losses in a Progressing Economy In the imaginary construction of a stationary economy, the total sum of all entrepreneurs' profits equals the total sum of all entrepreneurs' losses. What one entrepreneur profits is in the total economic system counterbalanced by another entrepreneur's loss. The surplus, which all the consumers together expend for the acquisition of a certain commodity, is counterbalanced by the reduction in their expenditure for the acquisition of other commodities. If we were to apply the faulty concept of a national income, as used in popular speech, we would have to say that no part of national income goes into profits. It is different in a progressing economy. We call a progressing economy an economy in which the per capita quota of capital invested is increasing. In using this term, we do not imply value judgments. We adopt neither the materialistic view that such a progression is good, nor the idealistic view that it is bad, or at least irrelevant, from a higher point of view. Of course, it is a well-known fact that the immense majority of people consider the consequences of progress in this sense as the most desirable state of affairs, and yearn for conditions which can be realized only in a progressing economy. In the stationary economy, the entrepreneurs, in the pursuit of their specific functions, cannot achieve anything other than to withdraw factors of production, provided that they are still convertible, from one line of business in order to employ them in another line, or to direct the restoration of the equivalent of capital goods used up in the course of production processes toward the expansion of certain branches of industry at the expense of other branches. In the progressing economy, the range of entrepreneurial activities includes, moreover, the determination of the employment of the additional capital goods accumulated by new savings. The injection of these additional capital goods is bound to increase the total sum of the income produced, that is, of that supply of consumers' goods which can be consumed without diminishing the capital equipment used in its production, and thereby without impairing the output of future production. 
the increase of income is effected either by an expansion of production without altering the technological methods of production, or by an improvement in technological methods which would not have been feasible under the previous conditions of a less ample supply of capital goods. It is out of this additional wealth that the surplus of the total sum of entrepreneurial profits over the total sum of entrepreneurial losses flows. But it can be easily demonstrated that this surplus can never exhaust the total increase in wealth brought about by economic progress. The laws of the market divide this additional wealth between the entrepreneurs and the suppliers of labor, and those of certain material factors of production, in such a way that the lion's share goes to the non-entrepreneurial groups. First of all, we must realize that entrepreneurial profits are not a lasting phenomenon, but only temporary. There prevails an inherent tendency for profits and losses to disappear. The market is always moving toward the emergence of the final prices and the final state of rest. If new changes in the data were not to interrupt this movement and not to create the need for a new adjustment of production to the altered conditions, the prices of all complementary factors of production would, due allowance being made for time preference, finally equal the price of the product and nothing would be left for profits or losses. In the long run, every increase in productivity benefits exclusively the workers and some groups of the owners of land and of capital goods. In the groups of the owners of capital goods, there are benefited, 1. Those whose saving has increased the quantity of capital goods available, they own this additional wealth, the outcome of their restraint in consuming. 2. The owners of those capital goods already previously existing, which, thanks to the improvement in technological methods of production, are now better utilized than before. Such gains are, of course, temporary only. They are bound to disappear, as they cause a tendency toward an intensified production of the capital goods concerned. On the other hand, the increase in the quantity of capital goods available lowers the marginal productivity of capital. It thus brings about a fall in the prices of the capital goods, and thereby hurts the interests of all those capitalists who did not share at all, or not sufficiently, in the process of saving and the accumulation of the additional supply of capital goods. In the group of the landowners, all those are benefited for whom the new state of affairs results in a higher productivity of their farms, forests, fisheries, mines, and so on. On the other hand, all those are hurt whose property may become submarginal on account of the higher return yielded by the land owned by those benefited. In the group of labor, all derive a lasting gain from the increase in the marginal productivity of labor. But, on the other hand, in the short run, some may suffer disadvantages. These are people who were specialized in the performance of work which becomes obsolete as a result of technological improvement, and are fitted only for jobs in which, in spite of the general rise in wage rates, they earn less than before.
All these changes in the prices of the factors of production begin immediately with the initiation of the entrepreneurial actions designed to adjust the processes of production to the new state of affairs. In dealing with this problem, as with the other problems of changes in the market data, we must guard ourselves against the popular fallacy of drawing a sharp line between short-run and long-run effects. What happens in the short run is precisely the first stages of the chain of successive transformations which tend to bring about the long-run effects. The long-run effect is, in our case, the disappearance of entrepreneurial profits and losses. The short-run effects are the preliminary stages of this process of elimination, which finally, if not interrupted by a further change in the data, would result in the emergence of the evenly rotating economy. It is necessary to comprehend that the very appearance of an excess in the total amount of entrepreneurial profits over the total amount of entrepreneurial losses depends upon the fact that this process of the elimination of entrepreneurial profit and loss begins at the same time as the entrepreneurs begin to adjust the complex of production activities to the changed data. There is never, in the whole sequence of events, an instant in which the advantages derived from the increase in the amount of capital available and from technical improvements benefit the entrepreneurs only. If the wealth and the income of the other strata were to remain unaffected, these people could buy the additional products only by restricting their purchases of other products accordingly. Then the profits of one group of entrepreneurs would exactly equal the losses incurred by other groups. What happens is this. The entrepreneurs embarking upon the utilization of the newly accumulated capital goods and the improved technological methods of production are in need of complementary factors of production. Their demand for these factors is a new additional demand which must raise their prices. Only as far as this rise in prices and wage rates occurs are the consumers in a position to buy the new products without curtailing the purchase of other goods. Only so far can a surplus of the total sum of all entrepreneurial profits over all entrepreneurial losses come into existence. The vehicle of economic progress is the accumulation of additional capital goods by means of saving and improvement in technological methods of production, the execution of which is almost always conditioned by the availability of such new capital. The agents of progress are the promoting entrepreneurs intent upon profiting by means of adjusting the conduct of affairs to the best possible satisfaction of the consumers. In the performance of their projects for the realization of progress, they are bound to share the benefits derived from progress with the workers, and also with a part of the capitalists and landowners, and to increase the portion allotted to these people, step by step, until their own share melts away entirely. From this, it becomes evident that it is absurd to speak of a rate of profit, or a normal rate of profit, or an average rate of profit. 
Profit is not related to or dependent on the amount of capital employed by the entrepreneur. Capital does not beget profit. Profit and loss are entirely determined by the success or failure of the entrepreneur to adjust production to the demand of the consumers. There is nothing normal in profits, and there can never be an equilibrium with regard to them. Profit and loss are, on the contrary, always a phenomenon of a deviation from normalcy, of changes unforeseen by the majority, and of a disequilibrium. They have no place in an imaginary world of normalcy and equilibrium. In a changing economy there prevails always an inherent tendency for profits and losses to disappear. It is only the emergence of new changes which revives them again. Under stationary conditions, the average rate of profits and losses is zero. An excess of the total amount of profits over that of losses is a proof of the fact that there is economic progress and an improvement in the standard of living of all strata of the population. The greater this excess is, the greater is the increment in general prosperity. Many people are utterly unfit to deal with the phenomenon of entrepreneurial profit without indulging in envious resentment. In their eyes, the source of profit is exploitation of the wage earners and the consumers, that is, an unfair reduction in wage rates and a no less unfair increase in the prices of the products. By rights, there should not be any profits at all. Economics is indifferent with regard to such arbitrary value judgments. It is not interested in the problem of whether profits are to be approved or condemned from the point of view of an alleged natural law and of an alleged eternal and immutable code of morality about which personal intuition or divine revelation are supposed to convey precise information. Economics merely establishes the fact that entrepreneurial profits and losses are essential phenomena of the market economy. There cannot be a market economy without them. It is certainly possible for the police to confiscate all profits, but such a policy would by necessity convert the market economy into a senseless chaos. Man has, there is no doubt, the power to destroy many things, and he has made in the course of history ample use of this faculty. He could destroy the market economy, too. If those self-styled moralists were not blinded by their envy, they would not deal with profit without dealing simultaneously with its corollary, loss. They would not pass over in silence the fact that the preliminary conditions of economic improvement are an achievement of those whose saving accumulates the additional capital goods, and of the inventors, and that the utilization of these conditions for the realization of economic improvement is effected by the entrepreneurs. The rest of the people do not contribute to progress but they are benefited by the horn of plenty which other people's activities pour upon them. What has been said about the progressing economy is, mutatis mutandis, to be applied to the conditions of a retrogressing economy, 
that is, an economy in which the per capita quota of capital invested is decreasing. In such an economy, there is an excess in the total sum of entrepreneurial losses over that of profits. People who cannot free themselves from the fallacy of thinking in concepts of collectives and whole groups might raise the question of how, in such a retrogressing economy, there could be any entrepreneurial activity at all. Why should anybody embark upon an enterprise if he knows in advance that mathematically his chance of earning profits are smaller than those of suffering losses? However, this mode of posing the problem is fallacious. Like other people, entrepreneurs do not act as members of a class, but as individuals. No entrepreneur bothers a whit about the fate of the totality of the entrepreneurs. It is irrelevant to the individual entrepreneur what happens to other people whom theories, according to a certain characteristic, assign to the same class they assign him. In the living, perpetually changing market society, there are always profits to be earned by efficient entrepreneurs. The fact that in a retrogressing economy the total amount of losses exceeds the total amount of profits does not deter a man who has confidence in his own superior efficiency. A prospective entrepreneur does not consult the calculus of probability, which is of no avail in the field of understanding. He trusts his own ability to understand future market conditions better than his less gifted fellow men. The entrepreneurial function, the striving of entrepreneurs after profits, is the driving power in the market economy. Profit and loss are the devices by means of which the consumers exercise their supremacy on the market. The behavior of the consumers makes profits and losses appear, and thereby shifts ownership of the means of production from the hands of the less efficient into those of the more efficient. It makes a man the more influential in the direction of business activities, the better he succeeds in serving the consumers. In the absence of profit and loss, the entrepreneurs would not know what the most urgent needs of the consumers are. If some entrepreneurs were to guess it, they would lack the means to adjust production accordingly. Profit-seeking business is subject to the sovereignty of the consumers, while non-profit institutions are sovereign unto themselves and not responsible to the public. Production for profit is necessarily production for use, as profits can only be earned by providing the consumers with those things they most urgently want to use. The moralists and sermonizers' critique of profits misses the point. It is not the fault of the entrepreneurs that the consumers, the people, the common man, prefer liquor to Bibles and detective stories to serious books, and that governments prefer guns to butter. The entrepreneur does not make greater profits in selling bad things than in selling good things. His profits are the greater the better he succeeds in providing the consumers with those things they ask for most intensely. People do not drink intoxicating beverages in order to make the alcohol capital happy, and they do not go to war in order to increase the profits of the merchants of death. 
The existence of the armaments industries is a consequence of the warlike spirit, not its cause. It is not the business of the entrepreneurs to make people substitute sound ideologies for unsound. It rests with the philosophers to change people's ideas and ideals. The entrepreneur serves the consumers as they are today, however wicked and ignorant. We may admire those who abstain from making gains they could reap in producing deadly weapons or hard liquor. However, their laudable conduct is a mere gesture, without any practical effects. Even if all entrepreneurs and capitalists were to follow their example, wars and dipsomania would not disappear. As was the case in the pre-capitalistic ages, governments would produce the weapons in their own arsenals, and drinkers would distill their own liquor. Some observations on the underconsumption bogey and on the purchasing power argument. In speaking of underconsumption, people mean to describe a state of affairs in which a part of the goods produced cannot be consumed, because the people who could consume them are, by their poverty, prevented from buying them. These goods remain unsold, or can be swapped only at prices not covering the cost of production. Hence various disarrangements and disturbances arise, the total complex of which is called economic depression. Now it happens again and again that entrepreneurs err in anticipating the future state of the market. Instead of producing those goods for which the demand of the consumers is most intense, they produce less urgently needed goods or things which cannot be sold at all. These inefficient entrepreneurs suffer losses, while their more efficient competitors, who anticipated the wishes of the consumers, earn profits. The losses of the former group of entrepreneurs are not caused by a general abstention from buying in the part of the public. They are due to the fact that the public prefers to buy other goods. If it were true, as the underconsumption myth implies, that the workers are too poor to buy the products because the entrepreneurs and the capitalists unfairly appropriate to themselves what by rights should go to the wage earners, the state of affairs would not be altered. The exploiters are not supposed to exploit from sheer wantonness. They want, it is insinuated, to increase at the expense of the exploited either their own consumption or their own investments. They do not withdraw their booty from the universe. They spend it either in buying luxuries for their own household or in buying producers' goods for the expansion of their enterprises. Of course, their demand is directed toward goods other than those the wage earners would have bought if the profits had been confiscated and distributed among them. Entrepreneurial errors with regard to the state of the market of various classes of commodities as created by such exploitation are in no way different from any other entrepreneurial shortcomings. Entrepreneurial errors result in losses for the inefficient entrepreneurs, which are counterbalanced by the profits of the efficient entrepreneurs. They make business bad for some groups of industries and good for other groups. They do not bring about a general depression of trade. The underconsumption myth is baseless, self-contradictory balderdash. 
Its reasoning crumbles away as soon as one begins to examine it. It is untenable even if one, for the sake of argument, accepts the exploitation doctrine as correct. The purchasing power argument runs in a slightly different manner. It contends that a rise in wage rates is a prerequisite of the expansion of production. If wage rates do not rise, there is no use for business to increase the quantity and to improve the quality of the goods produced, for the additional products would find no buyers, or only such buyers as restrict their purchases of other goods. What is needed first for the realization of economic progress is to make wage rates rise continually. Government or labor union pressure and compulsion aiming at the enforcement of higher wage rates are the main vehicles of progress. As has been demonstrated, the emergence of an excess in the total sum of entrepreneurial profits over the total sum of entrepreneurial losses is inseparably bound up with the fact that a portion of the benefits derived from the increase in the quantity of capital goods available, and from the improvement of technological procedures, goes to the non-entrepreneurial groups. The rise in the prices of complementary factors of production, first among them wage rates, is neither a concession which the entrepreneurs willy-nilly must make to the rest of the people, nor a clever device of the entrepreneurs in order to make profits. It is an unavoidable and necessary phenomenon in the chain of successive events which the endeavors of the entrepreneurs to make profits by adjusting the supply of the consumer's goods to the new state of affairs are bound to bring about. The same process which results in an excess of entrepreneurial profits over losses causes first, that is, before such an excess appears, the emergence of a tendency toward a rise in wage rates and in the prices of many material factors of production. And it is, again, the same process that would, in the further course of events, make this excess of profits over losses disappear, provided that no further changes, increasing the amount of capital goods available, were to occur. The excess of profits over losses is not a consequence of the rise in the prices of the factors of production. The two phenomena, the rise in the prices of the factors of production and the excess of profits over losses, are both steps in the process of adjustment of production to the increase in the quantity of capital goods and to the technological changes which the entrepreneurial actions actuate. Only to the extent that the other strata of the population are enriched by this adjustment can an excess of profits over losses temporarily come into being. The basic error of the purchasing power argument consists in misconstruing this causal relation. It turns things upside down when considering the rise in wage rates as the force bringing about economic improvement. We will discuss at a later stage of this book the consequences of the attempts of the governments and of organized labor violence to enforce wage rates higher than those determined by a non-hampered market. Here, we must only add one more explanatory remark. When speaking of profits and losses, prices and wage rates, what we have in mind is always real profits and losses 
real prices, and real wage rates. It is the arbitrary interchange of money terms and real terms that has led many people astray. This problem, too, will be dealt with exhaustively in later chapters. Let us incidentally only mention the fact that a rise in real wage rates is compatible with a drop in nominal wage rates. 10. Promoters, Managers, Technicians, and Bureaucrats The entrepreneur hires the technicians, that is, people who have the ability and the skill to perform definite kinds and quantities of work. The class of technicians includes the great inventors, the champions in the field of applied science, the constructors and designers, as well as the performers of the most simple tasks. The entrepreneur joins their ranks as far as he himself takes part in the technical execution of his entrepreneurial plans. The technician contributes his own toil and trouble, but it is the entrepreneur, qua entrepreneur, who directs his labor toward definite goals, and the entrepreneur himself acts as a mandatory, as it were, of the consumers. The entrepreneurs are not omnipresent. They cannot themselves attend to the manifold tasks which are incumbent upon them. Adjustment of production to the best possible supplying of the consumers with the goods they are asking for most urgently does not merely consist in determining the general plan for the utilization of resources. There is, of course, no doubt that this is the main function of the promoter and speculator. But besides the great adjustments, many small adjustments are necessary, too, each of them may seem trifling and of little bearing upon the total result, but the cumulative effect of shortcomings in many of these minor matters can be such as to frustrate entirely the success of a correct solution of the great problems. At any rate, it is certain that every failure to handle the smaller problems results in a squandering of scarce factors of production, and consequently in impairing the best possible satisfaction of the consumers. It is important to conceive in what respects the problem we have in mind differs from the technological tasks of the technicians. The execution of every project upon which the entrepreneur has embarked in making his decision with regard to the general plan of action requires a multiplicity of minute decisions. Each of these decisions must be effected in such a way as to prefer that solution of the problem which, without interfering with the designs of the general plan for the whole project, is the most economical one. It must avoid superfluous costs in the same way as does the general plan. The technician, from his purely technological point of view, either may not see any difference in the alternatives offered by various methods for the solution of such a detail, or may give preference to one of these methods on account of its greater output in physical quantities. But the entrepreneur is actuated by the profit motive. This enjoins upon him the urge to prefer the most economical solution, that is, that solution which avoids employing factors of production whose employment would impair the satisfaction of the more intensely felt wants of the consumers. 
he will prefer among the various methods with regard to which the technicians are neutral, the one the application of which requires the smallest cost. He may reject the technician's suggestion to choose a more costly method, securing a greater physical output, if his calculation shows that the increase in output would not outweigh the increase in cost required. Not only in the great decisions and plans, but no less in the daily decisions of small problems as they turn up in the current conduct of affairs, the entrepreneur must perform his task of adjusting production to the demand of the consumers, as reflected in the prices of the market. Economic calculation as practiced in the market economy, and especially the system of double-entry bookkeeping, make it possible to relieve the entrepreneur of involvement in too much detail. He can devote himself to his great tasks without being entangled in a multitude of trifles beyond any mortal man's range of sight. He can appoint assistants to whose solicitude he entrusts the care of subordinate entrepreneurial duties and these assistants, in their turn, can be aided according to the same principle by assistants appointed for a smaller sphere of duties. In this way, a whole managerial hierarchy can be built up. A manager is a junior partner of the entrepreneur, as it were, no matter what the contractual and financial terms of his employment are. The only relevant thing is that his own financial interests force him to attend to the best of his abilities to the entrepreneurial functions which are assigned to him within a limited and precisely determined sphere of action. It is the system of double-entry bookkeeping that makes the functioning of the managerial system possible. Thanks to it, the entrepreneur is in a position to separate the calculation of each part of his total enterprise in such a way that he can determine the role it plays within his whole enterprise. Thus he can look at each section as if it were a separate entity, and can appraise it according to the share it contributes to the success of the total enterprise. Within this system of business calculation, each section of a firm represents an integral entity, a hypothetical independent business, as it were. It is assumed that this section owns a definite part of the whole capital employed in the enterprise, that it buys from other sections and sells to them, that it has its own expenses and its own revenues that its dealings result either in a profit or in a loss, which is imputed to its own conduct of affairs as distinguished from the result of the other sections. Thus the entrepreneur can assign to each section's management a great deal of independence. The only directive he gives to a man whom he entrusts with the management of a circumscribed job is to make as much profit as possible. An examination of the accounts shows how successful or unsuccessful the managers were in executing this directive. Every manager and sub-manager is responsible for the working of his section or subsection. It is to his credit if the accounts show a profit, and it is to his disadvantage if they show a loss. His own interests impel him toward the utmost care and exertion in the conduct of his section's affairs. If he incurs losses, he will be replaced by a man whom the entrepreneur expects to be more successful, 
or the whole section will be discontinued. At any rate, the manager will lose his job. If he succeeds in making profits, his income will be increased, or at least he will not be in danger of losing it. Whether or not a manager is entitled to a share in the profit imputed to his section is not important with regard to the personal interest he takes in the results of his section's dealings. His welfare is, at any rate, closely connected with that of his section. His task is not like that of the technician, to perform a definite piece of work according to a definite precept. It is to adjust, within the limited scope left to his discretion, the operation of his section to the state of the market. Of course, just as an entrepreneur may combine in his person entrepreneurial functions and those of a technician, such a union of various functions can also occur with a manager. The managerial function is always subservient to the entrepreneurial function. It can relieve the entrepreneur of a part of his minor duties. It can never evolve into a substitute for entrepreneurship. The fallacy to the contrary is due to the error confusing the category of entrepreneurship, as it is defined in the imaginary construction of functional distribution, with conditions in a living and operating market economy. The function of the entrepreneur cannot be separated from the direction of the employment of factors of production for the accomplishment of definite tasks. The entrepreneur controls the factors of production. It is this control that brings him either entrepreneurial profit or loss. It is possible to reward the manager by paying for his services in proportion to the contribution of his section to the profit earned by the entrepreneur. But this is of no avail. As has been pointed out, the manager is, under any circumstances, interested in the success of that part of the business which is entrusted to his care. But the manager cannot be made answerable for the losses incurred. These losses are suffered by the owners of the capital employed. They cannot be shifted to the manager. Society can freely leave the care for the best possible employment of capital goods to their owners. In embarking upon definite projects, these owners expose their own property, wealth, and social position. They are even more interested in the success of their entrepreneurial activities than is society as a whole. For society as a whole, the squandering of capital invested in a definite project means only the loss of a small part of its total funds. For the owner, it means much more, for the most part, the loss of his total fortune. But if a manager is given a completely free hand, things are different. He speculates in risking other people's money. He sees the prospects of an uncertain enterprise from another angle than that of the man who is answerable for the losses. It is precisely when he is rewarded by a share of the profits that he becomes foolhardy, because he does not share in the losses, too. The illusion that management is the totality of entrepreneurial activities, and that management is a perfect substitute for entrepreneurship, is the outgrowth of a misinterpretation of the conditions of the corporations, the typical form of present-day business. 
It is asserted that the corporation is operated by the salaried managers, while the shareholders are merely passive spectators. All the powers are concentrated in the hands of hired employees. The shareholders are idle and useless. They harvest what the managers have sown. This doctrine disregards entirely the role that the capital and money market, the stock and bond exchange, which a pertinent idiom simply calls the market, plays in the direction of corporate business. The dealings of this market are branded by popular anti-capitalistic bias as a hazardous game, as mere gambling. In fact, the changes in the prices of common and preferred stock and of corporate bonds are the means applied by the capitalists for the supreme control of the flow of capital. The price structure as determined by the speculations on the capital and money markets and on the big commodity exchanges not only decides how much capital is available for the conduct of each corporation's business, it creates a state of affairs to which the managers must adjust their operations in detail. The general direction of a corporation's conduct of business is exercised by the stockholders and their elected mandatories, the directors. The directors appoint and discharge the managers. In smaller companies, and sometimes even in bigger ones, the offices of the directors and the managers are often combined in the same persons. A successful corporation is ultimately never controlled by hired managers. The emergence of an omnipotent managerial class is not a phenomenon of the unhampered market economy. It was, on the contrary, an outgrowth of the interventionist policies consciously aiming at an elimination of the influence of the shareholders and at their virtual expropriation. In Germany, Italy, and Austria, it was a preliminary step on the way toward the substitution of government control of business for free enterprise, as has been the case in Great Britain with regard to the Bank of England and the railroads. Similar tendencies are prevalent in the American public utilities. The marvelous achievements of corporate business were not a result of the activities of a salaried managerial oligarchy. They were accomplished by people who were connected with the corporation by means of the ownership of a considerable part, or of the greater part, of its stock, and whom part of the public scorned as promoters and profiteers. The entrepreneur determines alone, without any managerial interference, in what lines of business to employ capital, and how much capital to employ. He determines the expansion and contraction of the size of the total business and its main sections. He determines the enterprise's financial structure. These are the essential decisions which are instrumental in the conduct of business. They always fall upon the entrepreneur, in corporations as well as in other types of a firm's legal structure. Any assistance given to the entrepreneur in this regard is of ancillary character only. He takes information about the past state of affairs from experts in the fields of law, statistics, and technology, but the final decision implying a judgment about the future state of the market rests with him alone. The execution of the details of his projects may then be entrusted to managers. 
The social functions of the managerial elite are no less indispensable for the operation of the market economy than are the functions of the elite of inventors, technologists, engineers, designers, scientists, and experimenters. In the ranks of the managers, many of the most eminent men serve the cause of economic progress. Successful managers are remunerated by high salaries, and often by a share in the enterprise's gross profits. Many of them, in the course of their careers, become themselves capitalists and entrepreneurs. Nonetheless, the managerial function is different from the entrepreneurial function. It is a serious mistake to identify entrepreneurship with management, as in the popular antithesis of management and labor. This confusion is, of course, intentional. It is designed to obscure the fact that the functions of entrepreneurship are entirely different from those of the managers attending to the minor details of the conduct of business. The structure of business, the allocation of capital to the various branches of production and firms, the size and the line of operation of each plant and shop are considered as given facts, and it is implied that no further changes will be effected with regard to them. The only task is to go on in the old routine. In such a stationary world, of course, there is no need for innovators and promoters. The total amount of profits is counterbalanced by the total amount of losses. To explode the fallacies of this doctrine, it is enough to compare the structure of American business in 1945 with that of 1915. But even in a stationary world, it would be nonsensical to give labor, as a popular slogan demands, a share in management. The realization of such a postulate would result in syndicalism. There is, furthermore, a readiness to confuse the manager with a bureaucrat. Bureaucratic management, as distinguished from profit management, is the method applied in the conduct of administrative affairs, the result of which has no cash value on the market. The successful performance of the duties entrusted to the care of a police department is of the greatest importance for the preservation of social cooperation and benefits each member of society, but it has no price on the market. It cannot be bought or sold. It can, therefore, not be confronted with the expenses incurred in the endeavors to secure it. It results in gains, but these gains are not reflected in profits liable to expression in terms of money. The methods of economic calculation, and especially those of double-entry bookkeeping, are not applicable to them. Success or failure of a police department's activities cannot be ascertained according to the arithmetical procedures of profit-seeking business. No accountant can establish whether or not a police department or one of its subdivisions has succeeded. The amount of money to be expended in every branch of profit-seeking business is determined by the behavior of the consumers. If the automobile industry were to treble the capital employed, it would certainly improve the services it renders to the public. There would be more cars available. But this expansion of the industry would withhold capital from other branches of production, in which it could fill more urgent wants of the consumers. 
This fact would render the expansion of the automobile industry unprofitable and increase profits in other branches of business. In their endeavors to strive after the highest profit obtainable, entrepreneurs are forced to allocate to each branch of business only as much capital as can be employed in it without impairing the satisfaction of more urgent wants of the consumers. Thus the entrepreneurial activities are automatically, as it were, directed by the consumer's wishes as they are reflected in the price structure of consumers' goods. No such limitation is enjoined upon the allocation of funds for the performance of the tasks incumbent upon government activities. There is no doubt that the services rendered by the police department of the city of New York could be considerably improved by trebling the budgetary allocation. But the question is whether or not this improvement would be considerable enough to justify either the restriction of the services rendered by other departments, for example, those of the Department of Sanitation, or the restriction of the private consumption of the taxpayers. This question cannot be answered by the accounts of the police department. These accounts provide information only about the expenses incurred. They cannot provide any information about the results obtained, as these results cannot be expressed in money equivalents. The citizens must directly determine the amount of services they want to get and are ready to pay for. They discharge this task by electing councilmen and officeholders who are prepared to comply with their intentions. Thus the mayor and the chiefs of the city's various departments are restricted by the budget. They are not free to act upon what they themselves consider the most beneficial solution of the various problems the citizenry has to face. They are bound to spend the funds allocated for the purposes the budget has assigned them. They must not use them for other tasks. Auditing in the field of public administration is entirely different from that in the field of profit-seeking business. Its goal is to establish whether or not the funds allocated have been expended in strict compliance with the provisions of the budget. In profit-seeking business, the discretion of the managers and sub-managers is restricted by considerations of profit and loss. The profit motive is the only directive needed to make them subservient to the wishes of the consumers. There is no need to restrict their discretion by minute instructions and rules. If they are efficient, such meddling with details would at best be superfluous, if not pernicious in tying their hands. If they are inefficient, it would not render their activities more successful. It would only provide them with a lame excuse that the failure was caused by inappropriate rules. The only instruction required is self-understood and does not need to be especially mentioned. Seek Profit Things are different in public administration, in the conduct of government affairs. In this field, the discretion of the office holders and their subaltern aides is not restricted by considerations of profit and loss. If their supreme boss, no matter whether he is the sovereign people or a sovereign despot, were to leave them a free hand, he would renounce his own supremacy in their favor. 
these officers would become irresponsible agents, and their power would supersede that of the people or the despot. They would do what pleased them, not what their bosses wanted them to do. To prevent this outcome, and to make them subservient to the will of their bosses, it is necessary to give them detailed instructions regulating their conduct of affairs in every respect. Then it becomes their duty to handle all affairs in strict compliance with these rules and regulations. Their freedom to adjust their acts to what seems to them the most appropriate solution of a concrete problem is limited by these norms. They are bureaucrats, that is, men who in every instance must observe a set of inflexible regulations. Bureaucratic conduct of affairs is conduct bound to comply with detailed rules and regulations fixed by the authority of a superior body. It is the only alternative to profit management. Profit management is inapplicable in the pursuit of affairs which have no cash value on the market, and in the non-profit conduct of affairs which could also be operated on a profit basis. The former is the case of the administration of the social apparatus of coercion and compulsion. The latter is the case in the conduct of an institution on a non-profit basis, for example, a school, a hospital, or a postal system. Whenever the operation of a system is not directed by the profit motive, it must be directed by bureaucratic rules. Bureaucratic conduct of affairs is, as such, not an evil. It is the only appropriate method of handling governmental affairs, that is, the social apparatus of compulsion and coercion. As government is necessary, bureaucratism is, in this field, no less necessary. Where economic calculation is unfeasible, bureaucratic methods are indispensable. A socialist government must apply them to all affairs. No business, whatever its size or specific task, can ever become bureaucratic so long as it is entirely and solely operated on a profit basis. But as soon as it abandons profit-seeking and substitutes for it what is called the service principle, that is, the rendering of services without regard as to whether or not the prices to be obtained for them cover the expenses, it must adopt bureaucratic methods for those of entrepreneurial management. 11. The Selective Process the selective process of the market is actuated by the composite effort of all members of the market economy. Driven by the urge to remove his own uneasiness as much as possible, each individual is intent, on the one hand, upon attaining that position in which he can contribute most to the best satisfaction of everyone else and, on the other hand, upon taking best advantage of the services offered by everyone else. This means that he tries to sell on the dearest market and to buy on the cheapest market. The resultant of these endeavors is not only the price structure, but no less the social structure, the assignment of definite tasks to the various individuals. The market makes people rich or poor, determines who shall run the big plants and who shall scrub the floors, fixes how many people shall work in the copper mines and how many in the symphony orchestras. None of these decisions is made once and for all. They are revocable every day, 
The selective process never stops. It goes on adjusting the social apparatus of production to the changes in demand and supply. It reviews again and again its previous decisions and forces everybody to submit to a new examination of his case. There is no security and no such thing as a right to preserve any position acquired in the past. Nobody is exempt from the law of the market, the consumer's sovereignty. Ownership of the means of production is not a privilege, but a social liability. Capitalists and landowners are compelled to employ their property for the best possible satisfaction of the consumers. If they are slow and inept in the performance of their duties, they are penalized by losses. If they do not learn the lesson and do not reform their conduct of affairs, they lose their wealth. No investment is safe forever. He who does not use his property in serving the consumers in the most efficient way is doomed to failure. There is no room left for people who would like to enjoy their fortunes in idleness and thoughtlessness. The proprietor must aim to invest his funds in such a way that principle and yield are at least not impaired. In the ages of caste privileges and trade barriers, there were revenues not dependent on the market. Princes and lords lived at the expense of the humble slaves and serfs who owed them tithes, statute labor, and tributes. Ownership of land could only be acquired either by conquest or by largesse on the part of a conqueror. It could be forfeited only by recantation on the part of the donor, or by conquest on the part of another conqueror. Even later, when the lords and their liegemen began to sell their surpluses on the market, they could not be ousted by the competition of more efficient people. Competition was free only within very narrow limits. The acquisition of manorial estates was reserved to the nobility that of urban real property to the citizens of the township, that of farmland to the peasants. Competition in the arts and crafts was restricted by the guilds. The consumers were not in a position to satisfy their wants in the cheapest way, as price control made underbidding impossible to the sellers. The buyers were at the mercy of their purveyors, if the privileged producers refused to resort to the employment of the most adequate raw materials and of the most efficient methods of processing, the consumers were forced to endure the consequences of such stubbornness and conservatism. The landowner who lives in perfect self-sufficiency from the fruits of his own farming is independent of the market. But the modern farmer who buys equipment, fertilizers, seed, labor, and other factors of production, and sells agricultural products, is subject to the law of the market. His income depends on the consumers, and he must adjust his operations to their wishes. The selective function of the market works also with regard to labor. The worker is attracted by that kind of work in which he can expect to earn most. As is the case with material factors of production, the factor labor, too, is allocated to those employments in which it best serves the consumers. There prevails the tendency not to waste any quantity of labor for the satisfaction of less urgent demand, if more urgent demand is still unsatisfied. 
Like all other strata of society, the worker is subject to the supremacy of the consumers. If he disobeys, he is penalized by a cut in income. The selection of the market does not establish social orders, castes, or classes in the Marxian sense, nor do the entrepreneurs and promoters form an integrated social class. Each individual is free to become a promoter if he relies upon his own ability to anticipate future market conditions better than his fellow citizens, and if his attempts to act at his own peril and on his own responsibility are approved by the consumers. One enters the ranks of the promoters by aggressively pushing forward and thus submitting to the trial to which the market subjects, without respect for persons, everybody who wants to become a promoter or to remain in this eminent position. Everybody has the opportunity to take his chance. A newcomer does not need to wait for an invitation or encouragement from anyone. He must leap forward on his own account, and must himself know how to provide the means needed. It has been contended again and again that under the conditions of late or mature capitalism, it is no longer possible for penniless people to climb the ladder to wealth and entrepreneurial position. No attempt has ever been made to prove this thesis. Since it was first advanced, the composition of the entrepreneurial and capitalist groups has changed considerably. A great part of the former entrepreneurs and their heirs have been eliminated, and other people, newcomers, have taken their places. It is, of course, true that in the last years institutions have been purposely developed, which, if not abolished very soon, will make the functioning of the market in every regard impossible. The point of view from which the consumers choose the captains of industry and business is exclusively their qualification to adjust production to the needs of the consumers. They do not bother about other features and merits. They want a shoe manufacturer to fabricate good and cheap shoes. They are not intent upon entrusting the conduct of the shoe trade to handsome, amiable boys, to people of good drawing-room manners, of artistic gifts, of scholarly habits, or of any other virtues or talents. A proficient businessman may often be deficient in many accomplishments, which contribute to the success of a man in other spheres of life. It is quite common nowadays to deprecate the capitalists and entrepreneurs. A man is prone to sneer at those who are more prosperous than himself. These people, he contends, are richer only because they are less scrupulous than he. If he were not restrained by due consideration for the laws of morality and decency, he would be no less successful than they are. Thus men glory in the aureole of self-complacency and pharisaic self-righteousness. Now it is true that under the conditions brought about by interventionism, many people can acquire wealth by graft and bribery. In many countries interventionism has so undermined the supremacy of the market that it is more advantageous for a businessman to rely upon the aid of those in political office than upon the best satisfaction of the needs of the consumers. But it is not this that the popular critics of other people's wealth have in mind. 
They contend that the methods by which wealth is acquired in a pure market society are objectionable from the ethical point of view. Against such statements, it is necessary to emphasize that, so far as the operation of the market is not sabotaged by the interference of governments and other factors of coercion, success in business is the proof of services rendered to the consumers. The poor man need not be inferior to the prosperous businessman in other regards. He may sometimes be outstanding in scientific, literary, and artistic achievements, or in civic leadership. But in the social system of production, he is inferior. The creative genius may be right in his disdain for commercial success. It may be true that he would have been prosperous in business if he had not preferred other things. But the clerks and workers who boast of their moral superiority deceive themselves and find consolation in this self-deception. They do not admit that they have been tried and found wanting by their fellow citizens, the consumers. It is often asserted that the poor man's failure in the competition of the market is caused by his lack of education. Equality of opportunity, it is said, could be provided only by making education at every level accessible to all. There prevails today the tendency to reduce all differences among various peoples to their education, and to deny the existence of inborn inequalities in intellect, willpower, and character. It is not generally realized that education can never be more than indoctrination with theories and ideas already developed. Education, whatever benefits it may confer, is transmission of traditional doctrines and valuations. It is, by necessity, conservative. It produces imitation and routine, not improvement and progress. Innovators and creative geniuses cannot be reared in schools. They are precisely the men who defy what the school has taught them. In order to succeed in business, a man does not need a degree from a school of business administration. These schools train the subalterns for routine jobs. They certainly do not train entrepreneurs. An entrepreneur cannot be trained. A man becomes an entrepreneur in seizing an opportunity and filling the gap. No special education is required for such a display of keen judgment, foresight, and energy. The most successful businessmen were often uneducated when measured by the scholastic standards of the teaching profession. But they were equal to their social function of adjusting production to the most urgent demand. Because of these merits... The consumers chose them for business leadership. 12. The Individual and the Market It is customary to speak metaphorically of the automatic and anonymous forces actuating the mechanism of the market. In employing such metaphors, people are ready to disregard the fact that the only factors directing the market and the determination of prices are purposive acts of men. There is no automatism. There are only men, consciously and deliberately aiming at ends chosen. There are no mysterious mechanical forces. There is only the human will to remove uneasiness. There is no anonymity. There is I, and you, and Bill, and Joe, and all the rest. 
and each of us is both a producer and a consumer. The market is a social body. It is the foremost social body. The market phenomena are social phenomena. They are the resultant of each individual's active contribution. But they are different from each such contribution. They appear to the individual as something given which he himself cannot alter. He does not always see that he himself is a part, although a small part, of the complex of elements determining each momentary state of the market. Because he fails to realize this fact, he feels himself free, in criticizing the market phenomena, to condemn with regard to his fellow men a mode of conduct which he considers as quite right with regard to himself. He blames the market for its callousness and disregard of persons, and asks for social control of the market in order to humanize it. He asks, on the one hand, for measures to protect the consumer against the producers. But, on the other hand, he insists even more passionately upon the necessity of protecting himself as a producer against the consumers. The outcome of these contradictory demands is the modern methods of government interference, whose most outstanding examples were the Sozialpolitik of Imperial Germany and the American New Deal. It is an old fallacy that it is a legitimate task of civil government to protect the less efficient producer against the competition of the more efficient. One asks for a producer's policy as distinct from a consumer's policy. While flamboyantly repeating the truism that the only aim of production is to provide ample supplies for consumption, People emphasize with no less eloquence that the industrious producer should be protected against the idle consumer. However, producers and consumers are identical. Production and consumption are different stages in acting. Catalactics embodies these differences in speaking of producers and consumers, but in reality they are the same people. It is, of course, possible to protect a less efficient producer against the competition of more efficient fellows. Such a privilege conveys to the privileged the benefits which the unhampered market provides only to those who succeed in best filling the wants of the consumers. But it necessarily impairs the satisfaction of the consumers. If only one producer or a small group is privileged, the beneficiaries enjoy an advantage at the expense of the rest of the people. But if all producers are privileged to the same extent, everybody loses in his capacity as consumer as much as he gains in his capacity as a producer. Moreover, all are injured because the supply of products drops if the most efficient men are prevented from employing their skill in that field in which they could render the best services to the consumers. If a consumer believes that it is expedient or right to pay a higher price for domestic cereals than for cereals imported from abroad, or for manufacturers processed in plants operated by small business or employing unionized workers than for those of another provenance, he is free to do so. He would only have to satisfy himself that the commodity offered for sale meets the conditions upon which he makes the allowance of a higher price depend.
Laws which forbid counterfeiting of labels of origin and trademarks would succeed in attaining the ends aimed at by tariffs, labor legislation, and privileges granted to small business. But it is beyond doubt that the consumers are not prepared to act in this way. The fact that a commodity is marked as imported does not impair its saleability if it is better or cheaper or both. As a rule, the buyers want to buy as cheaply as possible without regard for the origin of the article or some particular characteristics of the producers. The psychological root of the producer's policy as practiced today in all parts of the world is to be seen in spurious economic doctrines. These doctrines flatly deny that the privileges granted to less efficient producers burden the consumer. Their advocates contend that such measures are prejudicial only to those against whom they discriminate. When, pressed further, they are forced to admit that the consumers are damaged too, they maintain that the losses of the consumers are more than compensated by an increase in their money income, which the measures in question are bound to bring about. Thus, in the predominantly industrial countries of Europe, the protectionists were first eager to declare that the tariff on agricultural products hurts exclusively the interests of the farmers of the predominantly agricultural countries and of the grain dealers. It is certain that these exporting interests are damaged, too, but it is no less certain that the consumers of the country that adopts the tariff policy are losing with them. They must pay higher prices for their food. Of course, the protectionist retorts that this is not a burden. For, he argues, the additional amount that the domestic consumer pays increases the farmer's income and their purchasing power. They will spend the whole surplus in buying more of the products manufactured by the non-agricultural strata of the population. This paralogism can easily be exploded by referring to the well-known anecdote of the man who asks an innkeeper for a gift of ten dollars. It will not cost him anything, because the beggar promises to spend the whole amount in his inn. But for all that, the protectionist fallacy got hold of public opinion, and this alone explains the popularity of the measures inspired by it. Many people simply do not realize that the only effect of protection is to divert production from those places in which it could produce more per unit of capital and labor expended to places in which it produces less. It makes people poorer, not more prosperous. The ultimate foundation of modern protectionism and of the striving for economic autarky of each country is to be found in this mistaken belief that they are the best means to make every citizen, or at least the immense majority of them, richer. The term riches means in this connection an increase in the individual's real income and an improvement in his standard of living. It is true that the policy of national economic insulation is a necessary corollary of the endeavors to interfere with domestic business, and that it is an outcome of warlike tendencies, as well as one of the factors producing these tendencies. 
but the fact remains that it would never have been possible to sell the idea of protection to the voters if one had not been able to convince them that protection not only does not impair their standard of living, but raises it considerably. It is important to emphasize this fact because it utterly explodes a myth propagated by many popular books. According to these myths, contemporary man is no longer motivated by the desire to improve his material well-being and to raise his standard of living. The assertions of the economists, to the contrary, are mistaken. Modern man gives priority to non-economic or irrational things, and is ready to forego material betterment whenever its attainment stands in the way of those ideal concerns. It is a serious blunder, common mostly with economists and businessmen, to interpret the events of our time from an economic point of view, and to criticize current ideologies with regard to the alleged economic fallacies implied. People long for other things more than a good life. It is hardly possible to misconstrue the history of our age more crassly. Our contemporaries are driven by a fanatical zeal to get more amenities, and by an unrestrained appetite to enjoy life. A characteristic social phenomenon of our day is the pressure group, an alliance of people eager to promote their own material well-being by the employment of all means, legal or illegal, peaceful or violent. For the pressure group, nothing matters but the increase of its members' real income. It is not concerned with any other aspects of life. It does not bother whether or not the realization of its program hurts the vital interests of other men, of their own nation or country, and of the whole of mankind. But, of course, every pressure group is anxious to justify its demands as beneficial to the general public welfare, and to stigmatize its critics as abject scoundrels, idiots, and traitors. In the pursuit of its plans, it displays a quasi-religious ardor. Without exception, all political parties promise their supporters a higher real income. There is no difference in this respect between nationalists and internationalists, and between the supporters of a market economy and the advocates of either socialism or interventionism. If a party asks its supporters to make sacrifices for its cause, it always explains these sacrifices as the necessary temporary means for the attainment of the ultimate goal, the improvement of the material well-being of its members. Each party considers it as an insidious plot against its prestige and its survival if somebody ventures to question the capacity of its projects to make the group members more prosperous. Each party regards with a deadly hatred the economists embarking upon such a critique. All varieties of the producer's policy are advocated on the ground of their alleged ability to raise the party member's standard of living. Protectionism and economic self-sufficiency, labor union pressure and compulsion, labor legislation, minimum wage rates, public spending, credit expansion, subsidies, and other makeshifts are always recommended by their advocates as the most suitable or the only means to increase the real income of the people for whose votes they canvass. 
Every contemporary statesman or politician invariably tells his voters, my program will make you as affluent as conditions may permit, while my adversary's program will bring you want and misery. It is true that some secluded intellectuals in their esoteric circles talk differently. They proclaim the priority of what they call eternal absolute values, and feign in their declamations, not in their personal conduct, a disdain of things secular and transitory. But the public ignores such utterances. The main goal of present-day political action is to secure for the respective pressure group memberships the highest material well-being. The only way for a leader to succeed is to instill in people the conviction that his program best serves the attainment of this goal. What is wrong with the producer's policies is their faulty economics. If one is prepared to indulge in the fashionable tendency to explain human things by resorting to the terminology of psychopathology, one might be tempted to say that modern man, in contrasting a producer's policy with a consumer's policy, has fallen victim to a kind of schizophrenia. He fails to realize that he is an undivided and indivisible person, that is, an individual and as such, no less a consumer than a producer. The unity of his consciousness is split into two parts. His mind is inwardly divided against himself. But it matters little whether or not we adopt this mode of describing the fact that the economic doctrine resulting in these policies is faulty. We are not concerned with the pathological source from which an error may stem, but with the error as such and with its logical roots. The unmasking of the error by means of ratiocination is the primary fact. If a statement were not exposed as logically erroneous, psychopathology would not be in a position to qualify the state of mind from which it stems as pathological. If a man imagines himself to be the king of Siam, the first thing which the psychiatrist has to establish is whether or not he really is what he believes himself to be. Only if this question is answered in the negative can the man be considered insane. It is true that most of our contemporaries are committed to a fallacious interpretation of the producer-consumer nexus, in buying, they behave as if they were connected with the market only as buyers, and vice versa in selling. As buyers, they advocate stern measures to protect them against the sellers, and as sellers, they advocate no less harsh measures against the buyers. But this antisocial conduct, which shakes the very foundations of social cooperation, is not an outgrowth of a pathological state of mind. It is the outcome of a narrow-mindedness which fails to conceive the operation of the market economy and to anticipate the ultimate effects of one's own actions. It is permissible to contend that the immense majority of our contemporaries are mentally and intellectually not adjusted to life in the market society, although they themselves and their fathers have unwittingly created this society by their actions. But this maladjustment consists in nothing else than in the failure to recognize erroneous doctrines as such. 13. Business Propaganda The consumer is not omniscient. 
He does not know where he can obtain at the cheapest price what he is looking for. Very often he does not even know what kind of commodity or service is suitable to remove most efficaciously the particular uneasiness he wants to remove. At best, he is familiar with the market conditions of the immediate past, and arranges his plans on the basis of this information. To convey to him information about the actual state of the market is the task of business propaganda. Business propaganda must be obtrusive and blatant. It is its aim to attract the attention of slow people to rouse latent wishes, to entice men to substitute innovation for inert clinging to traditional routine. In order to succeed, advertising must be adjusted to the mentality of the people courted. It must suit their tastes and speak their idiom. Advertising is shrill, noisy, coarse, puffing, because the public does not react to dignified allusions. It is the bad taste of the public that forces the advertisers to display bad taste in their publicity campaigns. The art of advertising has evolved into a branch of applied psychology, a sister discipline of pedagogy. Like all things designed to suit the taste of the masses, advertising is repellent to people of delicate feeling. This abhorrence influences the appraisal of business propaganda. Advertising and all other methods of business propaganda are condemned as one of the most outrageous outgrowths of unlimited competition. It should be forbidden. The consumers should be instructed by impartial experts. The public schools, the nonpartisan press, and cooperatives should perform this task. The restriction of the right of businessmen to advertise their products would restrict the freedom of the consumers to spend their income according to their own wants and desires. It would make it impossible for them to learn as much as they can and want about the state of the market and the conditions which they may consider as relevant in choosing what to buy and what not to buy. They would no longer be in a position to decide on the basis of the opinion which they themselves have formed about the seller's appraisal of his products. They would be forced to act on the recommendation of other people. It is not unlikely that these mentors would save them some mistakes. But the individual consumers would be under the tutelage of guardians. If advertising is not restricted, the consumers are, by and large, in the position of a jury, which learns about the case by hearing the witnesses and examining directly all other means of evidence. If advertising is restricted, they are in the position of a jury to whom an officer reports about the result of his own examination of evidence. It is a widespread fallacy that skillful advertising can talk the consumers into buying everything that the advertiser wants them to buy. The consumer is, according to this legend, simply defenseless against high-pressure advertising. If this were true, success or failure in business would depend on the mode of advertising only. However, nobody believes that any kind of advertising would have succeeded in making the candle-makers hold the field against the electric bulb, the horse-drivers against the motor-cars, the goose-quill against the steel-pen, and later against the fountain-pen. 
But whoever admits this implies that the quality of the commodity advertised is instrumental in bringing about the success of an advertising campaign. Then there is no reason to maintain that advertising is a method of cheating the gullible public. It is certainly possible for an advertiser to induce a man to try an article which he would not have bought if he had known its qualities beforehand. But as long as advertising is free to all competing firms, the article which is better from the point of view of the consumer's appetites will finally outstrip the less appropriate article, whatever methods of advertising may be applied. The tricks and artifices of advertising are available to the seller of the better product no less than to the seller of the poorer product. But only the former enjoys the advantage derived from the better quality of his product. The effects of advertising of commodities are determined by the fact that, as a rule, the buyer is in a position to form a correct opinion about the usefulness of an article bought. The housewife who has tried a particular brand of soap or canned food learns from experience whether it is good for her to buy and consume that product in the future, too. Therefore, advertising pays the advertiser only if the examination of the first sample bought does not result in the consumer's refusal to buy more of it. It is agreed among businessmen that it does not pay to advertise products other than good ones. Entirely different are conditions in those fields in which experience cannot teach us anything. The statements of religious, metaphysical, and political propaganda can be neither verified nor falsified by experience. With regard to the life beyond and the absolute, any experience is denied to men living in this world. In political matters, experience is always the experience of complex phenomena, which is open to different interpretations. The only yardstick which can be applied to political doctrines is a prioristic reasoning. Thus, political propaganda and business propaganda are essentially different things, although they often resort to the same technical methods. There are many evils for which contemporary technology and therapeutics have no remedy. There are incurable diseases, and there are irreparable personal defects. It is a sad fact that some people try to exploit their fellow men's plight by offering them patent medicines. Such quackeries do not make old people young and ugly girls pretty. They only raise hopes. It would not impair the operation of the market if the authorities were to prevent such advertising, the truth of which cannot be evidenced by the methods of the experimental natural sciences. But whoever is ready to grant to the government this power would be inconsistent if he objected to the demand to submit the statements of churches and sects to the same examination. Freedom is indivisible. As soon as one starts to restrict it, one enters upon a decline on which it is difficult to stop. If one assigns to the government the task of making truth prevail in the advertising of perfumes and toothpaste, one cannot contest it the right to look after truth in the more important matters of religion, philosophy, and social ideology. The idea that business propaganda can force the consumers to submit to the will of the advertisers is spurious. 
Advertising can never succeed in supplanting better or cheaper goods available and offered for sale. The costs incurred by advertising are, from the point of view of the advertiser, a part of the total bill of production costs. A businessman expends money for advertising if and as far as he expects that the increase in sales resulting will increase the total net proceeds. In this regard, there is no difference between the costs of advertising and all other costs of production. An attempt has been made to distinguish between production costs and sales costs. An increase in production costs, it has been said, increases supply, while an increase in sales costs, advertising costs included, increases demand. This is a mistake. All costs of production are expended with the intention of increasing demand. If the manufacturer of candy employs a better raw material, he aims at an increase in demand in the same way as he does in making the wrappings more attractive, and his stores more inviting, and in spending more for advertisements. In increasing production costs per unit of the product, the idea is always to increase demand. If a businessman wants to increase supply, he must increase the total cost of production, which often results in lowering production costs per unit. 14. The Volkswirtschaft The market economy as such does not respect political frontiers. Its field is the world. The term Volkswirtschaft was long applied by the German champions of government omnipotence. Only much later did the British and the French begin to speak of the British economy and l'économie française as distinct from the economies of other nations. But neither the English nor the French language produced an equivalent of the term Volkswirtschaft. With the modern trend toward national planning and national autarky, the doctrine involved in this German word became popular everywhere. Nonetheless, only the German language is able to express in one word all the ideas implied. The Volkswirtschaft is a sovereign nation's total complex of economic activities directed and controlled by the government. It is socialism realized within the political frontiers of each nation. In employing this term, people are fully aware of the fact that real conditions differ from the state of affairs which they deem the only adequate and desirable state. But they judge everything that happens in the market economy from the point of view of their ideal. They assume that there is an irreconcilable conflict between the interests of the Volkswirtschaft and those of the selfish individuals eager to seek profit. They do not hesitate to assign priority to the interests of the Volkswirtschaft over those of the individuals. The righteous citizen should always place the Volkswirtschaftliche interests above his own selfish interests. He should act of his own accord as if he were an officer of the government, executing its orders. Gemeinutz geht vor Eigenutz. The welfare of the nation takes precedence over the selfishness of the individuals, was the fundamental principle of Nazi economic management. But as people are too dull and too vicious to comply with this rule, it is the task of government to enforce it. 
The German princes of the 17th and 18th century, foremost among them the Hohenzollern electors of Brandenburg and kings of Prussia, were fully equal to this task. In the 19th century, even in Germany, the liberal ideologies imported from the West superseded the well-tried and natural policies of nationalism and socialism. However, Bismarck's and his successors, Sozialpolitik, and finally, Nazism, restored them. The interests of a Volkswirtschaft are seen as implacably opposed not only to those of the individuals, but no less to those of the Volkswirtschaft of any foreign nation. The most desirable state of a Volkswirtschaft is complete economic self-sufficiency. A nation which depends on any imports from abroad lacks economic independence. Its sovereignty is only a sham. Therefore, a nation which cannot produce at home all that it needs is bound to conquer all the territories required. To be really sovereign and independent, a nation must have Lebensraum, that is, a territory so large and rich in natural resources that it can live in autarky at a standard no lower than that of any other nation. Thus the idea of the Volkswirtschaft is the most radical denial of all the principles of the market economy. It was this idea that guided, more or less, the economic policies of all nations in the last decades. It was the pursuit of this idea that brought about the terrific wars of our century, and will probably kindle still more pernicious wars in the future. From the early beginnings of human history, the two opposite principles of the market economy and of the Volkswirtschaft fought each other. Government, that is, a social apparatus of coercion and compulsion, is a necessary requisite of peaceful cooperation. The market economy cannot do without a police power, safeguarding its smooth functioning by the threat or the application of violence against peacebreakers. But the indispensable administrators and their armed satellites are always tempted to use their arms for the establishment of their own totalitarian rule. For ambitious kings and generalissimos, the very existence of a sphere of individuals' lives not subject to regimentation is a challenge. Princes, governors, and generals are never spontaneously liberal. They become liberal only when forced to by the citizens. The problems raised by the plans of the socialists and the interventionists will be dealt with in later parts of this book. Here we have only to answer the question of whether or not any of the essential features of the Volkswirtschaft are compatible with the market economy. For the champions of the idea of the Volkswirtschaft do not consider their scheme merely as a pattern for the establishment of a future social order. They declare emphatically that even under the system of the market economy, which of course in their eyes is a debased and vicious product of policies contrary to human nature, the Volkswirtschaften of the various nations are integrated units whose interests are irreconcilably opposed to those of all other nations' Volkswirtschaften. What separates one Volkswirtschaft from all the others is not, as the economists would have us believe, merely political institutions, 
It is not the trade and migration barriers established by government interference with business and the differences in legislation and in the protection granted to the individuals by the courts and tribunals that bring about the distinction between domestic trade and foreign trade. This diversity is, on the contrary, the necessary outcome of the very nature of things, of an inextricable factor. It cannot be removed by any ideology, and produces its effects whether the laws and the administrators and judges are prepared to take notice of it or not. The Volkswirtschaft is a nature-given reality, while the world-embracing ecumenic society of men, the world economy, Weltwirtschaft, is only an imaginary phantom of a spurious doctrine, a plan devised for the destruction of civilization. The truth is that individuals in their acting, in their capacity as producers and consumers, as sellers and buyers, do not make any distinction as between the domestic market and the foreign market. They make a distinction as between local trade and trading with more distant places as far as the costs of transportation play a role. If government interference, such as tariffs, render international transactions more expensive, they take this fact into account in the same way in which they pay regard to shipping costs. A tariff on caviar has no effect other than would arise in the cost of transportation. A rigid prohibition of the importation of caviar produces a state of affairs no different from that which would prevail if caviar could not stand shipping without an essential deterioration in its quality. There has never been in the history of the West such a thing as regional or national autarky. There was, as we may admit, a period in which the division of labor did not go beyond the members of a family household. There was autarky of families and tribes which did not practice interpersonal exchange. But as soon as interpersonal exchange emerged, it crossed the boundaries of the political communities. Barter between the inhabitants of regions more remote from one another, between the members of various tribes, villages, and political communities, preceded the practice of barter between neighbors. What people wanted first to acquire by barter and trade were things they could not produce themselves out of their own resources. Salt, other minerals and metals, the deposits of which are unequally distributed over the earth's surface. Cereals, which one could not grow on the domestic soil, and artifacts which only the inhabitants of some regions were able to manufacture, were the first objects of trade. Trade started as foreign trade. Only later did domestic exchange develop between neighbors. The first holes that opened the closed household economy to interpersonal exchange were made by the products of distant regions. No consumer cared on his own account whether the salt and the metals he bought were of domestic or of foreign provenance. If it had been otherwise, the governments would not have had any reason to interfere by means of tariffs and other barriers to foreign trade. But even if a government succeeds in making the barriers separating its domestic market from foreign markets insurmountable, and thus establishes perfect national autarky, it does not create a Volkswirtschaft. A market economy which is perfectly autarkic remains, for all that, a market economy, 
It forms a closed and isolated catalactic system. The fact that its citizens miss the advantages which they could derive from the international division of labor is simply a datum of their economic conditions. Only if such an isolated country goes outright socialist does it convert its market economy into a Volkswirtschaft. Fascinated by the propaganda of neo-mercantilism, people apply idioms which are in contrast to the principles they take as guides in their acting, and to all the characteristics of the social order in which they are living. Long ago, the British began to call plants and farms located in Great Britain, and even those located in the Dominions, in the East Indies, and in the colonies, ours. But if a man did not just want to make a show of his patriotic zeal and to impress other people, he was not prepared to pay a higher price for the products of his own plants than for those of the foreign plants. Even if he had behaved in this way, the designation of the plants located within the political boundaries of his nation as ours would not be adequate. In what sense could a Londoner, before the nationalization, call coal mines located in England, which he did not own, our mines, and those of the Ruhr, foreign mines? Whether he bought British coal or German coal, he always had to pay the full market price. It is not America that buys champagne from France. It is always an individual American who buys it from an individual Frenchman. As far as there is still some room left for the actions of individuals, as far as there is private ownership and exchange of goods and services between individuals, there is no Volkswirtschaft. Only if full government control is substituted for the choices of individuals does the Volkswirtschaft emerge as a real. Chapter 16. Prices. 1. The Pricing Process. In an occasional act of barter, in which men who ordinarily do not resort to trading with other people exchange goods ordinarily not negotiated, the ratio of exchange is determined only within broad margins. Catalactics, the theory of exchange ratios and prices, cannot determine at what point within these margins the concrete ratio will be established. All that it can assert with regard to such exchanges is that they can be effected only if each party values what he receives more highly than what he gives away. The recurrence of individual acts of exchange generates the market step by step with the evolution of the division of labor within a society based on private property. As it becomes a rule to produce for other people's consumption, the members of society must sell and buy. The multiplication of the acts of exchange and the increase in the number of people offering or asking for the same commodities narrow the margins between the valuations of the parties. Indirect exchange and its perfection through the use of money divide the transactions into two different parts, sale and purchase. What in the eyes of one party is a sale is for the other party a purchase. The divisibility of money, unlimited for all practical purposes, makes it possible to determine the exchange ratios with nicety. The exchange ratios are now, as a rule, money prices. 
they are determined between extremely narrow margins. The valuations on the one hand of the marginal buyer and those of the marginal offerer, who abstains from selling, and the valuations on the other hand of the marginal seller and those of the marginal potential buyer, who abstains from buying. The concatenation of the market is an outcome of the activities of entrepreneurs, promoters, speculators, and dealers in futures and in arbitrage. It has been asserted that catalactics is based on the assumption, contrary to reality, that all parties are provided with perfect knowledge concerning the market data, and are therefore in a position to take best advantage of the most favorable opportunities for buying and selling. It is true that some economists really believe that such an assumption is implied in the theory of prices. These authors not only failed to realize in what respects a world peopled with men perfectly equal in knowledge and foresight would differ from the real world, which all economists wanted to interpret in developing their theories. They also erred in being unaware of the fact that they themselves did not resort to such an assumption in their own treatment of prices. In an economic system in which every actor is in a position to recognize correctly the market situation with the same degree of insight, the adjustment of prices to every change in the data would be achieved at one stroke. It is impossible to imagine such uniformity in the correct cognition and appraisal of changes in data, except by the intercession of superhuman agencies. We would have to assume that every man is approached by an angel, informing him of the change in data which has occurred, and advising him how to adjust his own conduct in the most adequate way to this change. Certainly the market that catalactics deals with is filled with people who are to different degrees aware of the changes in data, and who, even if they have the same information, appraise it differently. The operation of the market reflects the fact that changes in the data are first perceived only by a few people, and that different men draw different conclusions in appraising their effects. The more enterprising and brighter individuals take the lead, others follow later. The shrewder individuals appreciate conditions more correctly than the less intelligent, and therefore succeed better in their actions. Economists must never disregard in their reasoning the fact that the innate and acquired inequality of men differentiates their adjustment to the conditions of their environment. The driving force of the market process is provided neither by the consumers nor by the owners of the means of production, land, capital goods, and labor, but by the promoting and speculating entrepreneurs. These are people intent upon profiting by taking advantage of differences in prices. Quicker of apprehension and farther sighted than other men, they look around for sources of profit. They buy where and when they deem prices too low, and they sell where and when they deem prices too high. They approach the owners of the factors of production, and their competition sends the prices of these factors up to the limit corresponding to their anticipation of the future prices of the products. They approach the consumers, and their competition forces prices of consumers' goods down to the point at which the whole supply can be sold.
Profit-seeking speculation is the driving force of the market, as it is the driving force of production. On the market, agitation never stops. The imaginary construction of an evenly rotating economy has no counterpart in reality. There can never emerge a state of affairs in which the sum of the prices of the complementary factors of production, due allowance being made for time preference, equals the prices of the products, and no further changes are to be expected. There are always profits to be earned by somebody. The speculators are always enticed by the expectation of profit. The imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy is a mental tool for comprehension of entrepreneurial profit and loss. It is, to be sure, not a design for comprehension of the pricing process. The final prices corresponding to this imaginary conception are by no means identical with the market prices. The activities of the entrepreneurs or of any other actors on the economic scene are not guided by consideration of any such things as equilibrium prices and the evenly rotating economy. The entrepreneurs take into account anticipated future prices, not final prices or equilibrium prices. They discover discrepancies between the height of the prices of the complementary factors of production and the anticipated future prices of the products, and they are intent upon taking advantage of such discrepancies. These endeavors of the entrepreneurs would finally result in the emergence of the evenly rotating economy if no further changes in the data were to appear. The operation of the entrepreneurs brings about a tendency toward an equalization of prices for the same goods in all subdivisions of the market, due allowance being made for the cost of transportation and the time absorbed by it. Differences in prices which are not merely transitory and bound to be wiped out by entrepreneurial action are always the outcome of particular obstacles obstructing the inherent tendency toward equalization. Some check prevents profit-seeking business from interfering. An observer not sufficiently familiar with actual commercial conditions is often at a loss to recognize the institutional barriers hindering such equalization. But the merchants concerned always know what makes it impossible for them to take advantage of such differences. Statisticians treat this problem too lightly. When they have discovered differences in the wholesale price of a commodity between two cities or countries, not entirely accounted for by the cost of transportation, tariffs, and excise duties, they acquiesce in asserting that the purchasing power of money and the level of prices are different. Sometimes the difference in price as established by price statistics is apparent only. The price quotations may refer to various qualities of the article concerned, or they may, complying with the local usages of commerce, mean different things. They may, for instance, include or not include packing charges. They may refer to cash payment or to payment at a later date, and so on. On the basis of such statements, people draft programs to remove these differences by monetary measures. However, the root cause of these differences cannot lie in monetary conditions. 
If prices in both countries are quoted in terms of the same kind of money, it is necessary to answer the question as to what prevents businessmen from embarking upon dealings which are bound to make price differences disappear. Things are essentially the same if the prices are expressed in terms of different kinds of money. For the mutual exchange ratio between various kinds of money tends toward a point at which there is no further margin left to profitable exploitation of differences in commodity prices. Whenever differences in commodity prices between various places persist, it is a task for economic history and descriptive economics to establish what institutional barriers hinder the execution of transactions which must result in the equalization of prices. All the prices we know are past prices. They are facts of economic history. In speaking of present prices, we imply that the prices of the immediate future will not differ from those of the immediate past. However, all that is asserted with regard to future prices is merely an outcome of the understanding of future events. The experience of economic history never tells us more than that, at a definite date and definite place, two parties, A and B, traded a definite quantity of the commodity A against a definite number of units of the money P. In speaking of such acts of buying and selling as the market price of A, we are guided by a theoretical insight, deduced from an a prioristic starting point. This is the insight that, in the absence of particular factors making for price differences, the prices paid at the same time and the same place for equal quantities of the same commodity tend toward equalization, namely, a final price. But the actual market prices never reach this final state. The various market prices about which we can get information were determined under different conditions. It is impermissible to confuse averages computed from them with the final prices. Only with regard to fungible commodities negotiated on organized stock or commodity exchanges is it permissible, in comparing prices, to assume that they refer to the same quality. Apart from such prices negotiated in exchanges, and from prices of commodities the homogeneity of which can be precisely established by technological analysis, it is a serious blunder to disregard differences in the quality of the commodity in question. Even in the wholesale trade of raw textiles, the diversity of the articles plays the main role. A comparison of prices of consumers' goods is mainly misleading on account of the difference in quality. The quantity traded in one transaction, too, is relevant in the determination of the price paid per unit. Shares of a corporation sold in one large lot bring a different price than those sold in several small lots. It is necessary to emphasize these facts again and again, because it is customary nowadays to play off the statistical elaboration of price data against the theory of prices. However, the statistics of prices is altogether questionable. Its foundations are precarious because circumstances, for the most part, do not permit the comparison of the various data, 
their linking together in series, and the computation of averages. Full of zeal to embark upon mathematical operations, the statisticians yield to the temptation of disregarding the incomparability of the data available. The information that a certain firm sold at a definite date a definite type of shoes for six dollars a pair relates a fact of economic history. A study of the behavior of shoe prices from 1923 to 1939 is conjectural, however sophisticated the methods applied may be. Catalactics shows that entrepreneurial activities tend toward an abolition of price differences not caused by the costs of transportation and trade barriers. No experience has ever contradicted this theorem. The results obtained by an arbitrary identification of unequal things are irrelevant. 2. Valuation and Appraisement The ultimate source of the determination of prices is the value judgments of the consumers. Prices are the outcome of the valuation preferring A to B. They are social phenomena, as they are brought about by the interplay of the valuations of all individuals participating in the operation of the market. Each individual, in buying or not buying, and in selling or not selling, contributes his share to the formation of the market prices. But the larger the market is, the smaller is the weight of each individual's contribution. Thus, the structure of market prices appears to the individual as a datum to which he must adjust his own conduct. The valuations which result in determination of definite prices are different. Each party attaches a higher value to the good he receives than to that he gives away. The exchange ratio, the price, is not the product of an equality of valuation, but, on the contrary, the product of a discrepancy in valuation. Appraisement must be clearly distinguished from valuation. Appraisement in no way depends upon the subjective valuation of the man who appraises. He is not intent upon establishing the subjective use-value of the good concerned, but upon anticipating the prices which the market will determine. Valuation is a value judgment expressive of a difference in value. Appraisement is the anticipation of an expected fact. It aims at establishing what prices will be paid on the market for a particular commodity, or what amount of money will be required for the purchase of a definite commodity. Valuation and appraisement are, however, closely connected. The valuations of an autarkic husbandman directly compare the weight he attaches to different means for the removal of uneasiness. The valuations of a man buying and selling on the market must not disregard the structure of market prices. They depend upon appraisement. In order to know the meaning of a price, one must know the purchasing power of the amount of money concerned. It is necessary, by and large, to be familiar with the prices of those goods which one would like to acquire, and to form on the ground of such knowledge an opinion about their future prices. If an individual speaks of the costs incurred by the purchase of some goods already acquired, or to be incurred by the purchase of goods he plans to acquire, 
he expresses these costs in terms of money. But this amount of money represents in his eyes the degree of satisfaction he could obtain by employing it for the acquisition of other goods. The valuation makes a detour. It goes via the appraisement of the structure of market prices, but it always aims finally at the comparison of alternative modes for the removal of felt uneasiness. It is ultimately always the subjective value judgments of individuals that determine the formation of prices. Catalactics, in conceiving the pricing process, necessarily reverts to the fundamental category of action, the preference given to A over B. In view of popular errors, it is expedient to emphasize that catalactics deals with the real prices as they are paid in definite transactions, and not with imaginary prices. The concept of final prices is merely a mental tool for the grasp of a particular problem, the emergence of entrepreneurial profit and loss. The concept of a just or fair price is devoid of any scientific meaning. It is a disguise for wishes, a striving for a state of affairs different from reality. Market prices are entirely determined by the value judgments of men as they really act. If one says that prices tend toward a point at which total demand is equal to total supply, one resorts to another mode of expressing the same concatenation of phenomena. Demand and supply are the outcome of the conduct of those buying and selling. If, other things being equal, supply increases, prices must drop. At the previous price, all those ready to pay this price could buy the quantity they wanted to buy. If the supply increases, they must buy larger quantities, or other people who did not buy before must become interested in buying. This can only be attained at a lower price. It is possible to visualize this interaction by drawing two curves, the demand curve and the supply curve, whose intersection shows the price. It is no less possible to express it in mathematical symbols. But it is necessary to comprehend that such pictorial or mathematical modes of representation do not affect the essence of our interpretation, and that they do not add a whit to our insight. Furthermore, it is important to realize that we do not have any knowledge or experience concerning the shape of such curves. Always what we know is only market prices, that is, not the curves, but only a point which we interpret as the intersection of two hypothetical curves. The drawing of such curves may prove expedient in visualizing the problems for undergraduates, for the real tasks of catalactics, they are mere by-play. 3. The Prices of the Goods of Higher Orders The market process is coherent and indivisible. It is an indissoluble intertwinement of actions and reactions, of moves and counter-moves. But the insufficiency of our mental abilities enjoins upon us the necessity of dividing it into parts and analyzing each of these parts separately. 
In resorting to such artificial cleavages, we must never forget that the seemingly autonomous existence of these parts is an imaginary makeshift of our minds. They are only parts. That is, they cannot even be thought of as existing outside the structure of which they are parts. The prices of the goods of higher orders are ultimately determined by the prices of the goods of the first or lowest order, that is, the consumer's goods. As a consequence of this dependence, they are ultimately determined by the subjective valuations of all members of the market society. It is, however, important to realize that we are faced with a connection of prices, not with a connection of valuations. The prices of the complementary factors of production are conditioned by the prices of the consumer's goods. The factors of production are appraised with regard to the prices of the products, and from this appraisement their prices emerge. Not the valuations, but the appraisements, are transferred from the goods of the first order to those of higher orders. The prices of the consumer's goods engender the actions resulting in the determination of the prices of the factors of production. These prices are primarily connected only with the prices of the consumer's goods. With the valuations of the individuals, they are only indirectly connected, namely through the intermediary of the prices of the consumer's goods, the products of their joint employment. The tasks incumbent upon the theory of the prices of factors of production are to be solved by the same methods which are employed for treatment of the prices of consumers' goods. We conceive the operation of the market of consumers' goods in a twofold way. We think, on the one hand, of a state of affairs which leads to acts of exchange. The situation is such that the uneasiness of various individuals can be removed to some extent because various people value the same goods in a different way. On the other hand, we think of a situation in which no further acts of exchange can happen because no actor expects any further improvement of his satisfaction by further acts of exchange. We proceed in the same way in comprehending the formation of the prices of factors of production. The operation of this market is actuated and kept in motion by the exertion of the promoting entrepreneurs, eager to profit from differences in the market prices of the factors of production and the expected prices of the products. The operation of this market would stop if a situation were ever to emerge in which the sum of the prices of the complementary factors of production, but for interest, equaled the prices of the products, and nobody believed that further price changes were to be expected. Thus we have described the process adequately and completely by pointing out positively what actuates it and negatively what would suspend its motion. The main importance is to be attached to the positive description. The negative description resulting in the imaginary constructions of the final price and the evenly rotating economy is merely auxiliary. For the task is not the treatment of imaginary concepts, which never appear in life and action, but the treatment of the market prices at which the goods of higher orders are really bought and sold. This method we owe to Gosen, Karl Menger, and Bumba Werk. 
Its main merit is that it implies the cognition that we are faced with a phenomenon of price determination inextricably linked with the market process. It distinguishes between two things. A. The direct valuation of the factors of production which attaches the value of the product to the total complex of the complementary factors of production and b. the prices of the single factors of production which are formed on the market as the resultant of the concurring actions of competing highest bidders. Valuation as it can be practiced by an isolated actor, Robinson Crusoe or a socialist board of production management, can never result in a determination of such a thing as quotas of value, Valuation can only arrange goods in scales of preference. It can never attach to a good something that could be called a quantity or magnitude of value. It would be absurd to speak of a sum of valuations or values. It is permissible to declare that, due allowance being made for time preference, the value attached to a product is equal to the value of the total complex of complementary factors of production. But it would be nonsensical to assert that the value attached to a product is equal to the sum of the values attached to the various complementary factors of production. One cannot add up values or valuations. One can add up prices expressed in terms of money, but not scales of preference. One cannot divide values or single out quotas of them. A value judgment never consists in anything other than preferring A to B. The process of value imputation does not result in derivation of the value of the single productive agents from the value of their joint product. It does not bring about results which could serve as elements of economic calculation. It is only the market that, in establishing prices for each factor of production, creates the conditions required for economic calculation. Economic calculation always deals with prices, never with values. The market determines prices of factors of production in the same way in which it determines prices of consumers' goods. The market process is an interaction of men deliberately striving after the best possible removal of dissatisfaction. It is impossible to think away or to eliminate from the market process the men actuating its operation. One cannot deal with the market of consumers' goods and disregard the actions of the consumers. One cannot deal with the market of the goods of higher orders while disregarding the actions of the entrepreneurs and the fact that the use of money is essential in their transactions. There is nothing automatic or mechanical in the operation of the market. The entrepreneurs, eager to earn profits, appear as bidders at an auction, as it were, in which the owners of the factors of production put up for sale land, capital goods, and labor. The entrepreneurs are eager to outdo one another by bidding higher prices than their rivals. Their offers are limited, on the one hand, by their anticipation of future prices of the products, and, on the other hand, by the necessity to snatch the factors of production away from the hands of other entrepreneurs competing with them. 
The entrepreneur is the agency that prevents the persistence of a state of production unsuitable to fill the most urgent wants of the consumers in the cheapest way. All people are anxious for the best possible satisfaction of their wants, and are, in this sense, striving after the highest profit they can reap. The mentality of the promoters, speculators, and entrepreneurs is not different from that of their fellow men. They are merely superior to the masses in mental power and energy. They are the leaders on the way toward material progress. They are the first to understand that there is a discrepancy between what is done and what could be done. They guess what the consumers would like to have, and are intent upon providing them with these things. In the pursuit of such plans, they bid higher prices for some factors of production, and lower the prices of other factors of production by restricting their demand for them. In supplying the market with those consumers' goods in the sale of which the highest profits can be earned, they create a tendency toward a fall in their prices. In restricting the output of those consumers' goods, the production of which does not offer chances for reaping profit, they bring about a tendency toward a rise in their prices. All these transformations go on ceaselessly, and could stop only if the unrealizable conditions of the evenly rotating economy and of static equilibrium were to be attained. In drafting their plans, the entrepreneurs look first at the prices of the immediate past, which are mistakenly called present prices. Of course, the entrepreneurs never make these prices enter into their calculations without paying regard to anticipated changes. The prices of the immediate past are for them only the starting point of deliberations leading to forecasts of future prices. The prices of the past do not influence the determination of future prices. It is, on the contrary, the anticipation of future prices of the products that determines the state of prices of the complementary factors of production. The determination of prices has, as far as the mutual exchange ratios between various commodities are concerned, no direct causal relation whatever with the prices of the past. The allocation of the non-convertible factors of production among the various branches of production and the amount of capital goods available for future production are historical magnitudes. In this regard, the past is instrumental in shaping the course of future production and in affecting the prices of the future. But directly, the prices of the factors of production are determined exclusively by the anticipation of future prices of the products. The fact that yesterday people valued and appraised commodities in a different way is irrelevant. The consumers do not care about the investments made with regard to past market conditions and do not bother about the vested interests of entrepreneurs, capitalists, landowners, and workers who may be hurt by changes in the structure of prices. Such sentiments play no role in the formation of prices. It is precisely the fact that the market does not respect vested interests that makes the people concerned ask for government interference. The prices of the past are, for the entrepreneur, the shaper of future production, merely a mental tool. 
The entrepreneurs do not construct afresh every day a radically new structure of prices or allocate anew the factors of production to the various branches of industry. They merely transform what the past has transmitted in better adapting it to the altered conditions. How much of the previous conditions they preserve and how much they change depends on the extent to which the data have changed. The economic process is a continuous interplay of production and consumption. Today's activities are linked with those of the past through the technological knowledge at hand, the amount and the quality of the capital goods available, and the distribution of the ownership of these goods among various individuals. They are linked with the future through the very essence of human action. Action is always directed toward the improvement of future conditions. In order to see his way in the unknown and uncertain future, man has within his reach only two aids, experience of past events and his faculty of understanding. Knowledge about past prices is a part of this experience, and at the same time the starting point of understanding the future. If the memory of all prices of the past were to fade away, the pricing process would become more troublesome, but not impossible, as far as the mutual exchange ratios between various commodities are concerned. It would be harder for the entrepreneurs to adjust production to the demand of the public, but it could be done nonetheless. It would be necessary for them to assemble anew all the data they need as the basis of their operations. They would not avoid mistakes which they now evade on account of experience at their disposal. Price fluctuations would be more violent at the beginning. Factors of production would be wasted. Want satisfaction would be impaired. But, finally, having paid dearly, people would again have acquired the experience needed for a smooth working of the market process. The essential fact is that it is the competition of profit-seeking entrepreneurs that does not tolerate the preservation of false prices of the factors of production. The activities of the entrepreneurs are the element that would bring about the unrealizable state of the evenly rotating economy if no further changes were to occur. In the world-embracing public sale called the market, they are the bidders for the factors of production. In bidding, they are the mandatories of the consumers, as it were. Each entrepreneur represents a different aspect of the consumer's wants, either a different commodity or another way of producing the same commodity. The competition among the entrepreneurs is ultimately a competition among the various possibilities open to men to remove their uneasiness as far as possible by the acquisition of consumers' goods. The decisions of the consumers to buy one commodity and to postpone buying another determine the prices of factors of production required for manufacturing these commodities. The competition between the entrepreneurs reflects the prices of consumers' goods in the formation of the prices of the factors of production. It reflects in the external world the conflict which the inexorable scarcity of the factors of production brings about in the soul of each individual. 
It makes effective the subsumed decisions of the consumers as to what purpose the non-specific factors should be used for, and to what extent the specific factors of production should be used. The pricing process is a social process. It is consummated by an interaction of all members of the society. All collaborate and cooperate, each in the particular role he has chosen for himself in the framework of the division of labor. Competing in cooperation and cooperating in competition, all people are instrumental in bringing about the result, namely the price structure of the market, the allocation of the factors of production to the various lines of want satisfaction, and the determination of the share of each individual. These three events are not three different matters. They are only different aspects of one indivisible phenomenon, which our analytical scrutiny separates into three parts. In the market process, they are accomplished uno actu. Only people prepossessed by socialist leanings, who cannot free themselves from longing glances at socialist methods, speak of three different processes in dealing with the market phenomena, the determination of prices, the direction of productive efforts, and distribution. A Limitation on the Pricing of Factors of Production the process which makes the prices of the factors of production spring from the prices of products can achieve its results only if, of the complementary factors not replaceable by substitutes, not more than one is of absolutely specific character, that is, is not suitable for any other employment. If the production of a product requires two or more absolutely specific factors, only a cumulative price can be assigned to them. If all factors of production were absolutely specific, the pricing process would not achieve more than such cumulative prices. It would accomplish nothing more than statements like this. As combining 3A and 5B produces one unit of P, 3A and 5B together are equal to 1P, and the final price of 3A plus 5B is, due allowance being made for time preference, equal to the final price of 1P. As entrepreneurs who want to use A and B for purposes other than the production of P do not bid for them, a more detailed price determination is impossible. Only if a demand emerges for A or for B on the part of entrepreneurs who want to employ A or B for other purposes does competition between them and the entrepreneurs planning the production of P arise and a price for A, or for B, comes into existence, the height of which determines also the price of B or A. A world in which all the factors of production are absolutely specific could manage its affairs with such cumulative prices. In such a world there would not exist the problem of how to allocate the means of production to various branches of one's satisfaction. In our real world, things are different. There are many scarce means of production which can be employed for various tasks. 
There, the economic problem is to employ these factors in such a way that no unit of them should be used for the satisfaction of a less urgent need, if this employment prevents the satisfaction of a more urgent need. It is this that the market solves in determining the prices of the factors of production. The social service rendered by this solution is not in the least impaired by the fact that for factors which can be employed only cumulatively, no other than cumulative prices are determined. Factors of production which can be used in the same ratio of combination for the production of various commodities, but do not allow of any other use, are to be considered as absolutely specific factors. They are absolutely specific with regard to the production of an intermediary product which can be utilized for various purposes. The price of this intermediary product can be assigned to them cumulatively only. Whether this intermediary product can be directly apperceived by the senses, or whether it is merely the invisible and intangible outcome. 4. Cost Accounting In the calculation of the entrepreneur, costs are the amount of money required for the procurement of the factors of production. The entrepreneur is intent upon embarking upon those business projects from which he expects the highest surplus of proceeds over costs, and upon shunning projects from which he expects a lower amount of profit, or even a loss. In doing this, he adjusts his effort to the best possible satisfaction of the needs of the consumers. The fact that a project is not profitable because costs are higher than proceeds is the outcome of the fact that there is a more useful employment available for the factors of production required. There are other products in the purchase of which the consumers are prepared to allow for the prices of the factors of production required but the consumers are not prepared to pay these prices in buying the commodity the production of which is not profitable. Cost accounting is affected by the fact that the two following conditions are not always present. First, every increase in the quantity of factors expended for the production of a consumer's good increases its power to remove uneasiness. Second, every increase in the quantity of a consumer's good requires a proportional increase in the expenditure of factors of production, or even a more than proportional increase in their expenditure. If both these conditions were always and without any exception fulfilled, every increment Z expended for increasing the quantity M of a commodity G would be employed for the satisfaction of a need viewed as less urgent than the least urgent need already satisfied by the quantity M available previously. At the same time, the increment Z would require the employment of factors of production to be withdrawn from the satisfaction of other needs, considered as more pressing than those needs whose satisfaction was foregone in order to produce the marginal unit of M. On the one hand, the marginal value of the satisfaction derived from the increase in the quantity available of G would drop. 
On the other hand, the costs required for the production of additional quantities of G would increase in marginal disutility. Factors of production would be withheld from employments in which they could satisfy more urgent needs. Production must stop at the point at which the marginal utility of the increment no longer compensates for the marginal increase in the disutility of costs. Now these two conditions are present very often, but not generally without exception. There exist many commodities of all orders of goods whose physical structure is not homogeneous and which are, therefore, not perfectly divisible. It would, of course, be possible to conjure away the deviation from the first condition mentioned above by a sophisticated play on words. One could say, half a motor car is not a motor car. If one adds to half a motor car a quarter of a motor car, one does not increase the quantity available. Only the perfection of the process of production which turns out a complete car produces a unit and an increase in the quantity available. However, such an interpretation misses the point. The problem we must face is that not every increase in expenditure increases proportionately the objective use value, the physical power of a thing to render a definite service. The various increments in expenditure bring about different results. There are increments the expenditure of which remains useless if no further increments of a definite quantity are added. On the other hand, and this is the deviation from the second condition, an increase in physical output does not always require a proportionate increase in expenditure or even any additional expenditure. It may happen that costs do not rise at all, or that their rise increases output more than proportionately. For many means of production are not homogeneous either, and not perfectly divisible. This is the phenomenon known to business as the superiority of big-scale production. The economists speak of the law of increasing returns, or decreasing costs. We consider, as case A, a state of affairs in which all factors of production are not perfectly divisible in such a way that full utilization of the productive services rendered by every further indivisible element of each factor requires full utilization of the further indivisible elements of every other of the complementary factors. Then, in every aggregate of productive agents, each of the assembled elements, every machine, every worker, every piece of raw material, can be fully utilized only if all the productive services of the other elements are fully employed too. Within these limits, the production of a part of the maximum output attainable does not require a higher expenditure than the production of the highest possible output. We may also say that the minimum size aggregate always produces the same quantity of products. It is impossible to produce a smaller quantity of products even if there is no use for a part of it. We consider as case B a state of affairs in which one group of the productive agents, P, is for all practical purposes perfectly divisible. 
On the other hand, the imperfectly divisible agents can be divided in such a way that full utilization of the services rendered by each further indivisible part of one agent requires full utilization of the further indivisible parts of the other imperfectly divisible complementary factors. Then, increasing production of an aggregate of further indivisible factors from a partial to a more complete utilization of their productive capacity requires merely an increase in the quantity of P, the perfectly divisible factors. However, one must guard oneself against the fallacy that this necessarily implies a decrease in the average cost of production. It is true that within the aggregate of imperfectly divisible factors, each of them is now better utilized, that therefore costs of production, as far as they are caused by the cooperation of these factors, remain unchanged, and that the quotas falling to a unit of output are decreasing. But on the other hand, an increase in the employment of the perfectly divisible factors of production can be attained only by withdrawing them from other employments. The value of these other employments increases, other things being equal, with their shrinking. The price of these perfectly divisible factors tends to rise as more of them are used for the better utilization of the productive capacity of the aggregate of the not further divisible factors in question. One must not limit the consideration of our problem to the case in which the additional quantity of P is withdrawn from other enterprises producing the same product in a less efficient way and forces these enterprises to restrict their output. It is obvious that in this case, competition between a more and a less efficient enterprise producing the same article out of the same raw materials, the average cost of production is decreasing in the expanding plant. A more general scrutiny of the problem leads to a different result. If the units of P are withdrawn from other employments in which they would have been utilized for the production of other articles, there emerges a tendency toward an increase in the price of these units. This tendency may be compensated by accidental tendencies operating in the opposite direction. It may sometimes be so feeble that its effects are negligible. But it is always present and potentially influences the configuration of costs. Finally, we consider, as case C, a state of affairs in which the various imperfectly divisible factors of production can be divided only in such a way that, given the conditions of the market, any size which can be chosen for their assemblage in a production aggregate does not allow for a combination in which full utilization of the productive capacity of one factor makes possible full utilization of the productive capacity of the other imperfectly divisible factors. This case C alone is of practical significance, while the cases A and B hardly play any role in real business. The characteristic feature of case C is that the configuration of production costs varies unevenly. If all imperfectly divisible factors are utilized to less than full capacity, 
An expansion of production results in a decrease of average costs of production, unless a rise in the prices to be paid for the perfectly divisible factors counterbalances this outcome. But as soon as full utilization of the capacity of one of the imperfectly divisible factors is attained, further expansion of production causes a sudden sharp rise in costs. Then again, a tendency toward a decrease in average production costs sets in, and goes on working until full utilization of one of the imperfectly divisible factors is attained anew. Other things being equal, the more the production of a certain article increases, the more factors of production must be withdrawn from other employments in which they would have been used for the production of other articles. Hence, other things being equal, average production costs increase with the increase in the quantity produced. But this general law is by sections superseded by the phenomenon that not all factors of production are perfectly divisible, and that, as far as they can be divided, they are not divisible in such a way that full utilization of one of them results in full utilization of the other imperfectly divisible factors. The planning entrepreneur is always faced with the question, to what extent will the anticipated prices of the products exceed the anticipated costs? If the entrepreneur is still free with regard to the project in question, because he has not yet made any inconvertible investments for its realization, it is average costs that count for him. But if he has already a vested interest in the line of business concerned, he sees things from the angle of additional costs to be expended. He who already owns a not fully utilized production aggregate does not take into account average cost of production, but marginal cost. Without regard to the amount already expended for inconvertible investments, he is merely interested in the question whether or not the proceeds from the sale of an additional quantity of products will exceed the additional cost incurred by their production. Even if the whole amount invested in the inconvertible production facilities must be wiped off as a loss, he goes on producing, provided he expects a reasonable surplus of proceeds over current costs. Reasonable means in this connection that the anticipated returns on the convertible capital used for the continuation of production are at least not lower than the anticipated returns on its use for other projects. With regard to popular errors, it is necessary to emphasize that if the conditions required for the appearance of monopoly prices are not present, an entrepreneur is not in a position to increase his net returns by restricting production beyond the amount conforming with consumers' demand. But this problem will be dealt with later in Section 6. That a factor of production is not perfectly divisible does not always mean that it can be constructed and employed in one size only. This, of course, may occur in some cases, but as a rule it is possible to vary the dimensions of these factors. 
If, out of the various dimensions which are possible for such a factor, for example, a machine, one dimension is distinguished by the fact that the costs incurred by its production and operation are rendered lower per unit of the productive services than those for other dimensions, things are essentially identical. Then the superiority of the bigger plant does not consist in the fact that it utilizes a machine to full capacity, while the smaller plant utilizes only a part of the capacity of a machine of the same size. It consists rather in the fact that the bigger plant employs a machine which operates with a better utilization of the factors of production required for its construction and operation than does the smaller machine employed by the smaller plant. The role played in all branches of production by the fact that many factors of production are not perfectly divisible is very great. It is of paramount importance in the course of industrial affairs. But one must guard oneself against many misinterpretations of its significance. One of these errors was the doctrine according to which, in the processing industries, there prevails a law of increasing returns, while in agriculture and mining a law of decreasing returns prevails. The fallacies implied have been exploded above. As far as there is a difference in this regard between conditions in agriculture and those in the processing industries, differences in the data bring them about. The immobility of the soil and the fact that the performance of the various agricultural operations depends on the seasons make it impossible for farmers to take advantage of the capacity of many movable factors of production to the degree which conditions in manufacturing for the most part allow. The optimum size of a production outfit in agricultural production is, as a rule, much smaller than in the processing industries. It is obvious, and does not need any further explanation, why the concentration of farming cannot be pushed to anything near the degree obtaining in the processing industries. However, the inequality in the distribution of natural resources over the Earth's surface which is one of the two factors making for the higher productivity of the division of labor, puts a limit to the progress of concentration in the processing industries also. The tendency toward a progressive specialization and the concentration of integrated industrial processes in only a few plants is counteracted by the geographical dispersion of natural resources. The fact that the production of raw materials and foodstuffs cannot be centralized and forces people to disperse over the various parts of the Earth's surface enjoins also upon the processing industries a certain degree of decentralization. It makes it necessary to consider the problems of transportation as a particular factor of production costs. The costs of transportation must be weighed against the economies to be expected from more thoroughgoing specialization. While in some branches of the processing industries the utmost concentration is the most adequate method of reducing costs, in other branches a certain degree of decentralization is more advantageous. 
In the servicing trades, the disadvantages of concentration become so great that they almost entirely overweigh the advantages derived. Then a historical factor comes into play. In the past, capital goods were immobilized on sites on which our contemporaries would not have set them. It is immaterial whether or not this immobilization was the most economical procedure to which the generations that brought it about could resort. In any event, the present generation is faced with a fait accompli. It must adjust its operations to the fact, and it must take it into account in dealing with problems of the location of the processing industries. Finally, there are institutional factors. There are trade and migration barriers. There are differences in political organization and methods of government between various countries. Vast areas are administered in such a way that it is practically out of the question to choose them as a seat for any capital investment, no matter how favorable their physical conditions may be. Entrepreneurial cost accounting must deal with all these geographical, historical, and institutional factors. But even apart from them, there are purely technical factors limiting the optimum size of plants and firms. The greater plant or firm may require provisions and procedures which the smaller plant or firm can avoid. In many instances, the outlays caused by such provisions and procedures may be overcompensated by the reduction in costs derived from better utilization of the capacity of some of the not perfectly divisible factors employed. In other instances, this may not be the case. Under capitalism, the arithmetical operations required for cost accounting and the confrontation of costs and proceeds can easily be effected, as there are methods of economic calculation available. However, cost accounting and calculation of the economic significance of business projects under consideration is not merely a mathematical problem, which can be solved satisfactorily by all those familiar with the elementary rules of arithmetic. The main question is the determination of the money equivalents of the items which are to enter into the calculation. It is a mistake to assume, as many economists do, that these equivalents are given magnitudes, uniquely determined by the state of economic conditions. They are speculative anticipations of uncertain future conditions, and as such depend on the entrepreneur's understanding of the future state of the market. The term fixed costs is also, in this regard, somewhat misleading. Every action aims at the best possible supplying of future needs. To achieve these ends, it must make the best possible use of the available factors of production. However, the historical process which brought about the present state of factors available is beside the point. What counts and influences the decisions concerning future action is solely the outcome of this historical process, the quantity and the quality of the factors available today. These factors are appraised only with regard to their ability to render productive services for the removal of future uneasiness. 
The amount of money spent in the past for their production and acquisition is immaterial. It has already been pointed out that an entrepreneur who, by the time he has to make a new decision, has expended money for the realization of a definite project, is in a different position from that of a man who starts afresh. The former owns a complex of inconvertible factors of production which he can employ for certain purposes. His decisions concerning further action will be influenced by this fact. But he appraises this complex not according to what he expended in the past for its acquisition. He appraises it exclusively from the point of view of its usefulness for future action. The fact that he has spent more or less for its acquisition is insignificant. This fact is only a factor in determining the amount of the entrepreneur's past losses or profits and the present state of his fortune. It is an element in the historical process that brought about the present state of the supply of factors of production, and as such it is of importance for future action. But it does not count for the planning of future action and the calculation regarding such action. It is irrelevant that the entries in the firm's books differ from the actual price of such inconvertible factors of production. Of course, such consummated losses or profits may motivate a firm to operate in a different way from which it would if it were not affected by them. Past losses may render a firm's financial position precarious, especially if they bring about indebtedness and burden it with payments of interest and installments on the principal. However, it is not correct to refer to such payments as a part of fixed costs. They have no relation whatever to the current operations. They are not caused by the process of production, but by the methods employed by the entrepreneur in the past for the procurement of the capital and capital goods needed. They are only accidental with reference to the going concern, but they may enforce upon the firm in question a conduct of affairs which it would not adopt if it were financially stronger. The urgent need for cash in order to meet payments due does not affect its cost accounting, but its appraisal of ready cash as compared with cash that can only be received at a later day. It may impel the firm to sell inventories at an inappropriate moment and to use its durable production equipment in a way that unduly neglects its conservation for later use. It is immaterial for the problems of cost accounting whether a firm owns the capital invested in its enterprise or whether it has borrowed a greater or smaller part of it and is bound to comply with the terms of a loan contract rigidly fixing the rate of interest and the dates of maturity for interest and principal. The costs of production include only the interest on the capital which is still existent and working in the enterprise. It does not include interest on capital squandered in the past by bad investment or by inefficiency in the conduct of current business operations. The task incumbent upon the businessman is always to use the supply of capital goods now available in the best possible way for the satisfaction of future needs. 
In the pursuit of this aim, he must not be misled by past errors and failures, the consequences of which cannot be brushed away. A plant may have been constructed in the past which would not have been built if one had better forecast the present situation. It is vain to lament this historical fact. The main thing is to find out whether or not the plant can still render any service, and if this question is answered in the affirmative, how it can be best utilized. It is certainly sad for the individual entrepreneur that he did not avoid errors. The losses incurred impair his financial situation. They do not affect the costs to be taken into account in planning further action. It is important to stress this point because it has been distorted in the current interpretation and justification of various measures. One does not reduce costs by alleviating some firms' and corporations' burden of debts. A policy of wiping out debts, or the interest due on them totally or in part, does not reduce costs. It transfers wealth from creditors to debtors. It shifts the incidence of losses incurred in the past from one group of people to another group. For example, from the owners of common stock to those of preferred stock and corporate bonds. This argument of cost reduction is often advanced in favor of currency devaluation. It is no less fallacious in this case than all the other arguments brought forward for this purpose. What are commonly called fixed costs are also the costs incurred by the exploitation of the already available factors of production, which are either rigidly inconvertible or can be adapted for other productive purposes only at a considerable loss. These factors are of a more durable character than the other factors of production required, but they are not permanent. They are used up in the process of production. With each unit of product turned out, a part of the machine's power to produce is exhausted. The extent of this attrition can be precisely ascertained by technology and can be appraised accordingly in terms of money. However, it is not only this money equivalent of the machine's wearing out which the entrepreneurial calculation has to consider. The businessman is not merely concerned with the duration of the machine's technological life. He must take into account the future state of the market. Although a machine may still be technologically perfectly utilizable, market conditions may render it obsolete and worthless. If the demand for its products drops considerably or disappears altogether, or if more efficient methods for supplying the consumers with these products appear, the machine is economically merely scrap iron. In planning the conduct of his business, the entrepreneur must pay full regard to the anticipated future state of the market. The amount of fixed costs which enter into his calculation depends on his understanding of future events. It is not to be fixed simply by technological reasoning. The technologist may determine the optimum for a production aggregate's utilization. 
But this technological optimum may differ from that which the entrepreneur, on the ground of his judgment concerning future market conditions, enters into his economic calculation. Let us assume that a factory is equipped with machines which can be utilized for a period of ten years. Every year, ten percent of their prime costs is laid aside for depreciation. In the third year, market conditions place a dilemma before the entrepreneur. He can double his output for the year and sell it at a price which, apart from covering the increase in variable costs, exceeds the quota of depreciation for the current year and the present value of the last depreciation quota. But this doubling of production trebles the wearing out of the equipment, and the surplus proceeds from the sale of the double quantity of products are not great enough to make good also for the present value of the depreciation quota of the ninth year. If the entrepreneur were to consider the annual depreciation quota as a rigid element for his calculation, he would have to deem the doubling of production as not profitable, as additional proceeds lag behind additional cost. He would abstain from expanding production beyond the technological optimum. But the entrepreneur calculates in a different way, although in his accountancy he may lay aside the same quota for depreciation every year. Whether or not the entrepreneur prefers a fraction of the present value of the ninth year's depreciation quota to the technological services which the machines could render him in the ninth year depends on his opinion concerning the future state of the market. Public opinion, governments and legislators, and the tax laws look upon a business outfit as a source of permanent revenue. They believe that the entrepreneur who makes due allowance for capital maintenance by annual depreciation quotas will always be in a position to reap a reasonable return from the capital invested in his durable producer's goods. Real conditions are different. A production aggregate such as a plant and its equipment is a factor of production whose usefulness depends on changing market conditions and the skill of the entrepreneur in employing it in accordance with the change in conditions. There is in the field of economic calculation nothing that is certain in the sense in which this term is used with regard to technological facts. The essential elements of economic calculation are speculative anticipations of future conditions. Commercial usages and customs and commercial laws have established definite rules for accountancy and auditing. There is accuracy in the keeping of books, but they are accurate only with regard to these rules. The book values do not reflect precisely the real state of affairs. The market value of an aggregate of durable producers' goods may differ from the nominal figures the books show. The proof is that the stock exchange appraises them without any regard to these figures. Cost accounting is therefore not an arithmetical process which can be established and examined by an indifferent umpire. It does not operate with uniquely determined magnitudes which can be found out in an objective way. 
Its essential items are the result of an understanding of future conditions, necessarily always colored by the entrepreneur's opinion about the future state of the market. Attempts to establish cost accounts on an impartial basis are doomed to failure. Calculating costs is a mental tool of action, the purposive design to make the best of the available means for an improvement of future conditions. It is necessarily volitional, not factual. In the hands of an indifferent umpire, it changes its character entirely. The umpire does not look forward to the future. He looks backward to the dead past and to rigid rules which are useless for real life and action. He does not anticipate changes. He is unwittingly guided by the prepossession that the evenly rotating economy is the normal and most desirable state of human affairs. Profits do not fit into his scheme. He has a confused idea about a fair rate of profit or a fair return on capital invested. However, there are no such things. In the evenly rotating economy, there are no profits. In a changing economy, profits are not determined with reference to any set of rules by which they could be classified as fair or unfair. Profits are never normal. Where there is normality, that is, absence of change, no profits can emerge. 5. Logical Catalactics versus Mathematical Catalactics The problems of prices and costs have been treated also with mathematical methods. There have even been economists who held that the only appropriate method of dealing with economic problems is the mathematical method, and who derided the logical economists as literary economists. If this antagonism between the logical and the mathematical economists were merely a disagreement concerning the most adequate procedure to be applied in the study of economics, it would be superfluous to pay attention to it. The better method would prove its preeminence by bringing about better results. It may also be that different varieties of procedure are necessary for the solution of different problems, and that for some of them, one method is more useful than the other. However, this is not a dispute about heuristic questions, but a controversy concerning the foundations of economics. The mathematical method must be rejected not only on account of its barrenness. It is an entirely vicious method, starting from false assumptions and leading to fallacious inferences. Its syllogisms are not only sterile, they divert the mind from the study of the real problems and distort the relations between the various phenomena. The ideas and procedures of the mathematical economists are not uniform. There are three main currents of thought which must be dealt with separately. The first variety is represented by the statisticians who aim at discovering economic laws from the study of economic experience. They aim to transform economics into a quantitative science. Their program is condensed in the motto of the Econometric Society. Science is measurement. The fundamental error implied in this reasoning has been shown above. 
Experience of economic history is always experience of complex phenomena. It can never convey knowledge of the kind the experimenter abstracts from a laboratory experiment. Statistics is a method for the presentation of historical facts concerning prices and other relevant data of human action. It is not economics, and cannot produce economic theorems and theories. The statistics of prices is economic history. The insight that, ceteris paribus, an increase in demand must result in an increase in prices is not derived from experience. Nobody ever was or ever will be in a position to observe a change in one of the market data, ceteris paribus. There is no such thing as quantitative economics. All economic quantities we know about are data of economic history. No reasonable man can contend that the relations between price and supply is in general, or in respect of certain commodities, constant. We know, on the contrary, that external phenomena affect different people in different ways, that the reactions of the same people to the same external events vary, and that it is not possible to assign individuals to classes of men reacting in the same way. This insight is a product of our a prioristic theory. It is true the empiricists reject this theory. They pretend that they aim to learn only from historical experience. However, they contradict their own principles as soon as they pass beyond the unadulterated recording of individual single prices and begin to construct series and to compute averages. A datum of experience and a statistical fact is only a price paid at a definite time and a definite place for a definite quantity of a certain commodity. The arrangement of various price data in groups and the computation of averages are guided by theoretical deliberations which are logically and temporally antecedent. The extent to which certain attending features and circumstantial contingencies of the price data concerned are taken or not taken into consideration depends on theoretical reasoning of the same kind. Nobody is so bold as to maintain that a rise of a percent in the supply of any commodity must always, in every country and at any time, result in a fall of b percent in its price. But as no quantitative economist ever ventured to define precisely on the ground of statistical experience the special conditions producing a definite deviation from the ratio a to b, the futility of his endeavors is manifest. Moreover, money is not a standard for the measurement of prices. It is a medium whose exchange ratio varies in the same way, although, as a rule, not with the same speed and to the same extent in which the mutual exchange ratios of the vendable commodities and services vary. There is hardly any need to dwell longer upon the exposure of the claims of quantitative economics. In spite of all the high-sounding pronouncements of its advocates, nothing has been done for the realization of its program. 
The late Henry Schultz devoted his research to the measurement of elasticities of demand for various commodities. Professor Paul H. Douglas has praised the outcome of Schultz's studies as a work as necessary to help make economics a more or less exact science, as was the determination of atomic weights for the development of chemistry. The truth is that Schultz never embarked upon a determination of the elasticity of demand for any commodity as such. The data he relied upon were limited to certain geographical areas and historical periods. His results for a definite commodity, for instance, potatoes, do not refer to potatoes in general, but to potatoes in the United States in the years from 1875 to 1929. They are, at best, rather questionable and unsatisfactory contributions to various chapters of economic history. They are certainly not steps toward the realization of the confused and contradictory program of quantitative economics. It must be emphasized that the two other varieties of mathematical economics are fully aware of the futility of quantitative economics for they have never ventured to make any magnitudes, as found by the econometricians, enter into their formulas and equations, and thus to adapt them for the solution of particular problems. There is in the field of human action no means of dealing with future events other than that provided by understanding. The second field treated by mathematical economists is that of the relation of prices and costs. In dealing with these problems, the mathematical economists disregard the operation of the market process, and moreover, pretend to abstract from the use of money inherent in all economic calculations. However, as they speak of prices and costs in general, and confront prices and costs, they tacitly imply the existence and the use of money. Prices are always money prices, and costs cannot be taken into account in economic calculation if not expressed in terms of money. If one does not resort to terms of money, costs are expressed in complex quantities of diverse goods and services to be expended for the procurement of a product. On the other hand, prices, if this term is applicable at all to exchange ratios determined by barter, are the enumeration of quantities of various goods against which the seller can exchange a definite supply. The goods which are referred to in such prices are not the same to which the costs refer. A comparison of such prices in kind and costs in kind is not feasible. That the seller values the goods he gives away less than those he receives in exchange for them, that the seller and the buyer disagree with regard to the subjective valuation of the two goods exchanged, and that an entrepreneur embarks upon a project only if he expects to receive for the product goods that he values higher than those expended in their production. All this we know already on the ground of praxeological comprehension. It is this a prioristic knowledge that enables us to anticipate the conduct of an entrepreneur who is in a position to resort to economic calculation. 
But the mathematical economist deludes himself when he pretends to treat these problems in a more general way by omitting any reference to terms of money. It is vain to investigate instances of non-perfect divisibility of factors of production without reference to economic calculation in terms of money. Such a scrutiny can never go beyond the knowledge already available, namely that every entrepreneur is intent upon producing those articles, the sale of which will bring him proceeds that he values higher than the total complex of goods expended in their production. But if there is no indirect exchange, and if no medium of exchange is in common use, he can succeed, provided he has correctly anticipated the future state of the market, only if he is endowed with a superhuman intellect. He would have to take in at a glance all exchange ratios determined at the market in such a way as to assign in his deliberations precisely the place due to every good according to these ratios. It cannot be denied that all investigations concerning the relation of prices and costs presuppose both the use of money and the market process. But the mathematical economists shut their eyes to this obvious fact. They formulate equations and draw curves which are supposed to describe reality. In fact, they describe only a hypothetical and unrealizable state of affairs, in no way similar to the catalactic problems in question. They substitute algebraic symbols for the determinate terms of money as used in economic calculation, and believe that this procedure renders their reasoning more scientific. They strongly impress the gullible layman. In fact, they only confuse and muddle things which are satisfactorily dealt with in textbooks of commercial arithmetic and accountancy. Some of these mathematicians have gone so far as to declare that economic calculation could be established on the basis of units of utility, they call their methods utility analysis. Their error is shared by the third variety of mathematical economics. The characteristic mark of this third group is that they are openly and consciously intent upon solving catalactic problems without any reference to the market process. Their ideal is to construct an economic theory according to the pattern of mechanics. They again and again resort to analogies with classical mechanics, which, in their opinion, is the unique and absolute model of scientific inquiry. There is no need to explain again why this analogy is superficial and misleading, and in what respects purposive human action radically differs from motion, the subject matter of mechanics. It is enough to stress one point— namely, the practical significance of the differential equations in both fields. The deliberations which result in the formulation of an equation are necessarily of a non-mathematical character. The formulation of the equation is the consummation of our knowledge. It does not directly enlarge our knowledge. Yet in mechanics, the equation can render very important practical services. 
as there exist constant relations between various mechanical elements, and as these relations can be ascertained by experiments, it becomes possible to use equations for the solution of definite technological problems. Our modern industrial civilization is mainly an accomplishment of this utilization of the differential equations of physics. No such constant relations exist, however, between economic elements. The equations formulated by mathematical economics remain a useless piece of mental gymnastics and would remain so even if they were to express much more than they really do. A sound economic deliberation must never forget these two fundamental principles of the theory of value. First, valuing that results in action always means preferring and setting aside. It never means equivalence. Second, there is no means of comparing the valuations of different individuals or the valuations of the same individuals at different instants, other than by establishing whether or not they arrange the alternatives in question in the same order of preference. In the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy, all factors of production are employed in such a way that each of them renders the most valuable service. No thinkable and possible change could improve the state of satisfaction. No factor is employed for the satisfaction of a need, A, if this employment prevents the satisfaction of a need, B, that is considered more valuable than the satisfaction of A. It is, of course, possible to describe this imaginary state of the allocation of resources in differential equations and to visualize it graphically in curves. But such devices do not assert anything about the market process. They merely mark out an imaginary situation in which the market process would cease to operate. The mathematical economists disregard the whole theoretical elucidation of the market process and evasively amuse themselves with an auxiliary notion employed in its context and devoid of any sense when used outside of this context. In physics, we are faced with changes occurring in various sense phenomena. We discover a regularity in the sequence of these changes, and these observations lead us to the construction of a science of physics. We know nothing about the ultimate forces actuating these changes. They are for the searching mind ultimately given and defy any further analysis. What we know from observation is the regular concatenation of various observable entities and attributes. It is this mutual interdependence of data that the physicist describes in differential equations. In praxeology, the first fact we know is that men are purposively intent upon bringing about some changes. It is this knowledge that integrates the subject matter of praxeology and differentiates it from the subject matter of the natural sciences. We know the forces behind the changes, and this a prioristic knowledge leads us to a cognition of the praxeological processes. The physicist does not know what electricity is. He knows only phenomena attributed to something called electricity. 
but the economist knows what actuates the market process. It is only thanks to this knowledge that he is in a position to distinguish market phenomena from other phenomena and to describe the market process. Now, the mathematical economist does not contribute anything to the elucidation of the market process. He merely describes an auxiliary makeshift employed by the logical economists as a limiting notion, the definition of a state of affairs in which there is no longer any action and the market process has come to a standstill. That is all he can say. What the logical economist sets forth in words when defining the imaginary constructions of the final state of rest and the evenly rotating economy, and what the mathematical economist himself must describe in words before he embarks upon his mathematical work, is translated into algebraic symbols. A superficial analogy is spun out too long. That is all. Both the logical and the mathematical economists assert that human action ultimately aims at the establishment of such a state of equilibrium, and would reach it if all further changes in data were to cease. But the logical economist knows much more than that. He shows how the activities of enterprising men, the promoters and speculators, eager to profit from discrepancies in the price structure, tend toward eradicating such discrepancies, and thereby also toward blotting out the sources of entrepreneurial profit and loss. He shows how this process would finally result in the establishment of the evenly rotating economy. This is the task of economic theory. The mathematical description of various states of equilibrium is mere play. The problem is the analysis of the market process. A comparison of both methods of economic analysis makes us understand the meaning of the often-raised request to enlarge the scope of economic science by the construction of a dynamic theory instead of the mere occupation with static problems. With regard to logical economics, this postulate is devoid of any sense. Logical economics is essentially a theory of processes and changes. It resorts to the imaginary constructions of changelessness merely for the elucidation of the phenomena of change. But it is different with mathematical economics. Its equations and formula are limited to the description of states of equilibrium and non-acting. It cannot assert anything with regard to the formation of such states and their transformation into other states, as long as it remains in the realm of mathematical procedures. As against mathematical economics, the request for a dynamic theory is well substantiated, but there is no means for mathematical economics to comply with this request. The problems of process analysis, that is, the only economic problems that matter, defy any mathematical approach. The introduction of time parameters into the equations is no solution. It does not even indicate the essential shortcomings of the mathematical method. 
The statements that every change involves time, and that change is always in the temporal sequence, are merely a way of expressing the fact that as far as there is rigidity and unchangeability, there is no time. The main deficiency of mathematical economics is not the fact that it ignores the temporal sequence, but that it ignores the operation of the market process. The mathematical method is at a loss to show how, from a state of non-equilibrium, those actions spring up which tend toward the establishment of equilibrium. It is, of course, possible to indicate the mathematical operations required for the transformation of the mathematical description of a definite state of non-equilibrium into the mathematical description of the state of equilibrium, but these mathematical operations by no means describe the market process actuated by the discrepancies in the price structure. The differential equations of mechanics are supposed to describe precisely the motions concerned at any instant of the time traveled through. The economic equations have no reference whatever to conditions as they really are in each instant of the time interval between the state of non-equilibrium and that of equilibrium. Only those entirely blinded by the prepossession that economics must be a pale replica of mechanics will underrate the weight of this objection. A very imperfect and superficial metaphor is not a substitute for the services rendered by logical economics. In every chapter of Catalactics, the devastating consequences of the mathematical treatment of economics can be tested. It is enough to refer to two instances only. One is provided by the so-called equation of exchange, the mathematical economist's futile and misleading attempt to deal with changes in the purchasing power of money. The second can be best expressed in referring to Professor Schumpeter's dictum according to which consumers in evaluating consumers' goods, ipso facto, also evaluate the means of production which enter into the production of these goods. It is hardly possible to construe the market process in a more erroneous way. Economics is not about goods and services. It is about the actions of living men. Its goal is not to dwell upon imaginary constructions such as equilibrium. These constructions are only tools of reasoning. The sole task of economics is analysis of the actions of men is the analysis of processes. 6. Monopoly Prices Competitive prices are the outcome of a complete adjustment of the sellers to the demand of the consumers. Under the competitive price, the whole supply available is sold, and the specific factors of production are employed to the extent permitted by the prices of the non-specific complementary factors. No part of a supply available is permanently withheld from the market, and the marginal unit of specific factors of production employed does not yield any net proceed. The whole economic process is conducted for the benefit of the consumers. 
There is no conflict between the interests of the buyers and those of the sellers, between the interests of the producers and those of the consumers. The owners of the various commodities are not in a position to divert consumption and production from the lines enjoined by the state of supply of goods and services of all orders and the state of technological knowledge. Every single seller would see his own proceeds increased if a fall in the supply at the disposal of his competitors were to increase the price at which he himself could sell his own supply. But on a competitive market, he is not in a position to bring about this outcome. Except for a privilege derived from government interference with business, he must submit to the state of the market as it is. The entrepreneur, in his entrepreneurial capacity, is always subject to the full supremacy of the consumers. It is different with the owners of vendable goods and factors of production, and, of course, with the entrepreneurs in their capacity as owners of such goods and factors. Under certain conditions, they fare better by restricting supply and selling it at a higher price per unit, the prices thus determined, the monopoly prices, are an infringement of the supremacy of the consumers and the democracy of the market. The special conditions and circumstances required for the emergence of monopoly prices and their catalactic features are 1. There must prevail a monopoly of supply. The whole supply of the monopolized commodity is controlled by a single seller or a group of sellers acting in concert. The monopolist, whether one individual or a group of individuals, is in a position to restrict the supply offered for sale or employed for production in order to raise the price per unit sold, and need not fear that his plan will be frustrated by interference on the part of other sellers of the same commodity. 2. Either the monopolist is not in a position to discriminate among the buyers, or he voluntarily abstains from such discrimination. 3. The reaction of the buying public to the rise in prices beyond the potential competitive price, the fall in demand, is not such as to render the proceeds resulting from total sales at any price exceeding the competitive price smaller than total proceeds resulting from total sales at the competitive price. Hence it is superfluous to enter into sophisticated disquisitions concerning what must be considered the mark of the sameness of an article, it is not necessary to raise the question whether all neckties are to be called specimens of the same article, or whether one should distinguish them with regard to fabric, color, and pattern. An academic delimitation of various articles is useless. The only point that counts is the way in which the buyers react to the rise in prices. For the theory of monopoly price, it is irrelevant to observe that every necktie manufacturer turns out different articles and to call each of them a monopolist. Catalactics does not deal with monopoly as such, but with monopoly prices. 
A seller of neckties which are different from those offered for sale by other people could attain monopoly prices only if the buyers did not react to any rise in prices in such a way as to make such a rise disadvantageous for him. Monopoly is a prerequisite for the emergence of monopoly prices, but it is not the only prerequisite. There is a further condition required, namely a certain shape of the demand curve. The mere existence of monopoly does not mean anything. The publisher of a copyright book is a monopolist, but he may not be able to sell a single copy, no matter how low the price he asks. Not every price at which a monopolist sells a monopolized commodity is a monopoly price. Monopoly prices are only prices at which it is more advantageous for the monopolist to restrict the total amount to be sold than to expand his sales to the limit which a competitive market would allow. They are the outcome of a deliberate design tending toward a restriction of trade. In calling the monopolist's conduct deliberate, it is not meant to suggest that he compares the monopoly price he is asking with the competitive price which a hypothetical non-monopolized market would have determined. It is only the economist who contrasts the monopoly price with the potential competitive price. In the deliberations of the monopolist who has already got his monopolistic position, the competitive price plays no role at all. Like every other seller, he wants to realize the highest price attainable. It is only the state of the market, as conditioned by his monopolistic position on the one hand, and the conduct of the buyers on the other, that results in the emergence of monopoly prices. 4. It is a fundamental mistake to assume that there is a third category of prices, which are neither monopoly prices nor competitive prices. If we disregard the problem of price discrimination to be dealt with later, a definite price is either a competitive price or a monopoly price. The assertions to the contrary are due to the erroneous belief that competition is not free or perfect unless everybody is in a position to present himself as a seller of a definite commodity. The available supply of every commodity is limited. If it were not scarce with regard to the demand of the public, the thing in question would not be considered an economic good, and no price would be paid for it. It is therefore misleading to apply the concept of monopoly in such a way as to make it cover the entire field of economic goods. Mere limitation of supply is the source of economic value and of all prices paid. As such, it is not yet sufficient to generate monopoly prices. The term monopolistic or imperfect competition is applied today to the cases in which there are some differences in the products of different producers and sellers. This means that almost all consumers' goods are included in the class of monopolized goods. 
However, the only question relevant in the study of the determination of prices is whether these differences can be used by the seller for a scheme of deliberate restriction of supply for the sake of increasing his total net proceeds. Only if this is possible and put into effect can monopoly prices emerge as differentiated from competitive prices. It may be true that every seller has a clientele which prefers his brand to those of his competitors and would not stop buying it even if the price were higher. But the problem for the seller is whether the number of such people is great enough to overcompensate the reduction of total sales which the abstention from buying on the part of other people would bring about. Only if this is the case can he consider the substitution of monopoly prices for competitive prices advantageous. The confusion which led to the idea of imperfect or monopolistic competition stems from a misinterpretation of the term control of supply. Every producer of every product has his share in controlling the supply of all commodities offered for sale. If he had produced more A, he would have increased supply and brought about a tendency toward a lower price. But the question is why he did not produce more of A. Was he, in restricting his production of A to the amount of P, intent upon complying to the best of his abilities with the wishes of the consumers? Or was he intent upon defying the orders of the consumers for his own advantage? In the first case, he did not produce more of A because increasing the quantity of A beyond P would have withdrawn scarce factors of production from other branches in which they would have been employed for the satisfaction of more urgent needs of the consumers. He does not produce P plus R, but merely P, because such an increase would have rendered his business unprofitable or less profitable while there are still other, more profitable employments available for capital investment. In the second case, he did not produce R because it was more advantageous for him to leave a part of the available supply of a monopolized specific factor of production, M, unused. If M were not monopolized by him, it would have been impossible for him to expect any advantage from restricting his production of A. His competitors would have filled the gap, and he would not have been in a position to ask higher prices. In dealing with monopoly prices, we must always search for the monopolized factor M. If no such factor is in the case, no monopoly prices can emerge. The first requirement for monopoly prices is the existence of a monopolized good. If no quantity of such a good M is withheld, there is no opportunity for an entrepreneur to substitute monopoly prices for competitive prices. Entrepreneurial profit has nothing at all to do with monopoly. If an entrepreneur is in a position to sell at monopoly prices, he owes this advantage to his monopoly with regard to a monopolized factor, M. He earns the specific monopoly gain from his ownership of M, not from his specific entrepreneurial activities. 
Let us assume that an accident cuts a city's electrical supply for several days and forces the residents to resort to candlelight only. The price of candles rises to S. At this price, the whole supply available is sold out. The stores selling candles reap a high profit in selling their whole supply at S. But it could happen that the storekeepers combine in order to withhold a part of their stock from the market and to sell the rest at a price of S plus T. While S would have been the competitive price, S plus T is a monopoly price. The surplus earned by the storekeepers at the price S plus T over the proceeds they would have earned when selling at S only is their specific monopoly gain. It is immaterial in what way the storekeepers bring about the restriction of the supply offered for sale. The physical destruction of a part of the supply available is the classical case of monopolistic action. Only a short time ago it was practiced by the Brazilian government in burning large quantities of coffee. But the same effect can be attained by leaving a part of the supply unused. While there constantly prevails a tendency to make profits disappear, the specific monopoly gain is a permanent phenomenon and can disappear only with a change in the market data. While profits are incompatible with the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy, monopoly prices and specific monopoly gains are not. 5. The competitive price is determined by the state of the market. There prevails on a competitive market a tendency toward the disappearance of differences in prices and the establishment of a uniform price. With regard to monopoly prices, things are different. If it is possible for the seller to increase his net proceeds by restricting sales and increasing prices per unit sold, then, as a rule, there are several monopoly prices which satisfy this condition. As a rule, one of these monopoly prices yields the highest net proceeds. But it may also happen that various monopoly prices are equally advantageous to the monopolist. We may call this monopoly price or these monopoly prices most advantageous to the monopolist the optimum monopoly price or the optimum monopoly prices. 6. The monopolist does not know beforehand in what way the consumers will react to a rise in prices. He must resort to trial and error in his endeavors to find out whether the monopolized good can be sold to his advantage at any price exceeding the competitive price, and, if this is so, which of various possible monopoly prices is the optimum monopoly price or one of the optimum monopoly prices. This is in practice much more difficult than the economist assumes when, in drawing demand curves, he ascribes perfect foresight to the monopolist. We must, therefore, list as a special condition required for the appearance of monopoly prices the monopolist's ability to discover such prices. 7. A special case is provided by the incomplete monopoly. 
the greater part of the total supply available is owned by the monopolist. The rest is owned by one or several men who are not prepared to cooperate with the monopolist in a scheme for restricting sales and bringing about monopoly prices. However, the reluctance of these outsiders does not prevent the establishment of monopoly prices if the portion P1, controlled by the monopolist, is large enough when compared with the sum of the outsiders' portions, P2. Let us assume that the whole supply, P equals P1 plus P2, can be sold at the price C per unit and a supply of P minus Z at the monopoly price, D. If D, P1 minus Z, is higher than CP1, it is to the advantage of the monopolist to embark upon a monopolistic restriction of his sales, no matter what the conduct of the outsiders may be. They may go on selling at the price C, or they may raise their prices up to the maximum of D. The only point that counts is that the outsiders are not willing to put up with a reduction in the quantity which they themselves are selling. The whole reduction required must be borne by the owner of P1. This influences his plans, and will, as a rule, result in the emergence of a monopoly price, which is different from that which would have been established under complete monopoly. It is obvious that an incomplete monopoly scheme is bound to collapse if the outsiders come into a position to expand their sales. 8. Duopoly and oligopoly are not special varieties of monopoly prices, but merely a variety of the methods applied for the establishment of a monopoly price. Two or several men own the whole supply. They all are prepared to sell at monopoly prices and to restrict their total sales accordingly. But for some reason they do not want to act in concert. Each of them goes his own way without any formal or tacit agreement with his competitors. But each of them knows also that his rivals are intent upon a monopolistic restriction of their sales in order to reap higher prices per unit and specific monopoly gains. Each of them watches carefully the conduct of his rivals and tries to adjust his own plans to their actions. A succession of moves and counter-moves, a mutual outwitting, results the outcome of which depends on the personal cunning of the adverse parties. The duopolists and oligopolists have two objectives in mind. To find out the monopoly price most advantageous to the sellers, on the one hand, and to shift as much as possible of the burden of restricting the amount of sales to their rivals. Precisely because they do not agree with regard to the quotas of the reduced amount of sales to be allotted to each party, they do not act in concert, as the members of a cartel do. One must not confuse duopoly and oligopoly with the incomplete monopoly, or with competition aiming at the establishment of monopoly. In the case of incomplete monopoly, only the monopolistic group is prepared to restrict its sales in order to make a monopoly price prevail.
the other sellers decline to restrict their sales. But duopolists and oligopolists are ready to withhold a part of their supply from the market. In the case of price slashing, one group, A, plans to attain full monopoly or incomplete monopoly by forcing all or most of its competitors, the Bs, to go out of business. It cuts prices to a level which makes selling ruinous to its more vulnerable competitors. A may also incur losses by selling at this low rate, but it is in a position to undergo such losses for a longer time than the others, and it is confident that it will make good for them later by ample monopoly gains. This process has nothing to do with monopoly prices. It is a scheme for the attainment of a monopoly position. One may wonder whether duopoly and oligopoly are of practical significance. As a rule, the parties concerned will come to at least a tacit understanding concerning their quotas of the reduced amount of sales. 9. The monopolized good by whose partial withholding from the market the monopoly prices are made to prevail can be either a good of the lowest order or a good of a higher order a factor of production. It may consist in the control of the technological knowledge required for production, the recipe. Such recipes are, as a rule, free goods, as their ability to produce definite effects is unlimited. They can become economic goods only if they are monopolized and their use is restricted. Any price paid for the services rendered by a recipe is always a monopoly price. It is immaterial whether the restriction of a recipe's use is made possible by institutional conditions, such as patents and copyright laws, or by the fact that a formula is kept secret and other people fail to guess it. The complementary factor of production, the monopolization of which can result in the establishment of monopoly prices, may also consist in a man's opportunity to make his cooperation in the production of a good known to consumers who attribute to this cooperation a special significance. This opportunity may be given either by the nature of the commodities or services in question, or by institutional provisions such as protection of trademarks. The reasons why the consumers value the contribution of a man or a firm so highly are manifold. They may be special confidence placed on the individual or firm concerned on account of previous experience, merely baseless prejudice or error, snobbishness, magic or metaphysical prepossessions whose groundlessness is ridiculed by more reasonable people. A drug marked by a trademark may not differ in its chemical structure and its physiological efficacy from other compounds not marked with the same label. However, if the buyers attach a special significance to this label and are ready to pay higher prices for the product marked with it, the seller can, provided the configuration of demand is propitious, reap monopoly prices. 
The monopoly, which enables the monopolist to restrict the amount offered without counteraction on the part of other people, can consist in the greater productivity of a factor which he has at his disposal, as against the lower productivity of the corresponding factor at the disposal of his potential competitors. If the margin between the higher productivity of his supply of the monopolized factor and that of his potential competitors is broad enough for the emergence of a monopoly price, a situation results which we may call margin monopoly. The use of this term margin monopoly is, like that of any other, quite optional. It would be vain to object that every other monopoly which results in monopoly prices could also be called a margin monopoly. Let us illustrate margin monopoly by referring to its most frequent instance in present-day conditions, the power of a protective tariff to generate a monopoly price under special circumstances. Atlantis puts a tariff, T, on the importation of each unit of the commodity P, the world market price of which is S. If domestic consumption of P in Atlantis at the price S plus T is A, and domestic production of P is B, B being smaller than A, then the costs of the marginal dealer are S plus T. The domestic plants are in a position to sell their total output at the price, S plus T. The tariff is effective, and offers to domestic business the incentive to expand the production of P from B to a quantity slightly smaller than A. But if B is greater than A, things are different. If we assume that B is so large that even at the price S, domestic consumption lags behind it, and the surplus must be exported and sold abroad, the imposition of a tariff does not affect the price of P. Both the domestic and the world market price of P remain unchanged. However, the tariff, in discriminating between domestic and foreign production of pea, accords to the domestic plants a privilege which can be used for a monopolistic combine, provided certain further conditions are present. If it is possible to find within the margin between S plus T and S a monopoly price, it becomes lucrative for the domestic enterprises to form a cartel. The cartel sells in the home market of Atlantis at a monopoly price, and disposes of the surplus abroad at the world market price. Of course, as the quantity of P offered at the world market increases as a consequence of the restriction of the quantity sold in Atlantis, the world market price drops from S to S1. It is, therefore, a further requirement for the emergence of the domestic monopoly price that the total restriction in proceeds resulting from this fall in the world market price is not so great as to absorb the whole monopoly gain of the domestic cartel. In the long run, such a national cartel cannot preserve its monopolistic position if entrance into its branch of production is free to newcomers. 
The monopolized factor, the services of which the cartel restricts, as far as the domestic market is concerned, for the sake of monopoly prices, is a geographical condition which can easily be duplicated by every new investor who establishes a new plant within the borders of Atlantis. Under modern industrial conditions, the characteristic feature of which is steady technological progress, the latest plant will, as a rule, be more efficient than the older plants, and produce at lower average costs. The incentive to prospective newcomers is therefore twofold. It consists not only in the monopoly gain of the cartel members, but also in the possibility of outstripping them by lower costs of production. Here again, institutions come to the aid of the old firms that form the cartel. The patents give them a legal monopoly, which nobody may infringe. Of course, only some of their production processes may be protected by patents but a competitor who is prevented from resorting to these processes and to the production of the articles concerned may be handicapped in such a serious way that he cannot consider entrance into the field of the cartelized industry. The owner of a patent enjoys a legal monopoly, which, other conditions being propitious, can be used for the attainment of monopoly prices. Beyond the field covered by the patent itself, a patent may render auxiliary services in the establishment and preservation of margin monopoly, where the primary institutional conditions for the emergence of such a monopoly prevail. We may assume that some world cartels would exist even in the absence of any government interference, which provides for other commodities the indispensable conditions required for the construction of a monopolistic combine. There are some commodities, for example diamonds and mercury, the supply of which is by nature limited to a few sources. The owners of these resources can easily be united for concerted action. But such cartels would play only a minor role in the setting of world production. Their economic significance would be rather small. The important place that cartels occupy in our time is an outcome of the interventionist policies adopted by the governments of all countries. The great monopoly problem mankind has to face today is not an outgrowth of the operation of the market economy. It is a product of purposive action on the part of governments. It is not one of the evils inherent in capitalism as the demagogues trumpet. It is, on the contrary, the fruit of policies hostile to capitalism and intent upon sabotaging and destroying its operation. The classical country of the cartels was Germany. In the last decades of the 19th century, the German Reich embarked upon a vast scheme of sozialpolitik. The idea was to raise the income and the standard of living of the wage earners by various measures of what is called pro-labor legislation, by the much-glorified Bismarck Plan of Social Security, and by labor union pressure and compulsion for the attainment of higher wage rates. The advocates of this policy defied the warnings of the economists. There is no such thing as economic law, they announced. 
The Hohenzollern Empire, which had defeated the emperors of Austria and of France, and before which the nations of the world trembled, was above any law. Its will was the supreme canon. In stark reality, the Sozialpolitik raised costs of production within Germany. Every progress of the alleged pro-labor legislation and every successful strike disarranged industrial conditions to the disadvantage of the German enterprises. It made it harder for them to outdo foreign competitors for whom the domestic events of Germany did not raise costs of production. If the Germans had been in a position to renounce the export of manufactures and to produce only for the domestic market, the tariff could have sheltered the German plants against the intensified competition of foreign business. They would have been in a position to reap higher prices. What the wage earner would have profited from the achievements of the legislature and the unions would have been absorbed by the higher prices he would have had to pay for the articles he bought. Real wage rates would have risen only to the extent the entrepreneurs could improve technological procedures and thereby increase the productivity of labor. The tariff would have rendered the Sozialpolitik harmless in preventing a spread of unemployment. But Germany is, and was already at the time Bismarck inaugurated his pro-labor policy, a predominantly industrial country. Its plants exported a considerable part of their total output. These exports enabled the Germans to import the foodstuffs and raw materials they could not grow in their own country, comparatively overpopulated and poorly endowed with natural resources as it was. As has been pointed out above, such a surplus production renders a protective tariff ineffective. Only cartels could free Germany from the catastrophic consequences of its progressive pro-labor policies. The cartels charged monopoly prices at home and sold abroad at cheaper prices. The cartels are the necessary accompaniment and upshot of a progressive labor policy, as far as it affects industries dependent on foreign markets. The cartels do not, of course, safeguard for the wage earners the illusory social gains which the labor politicians and the union leaders promise them. There is no means of raising wage rates for all those eager to earn wages above the height determined by the productivity of each kind of labor. What the cartels achieved was merely to counterbalance the apparent gains in nominal wage rates by corresponding increases in domestic commodity prices. But the most disastrous effect of minimum wage rates, permanent mass unemployment, was at first avoided. Germany was not the first country that resorted to pro-labor legislation and gave its labor unions a free hand to enforce minimum wage rates. Other countries had preceded Germany in this respect. But the opposition which these policies had encountered on the part of economists, reasonable statesmen, and businessmen had for many years put a check upon the progress of these destructive methods of government. For the most part, their alleged benefits did not grant the wage earners more than they had already won, without any interference on the part of the government, by the technological improvements which never cease under capitalism. 
When, in some cases, the government had gone a little farther, the propulsive evolution of business in a very short time made things even. But in later years, especially after the end of the First World War, all other nations adopted for their labor policies the thorough methods of the Germans. Again, the cartel had to supplement the pro-labor policies in order to conceal their futility and to postpone, for a time, their manifest fiasco. With all industries which cannot content themselves with the domestic market and are intent upon selling a part of their output abroad, the function of the tariff, in this age of government interference with business, is to enable the establishment of domestic monopoly prices. Whatever the purpose and the effects of tariffs may have been in the past, as soon as an exporting country embarks upon measures designed to increase the revenues of the wage earners or the farmers above the potential market rates, it must foster schemes which result in domestic monopoly prices for the commodities concerned. A national government's might is limited to the territory subject to its sovereignty, it has the power to raise domestic costs of production. It does not have the power to force foreigners to pay correspondingly higher prices for the products. If exports are not to be discontinued, they must be subsidized. The subsidy can be paid openly by the treasury, or its burden can be imposed upon the consumers by the cartel's monopoly prices. The advocates of government interference with business ascribe to the state the power to benefit certain groups within the framework of the market by a mere fiat. In fact, this power is the government's power to foster monopolistic combines. The monopoly gains are the funds out of which the social gains are financed. As far as these monopoly gains do not suffice, the various measures of interventionism immediately paralyze the operation of the market. Mass unemployment, depression, and capital consumption appear. This explains the eagerness of all contemporary governments to foster monopoly in all those sectors of the market which are, in some way or other, connected with export trade. If a government does not or cannot succeed in attaining its monopolistic aims indirectly, it resorts to direct action. In the field of coal and potash, the imperial government of Germany established compulsory cartels. The American New Deal was prevented by the opposition of business from organizing the nation's great industries on an obligatory cartel basis. It succeeded better in some vital branches of farming with measures designed to restrict output for the sake of monopoly prices. A long series of agreements concluded between the world's most prominent governments aimed at the establishment of world market monopoly prices for various raw materials and foodstuffs. It is the avowed purpose of the United Nations to continue these plans. It is necessary to view this pro-monopoly policy of the contemporary governments as a uniform phenomenon in order to discern the reasons which motivated it. From the catalactic point of view, these monopolies are not uniform. 
the contractual cartels into which entrepreneurs enter in taking advantage of the incentive offered by protective tariffs, are instances of margin monopoly. Where the government directly fosters monopoly prices, we are faced with instances of license monopoly. The factor of production by the restriction of the use of which the monopoly price is brought about is the license which the laws make a requisite for supplying the consumers. Such licenses may be granted in different ways. A. An unlimited license is granted to practically every applicant. This amounts to a state of affairs under which no license at all is required. B. Licenses are granted only to selected applicants. Competition is restricted. However, monopoly prices can emerge only if the licensees act in concert and the configuration of demand is propitious. C. There is only one licensee. The licensee, for example, the holder of a patent or a copyright, is a monopolist. If the configuration of the demand is propitious, and if the licensee wants to reap monopoly gains, he can ask monopoly prices. D. The licenses granted are limited. They confer upon the licensee only the right to produce or to sell a definite quantity in order to prevent him from disarranging the authority's scheme. The authority itself directs the establishment of monopoly prices. Finally, there are the instances in which a government establishes a monopoly for fiscal purposes. The monopoly gains go to the Treasury. Many European governments have instituted tobacco monopolies. Others have monopolized salt, matches, telegraph and telephone service, broadcasting, and so on. Without exception, every country has a government monopoly of the postal service. 10. Margin monopoly need not always owe its appearance to an institutional factor such as tariffs. It can also be produced by sufficient differences in the fertility or productivity of some factors of production. It has already been said that it is a serious blunder to speak of a land monopoly and to refer to monopoly prices and monopoly gains in explaining the prices of agricultural products and the rent of land. As far as history is confronted with instances of monopoly prices for agricultural products, it was license monopoly, fostered by government decree. However, the acknowledgment of these facts does not mean that differences in the fertility of the soil could never bring about monopoly prices. If the difference between the fertility of the poorest soil still tilled and the richest fallow fields available for an expansion of production were so great as to enable the owners of the already exploited soil to find an advantageous monopoly price within this margin, they could consider restricting production by concerted action in order to reap monopoly prices. But it is a fact that physical conditions in agriculture do not comply with these requirements. It is precisely on account of this fact that farmers longing for monopoly prices do not resort to spontaneous action, but ask for the interference of governments. In various branches of mining, 
Conditions are often more propitious for the emergence of monopoly prices based on margin monopoly. 11. It has been asserted again and again that the economies of big-scale production have generated a tendency toward monopoly prices in the processing industries. Such a monopoly would be called, in our terminology, a margin monopoly. Before entering into a discussion of this topic, one must clarify the role an increase or decrease in the unit's average cost of production plays in the considerations of a monopolist searching for the most advantageous monopoly price. We consider a case in which the owner of a monopolized complementary factor of production, for example, a patent, at the same time manufactures the product P. If the average cost of production of one unit of P, without any regard to the patent, decreases with the increase in the quantity produced, the monopolist must weigh this against the gains expected from the restriction of output. If, on the other hand, cost of production per unit decreases with the restriction of total production, the incentive to embark upon monopolistic restraint is augmented. It is obvious that the mere fact that big-scale production tends as a rule to lower average costs of production is in itself not a factor driving toward the emergence of monopoly prices. It is, rather, a checking factor. What those who blame the economies of big-scale production for the spread of monopoly prices are trying to say is that the higher efficiency of big-scale production makes it difficult or even impossible for small-scale plants to compete successfully. A big-scale plant could, they believe, resort to monopoly prices with impunity, because small business is not in a position to challenge its monopoly. Now, it is certainly true that in many branches of the processing industries, it would be foolish to enter the market with the high-cost products of small, inadequate plants. A modern cotton mill does not need to fear the competition of old-fashioned distaffs. Its rivals are other, more or less, adequately equipped mills. But this does not mean that it enjoys the opportunity of selling at monopoly prices. There is competition between big businesses, too. If monopoly prices prevail in the sale of the products of big-size business, the reasons are either patents or monopoly in the ownership of mines or other sources of raw material, or cartels based on tariffs. One must not confuse the notions of monopoly and of monopoly prices. Mere monopoly, as such, is catalactically of no importance if it does not result in monopoly prices. Monopoly prices are consequential only because they are the outcome of a conduct of business defying the supremacy of the consumers and substituting the private interests of the monopolist for those of the public. They are the only instance in the operation of a market economy in which the distinction between production for profit and production for use could to some extent be made, if one were prepared to disregard the fact that monopoly gains have nothing at all to do with profits proper. They are not a part of what catalactics can call profits. They are an increase in the price earned from the sale of the services rendered by some factors of production, 
some of these factors being physical factors, some of them merely institutional. If the entrepreneurs and capitalists, in the absence of a monopoly price constellation, abstain from expanding production in a certain branch of industry, because the opportunities offered to them in other branches are more attractive, they do not act in defiance of the wants of the consumers. On the contrary, they follow precisely the line indicated by the demand as expressed on the market. The political bias which has obfuscated the discussion of the monopoly problem has neglected to pay attention to the essential issues involved. In dealing with every case of monopoly prices, one must first of all raise the question of what obstacles restrain people from challenging the monopolists. In answering this question, one discovers the role played in the emergence of monopoly prices by institutional factors. It is nonsense to speak of conspiracy with regard to the deals between American firms and German cartels. If an American wanted to manufacture an article protected by a patent owned by Germans, he was compelled by the American law to come to an arrangement with German business. 12. A special case is what may be called the failure monopoly. In the past, capitalists invested funds in a plant designed for the production of the Article P. Later events proved the investment a failure. The prices which can be obtained in selling P are so low that the capital invested in the plant's inconvertible equipment does not yield a return. It is lost. However, these prices are high enough to yield a reasonable return for the variable capital to be employed for the current production of P. If the irrevocable loss of the capital invested in the inconvertible equipment is written off on the books, and all corresponding alterations are made in the accounts, the reduced capital working in the conduct of the business is by and large so profitable that it would be a new mistake to stop production altogether. The plant works at full capacity, producing the quantity Q of P and selling the unit at the price S. But conditions may be such that it is possible for the enterprise to reap a monopoly gain by restricting output to Q divided by 2 and selling the unit of P at the price of 3S. Then the capital invested in the inconvertible equipment no longer appears completely lost. It yields a modest return, namely the monopoly gain. This enterprise now sells at monopoly prices and reaps monopoly gains, although the total capital invested yields little when compared with what the investors would have earned if they had invested in other lines of business. The enterprise withholds from the market the services which the unused production capacity of its durable equipment could render and fares better than it would by producing at full capacity. It defies the orders of the public. The public would have been in a better position if the investors had avoided the mistake of immobilizing a part of their capital in the production of P. They would, of course, not get any P, 
but they would instead obtain those articles which they miss now because the capital required for their production has been wasted in the construction of an aggregate for the production of pea. However, as things are now after this irreparable fault has been committed, they want to get more of P, and are ready to pay for it what is now its potential competitive market price, namely S. They do not approve, as conditions are now, the action of the enterprise in withholding an amount of variable capital from employment for the production of P. This amount certainly does not remain unused. It goes into other lines of business, and produces there something else, namely M. But as conditions are now, the consumers would prefer an increase of the available quantity of P to an increase in the available quantity of M. The proof is that in the absence of a monopolistic restriction of the capacity for the production of P, as it is under given conditions, the profitability of a production of the quantity Q of S would be such that it would pay better than an increase in the quantity of the article M produced. There are two distinctive features of this case. First, the monopoly prices paid by the buyers are still lower than the total cost of production of P would be if full account is taken of the whole input of the investors. Second, the monopoly gains of the firm are so small that they do not make the total venture appear a good investment. It remains malinvestment. It is precisely this fact that constitutes the monopolistic position of the firm. No outsider wants to enter its field of entrepreneurial activity because the production of P results in losses. Failure monopoly is by no means a merely academic construction. It is, for instance, actual today in the case of some railroad companies. But one must guard against the mistake of interpreting every instance of unused production capacity as a failure monopoly. Even in the absence of monopoly, it may be more profitable to employ variable capital for other purposes instead of expanding a firm's production to the limit fixed by the capacity of its durable inconvertible equipment. Then the output restriction complies precisely with the state of the competitive market and the wishes of the public. 13. Local monopolies are, as a rule, of institutional origin. But there are also local monopolies which originate out of conditions of the unhampered market. Often the institutional monopoly is designed to deal with the monopoly which came into existence, or would be likely to come into existence, without any authoritarian interference with the market. A catalactic classification of local monopolies must distinguish three groups, margin monopoly, limited space monopoly, and license monopoly. A local margin monopoly is characterized by the fact that the barrier preventing outsiders from competing on the local market and breaking the monopoly of the local sellers is the comparative height of transportation costs. No tariffs are needed to grant limited protection to a firm which owns all the adjacent natural resources required for the production of bricks against the competition of far-distant tile works.
the costs of transportation provide them with a margin in which, the configuration of demand being propitious, an advantageous monopoly price can be found. So far, local margin monopolies do not differ catalactically from other instances of margin monopoly. What distinguishes them, and makes it necessary to deal with them in a special way, is their relation to the rent of urban land on the one hand, and their relation to city development on the other. Let us assume that an area A, offering favorable conditions for the aggregation of an increasing urban population, is subject to monopoly prices for building materials. Consequently, building costs are higher than they would be in the absence of such a monopoly. But there is no reason for those weighing the pros and cons of choosing the location of their homes and their workshops in A to pay higher prices for the purchase or the renting of such houses and workshops. These prices are determined on the one hand by the corresponding prices in other areas, and on the other by the advantages which settling in A offers when compared with settling somewhere else. The higher expenditure required for construction does not affect these prices. Its incidence falls upon the yield of land. The burden of the monopoly gains of the sellers of building materials falls on the owners of the urban soil. These gains absorb proceeds which, in their absence, would go to these owners. Even in the not very likely case that the demand for houses and workshops is such as to make it possible for the owners of the land to attain monopoly prices in selling and leasing, the monopoly prices of the building materials would affect only the proceeds of the landowners, not the prices to be paid by the buyers or tenants. The fact that the burden of the monopoly gains reverts to the price of urban employment of the land does not mean that it does not check the growth of the city. It postpones the employment of the peripheral land for the expansion of the urban settlement. The instant at which it becomes advantageous for the owner of a piece of suburban land to withdraw it from agricultural or other non-urban employment and to use it for urban development appears at a later date. Now, arresting a city's development is a two-edged action. Its usefulness for the monopolist is ambiguous. He cannot know whether future conditions will be such as to attract more people to A, the only market for his products. One of the attractions a city offers to newcomers is its bigness, the multitude of its population. Industry and commerce tend toward centers. If the monopolist's action delays the growth of the urban community, it may direct the stream toward other places. An opportunity may be missed, which never comes back. Greater proceeds in the future may be sacrificed to comparatively small short-run gains. It is therefore at least questionable whether the owner of a local margin monopoly in the long run serves his own interests well by embarking upon selling at monopoly prices. It would often be more advantageous for him to discriminate between the various buyers, he could sell at higher prices for construction projects in the central parts of the city and at lower prices for such projects in peripheral districts. 
the range of local margin monopoly is more restricted than is generally assumed. Limited space monopoly is the outcome of the fact that physical conditions restrict the field of operation in such a way that only one or a few enterprises can enter it. Monopoly emerges when there is only one enterprise in the field, or when the few operating enterprises combine for concerted action. It is sometimes possible for two competing trolley companies to operate in the same streets of a city. There were instances in which two or even more companies shared in supplying the residents of an area with gas, electricity, and telephone service. But even in such exceptional cases, there is hardly any real competition. Conditions suggest to the rivals that they combine, at least tacitly. The narrowness of the space results, one way or another, in monopoly. In practice, limited space monopoly is closely connected with license monopoly. It is practically impossible to enter the field without an understanding with the local authorities controlling the streets and their subsoil. Even in the absence of laws requiring a franchise for the establishment of public utility services, it would be necessary for the enterprises to come to an agreement with the municipal authorities. Whether or not such agreements are to be legally described as franchises is unimportant. Monopoly, of course, need not result in monopoly prices. It depends on the special data of each case whether or not a monopolistic public utility company could resort to monopoly prices. But there are certainly cases in which it can. It may be that the company is ill-advised in choosing a monopoly price policy and that it would better serve its long-run interests by lower prices, but there is no guarantee that a monopolist will find out what is most advantageous for him. One must realize that limited space monopoly may often result in monopoly prices. In this case, we are confronted with a situation in which the market process does not accomplish its democratic function. Private enterprise is very unpopular with our contemporaries. Private ownership of the means of production is especially disliked in those fields in which limited space monopoly emerges, even if the company does not charge monopoly prices, and even if its business yields only small profits or results in losses. A public utility company is, in the eyes of the interventionist and socialist politicians, a public enemy. The voters approve of any evil inflicted upon it by the authorities. It is generally assumed that these enterprises should be nationalized or municipalized. Monopoly gains, it is said, must never go to private citizens. They should go to the public funds exclusively. The outcome of the municipalization and nationalization policies of the last decades was, almost without exception, financial failure poor service, and political corruption. Blinded by their anti-capitalistic prejudices, people condone poor service and corruption, and for a long time did not bother about the financial failure. However, this failure is one of the factors which contributed to the emergence of the present-day crisis of interventionism. 14. 
It is customary to characterize traditional labor union policies as monopolistic schemes aiming at the substitution of monopoly wage rates for competitive wage rates. However, as a rule, labor unions do not aim at monopoly wage rates. A union is intent upon restricting competition on its own sector of the labor market in order to raise its wage rates. But restriction of competition and monopoly price policy must not be confused. The characteristic feature of monopoly prices is the fact that the sale of only a part, lowercase p, of the total supply, uppercase p, available, nets higher proceeds than the sale of uppercase p. The monopolist earns a monopoly gain by withholding uppercase P minus lowercase p from the market. It is not the height of this gain that marks the monopoly price situation as such, but the purposive action of the monopolists in bringing it about. The monopolist is concerned with the employment of the whole stock available. He is equally interested in every fraction of this stock. If a part of it remains unused, it is his loss. Nonetheless, he chooses to have a part unused, because under the prevailing configuration of demand, it is more advantageous for him to proceed in this way. It is the peculiar state of the market that motivates his decision. The monopoly, which is one of the two indispensable conditions of the emergence of monopoly prices, may be, and is as a rule, the product of an institutional interference with the market data. But these external forces do not directly result in monopoly prices. Only if a second requirement is fulfilled is the opportunity for monopolistic action set. It is different in the case of simple supply restriction. Here, the authors of the restriction are not concerned with what may happen to the part of the supply they bar from access to the market. The fate of the people who own this part does not matter to them. They are looking only at that part of the supply which remains on the market. Monopolistic action is advantageous for the monopolist only if total net proceeds at a monopoly price exceed total net proceeds at the potential competitive price. Restrictive action is always advantageous for the privileged group, and disadvantageous for those whom it excludes from the market. It always raises the price per unit, and therefore the total net proceeds of the privileged group. The losses of the excluded group are not taken into account. It may happen that the benefits which the privileged group derives from the restriction of competition are much more lucrative for them than any imaginable monopoly price policy could be. But this is another question. It does not blot out the catalactic differences between these two modes of action. The prevailing labor union policies are restrictive and not monopoly price policies. The unions are intent upon restricting the supply of labor in their field without bothering about the fate of those excluded. They have succeeded in every comparatively underpopulated country in erecting immigration barriers. Thus they preserve their comparatively high wage rates. 
the excluded foreign workers are forced to stay in their countries, in which the marginal productivity of labor and, consequently, wage rates are lower. The tendency toward an equalization of wage rates which prevails under free mobility of labor from country to country is paralyzed. On the domestic market, the unions do not tolerate the competition of non-unionized workers and admit only a restricted number to union membership. Those not admitted must go into less remunerative jobs or must remain unemployed. The unions are not interested in the fate of these people. Even if a union takes over the responsibility for its unemployed members and pays them out of the contributions of its employed members unemployment doles not lower than the earnings of the employed members, its action is not a monopoly price policy. For the unemployed union members are not the only people wronged by the union's policy of substituting higher rates for the potential lower market rates. The interests of those excluded from membership are not taken into account. The Mathematical Treatment of the Theory of Monopoly Prices Mathematical economists have paid special attention to the theory of monopoly prices. It looks as if monopoly prices would be a chapter of catalactics for which mathematical treatment is more appropriate than it is for other chapters of catalactics. However, the services which mathematics can render in this field are rather poor, too. With regard to competitive prices, mathematics cannot give more than a mathematical description of various states of equilibrium and of conditions in the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy. It cannot say anything about the actions which would finally establish these equilibria and this evenly rotating system if no further changes in the data were to occur. In the theory of monopoly prices, mathematics comes a little nearer to the reality of action. It shows how the monopolist could find out the optimum monopoly price, provided he had at his disposal all the data required. But the monopolist does not know the shape of the curve of demand. What he knows is only points at which the curves of demand and supply intersected one another in the past. He is therefore not in a position to make use of the mathematical formulas in order to discover whether there is any monopoly price for his monopolized article, and if so, which of various monopoly prices is the optimum price. The mathematical and graphical disquisitions are therefore no less futile in this sector of action than in any other sector. But at least they schematize the deliberations of the monopolist, and do not, as in the case of competitive prices, satisfy themselves in describing a merely auxiliary construction of theoretical analysis which does not play a role in real action. Contemporary mathematical economists have confused the study of monopoly prices. They consider the monopolist not as the seller of a monopolized commodity, but as an entrepreneur and producer. However, it is necessary to distinguish the monopoly gain clearly from entrepreneurial profit. Monopoly gains can only be reaped by the seller of a commodity or a service. 
an entrepreneur can reap them only in his capacity as seller of a monopolized commodity, not in his entrepreneurial capacity. The advantages and disadvantages which may result from the fall or rise in cost of production per unit with increasing total production increase or diminish the monopolist's total net proceeds and influence his conduct. But the catalactic treatment of monopoly prices must not forget that the specific monopoly gain stems, with due allowance made to the configuration of demand, only from the monopoly of a commodity or a right. It is this alone which affords to the monopolist the opportunity to restrict supply without fear that other people can frustrate his action by expanding the quantity they offer for sale. Attempts to define the conditions required for the emergence of monopoly prices by resorting to the configuration of production costs are vain. It is misleading to describe the market situation resulting in competitive prices by declaring that the individual producer could sell at the market price also a greater quantity than what he really sells. This is true only when two special conditions are fulfilled. The producer concerned, A, is not the marginal producer, and expanding production does not require additional costs which cannot be recovered in selling the additional quantity of products. Then, A's expansion forces the marginal producer to discontinue production. The supply offered for sale remains unchanged. The characteristic mark of the competitive price, as distinguished from the monopoly price, is that the former is the outcome of a situation under which the owners of goods and services of all orders are compelled to serve best the wishes of the consumers. On a competitive market, there is no such thing as a price policy of the sellers. They have no alternative other than to sell as much as they can at the highest price offered to them. But the monopolist fares better by withholding from the market a part of the supply at his disposal in order to make specific monopoly gains. 7. Goodwill It must be emphasized again that the market is peopled by men who are not omniscient and have only a more or less defective knowledge of prevailing conditions. The buyer must always rely upon the trustworthiness of the seller. Even in the purchase of producers' goods, the buyer, although as a rule an expert in the field, depends to some extent on the reliability of the seller. This is still more the case on the market for consumers' goods. Here, the seller, for the most part, excels the buyer in technological and commercial insight. The salesman's task is not simply to sell what the customer is asking for. He must often advise the customer how to choose the merchandise which can best satisfy his needs. The retailer is not only a vendor, he is also a friendly helper. The public does not heedlessly patronize every shop. If possible, a man prefers a store or a brand with which he himself or trustworthy friends have had good experience in the past. Goodwill is the renown a business acquires on account of past achievements. 
It implies the expectation that the bearer of the goodwill in the future will live up to his earlier standards. Goodwill is not a phenomenon appearing only in business relations. It is present in all social relations. It determines a person's choice of his spouse and of his friends and his voting for a candidate in elections. Catalactics, of course, deals only with commercial goodwill. It does not matter whether the goodwill is based on real achievements and merits, or whether it is only a product of imagination and fallacious ideas. What counts in human action is not truth, as it may appear to an omniscient being, but the opinions of people liable to error. There are some instances in which customers are prepared to pay a higher price for a special brand of a compound, although the branded article does not differ in its physical and chemical structure from another, cheaper product. Experts may deem such conduct unreasonable, but no man can acquire expertness in all fields which are relevant for his choices. He cannot entirely avoid substituting confidence in men for knowledge of the true state of affairs. The regular customer does not always select the article or the service, but the purveyor whom he trusts. He pays a premium to those whom he considers reliable. The role which goodwill plays on the market does not impair or restrict competition. Everybody is free to acquire goodwill, and every bearer of goodwill can lose goodwill once acquired. Many reformers, impelled by their bias for paternal government, advocate authoritarian grade labeling as a substitute for trademarks. They would be right if rulers and bureaucrats were endowed with omniscience and perfect impartiality. But as officeholders are not free from human weakness, the realization of such plans would merely substitute the defects of government appointees for those of individual citizens. One does not make a man happier by preventing him from discriminating between a brand of cigarettes or canned food he prefers and another brand he likes less. The acquisition of goodwill requires not only honesty and zeal in attending to the customers, but no less money expenditure. It takes time until a firm has acquired a steady clientele. In the interval, it must often put up with losses, against which it balances expected later profits. From the point of view of the seller, goodwill is, as it were, a necessary factor of production. It is appraised accordingly. It does not matter that, as a rule, the money equivalent of the goodwill does not appear in book entries and balance sheets. If a business is sold, a price is paid for the goodwill, provided it is possible to transfer it to the acquirer. It is consequently a problem of catalactics to investigate the nature of this peculiar thing called goodwill. In this scrutiny, we must distinguish three different cases. Case 1. The goodwill gives to the seller the opportunity to sell at monopoly prices, or to discriminate among various classes of buyers. This does not differ from other instances of monopoly prices or price discrimination. Case 2. 
The goodwill gives to the seller merely the opportunity to sell at prices corresponding to those which his competitors attain. If he had no goodwill, he would not sell at all, or only by cutting prices. Goodwill is, for him, no less necessary than the business premises, the keeping of a well-assorted stock of merchandise, and the hiring of skilled helpers. The costs incurred by the acquisition of goodwill play the same role as any other business expenses. They must be defrayed in the same way by an excess of total proceeds over total costs. Case 3. The seller enjoys within a limited circle of staunch patrons such a brilliant reputation that he can sell to them at higher prices than those paid to his less renowned competitors. However, these prices are not monopoly prices. They are not the result of a deliberate policy aiming at a restriction in total sales for the sake of raising total net proceeds. It may be that the seller has no opportunity whatsoever to sell a larger quantity, as is the case, for example, with a doctor who is busy to the limit of his powers, although he charges more than his less popular colleagues. It may also be that the expansion of sales would require additional capital investment, and that the seller either lacks this capital or believes that he has a more profitable employment for it. What prevents an expansion of output and of the quantity of merchandise or services offered for sale is not a purposive action on the part of the seller, but the state of the market. As the misinterpretation of these facts has generated a whole mythology of imperfect competition and monopolistic competition, it is necessary to enter into a more detailed scrutiny of the considerations of an entrepreneur who is weighing the pros and cons of an expansion of his business. Expansion of a production aggregate, and no less increasing production from partial utilization of such an aggregate to full capacity production, require additional capital investment, which is reasonable only if there is no more profitable investment available. Expenditure for additional advertising also means additional input of capital. It does not matter whether the entrepreneur is rich enough to invest his own funds or whether he would have to borrow the funds needed. Also, that part of an entrepreneur's own capital which is not employed in his firm is not idle. It is utilized somewhere in the framework of the economic system. In order to be employed for the expansion of the business concerned, these funds must be withdrawn from their present employment. Cash holding, even if it exceeds the customary amount and is called hoarding, is a variety of employing funds available. Under the prevailing state of the market, the actor considers cash holding the most appropriate employment of a part of his assets. The entrepreneur will only embark upon this change of investment if he expects from it an increase in his net returns. In addition, there are other doubts which may check the propensity to expand a prospering enterprise, even if the market situation seems to offer propitious chances. The entrepreneur may mistrust his own ability to manage a bigger outfit successfully. 
he may also be frightened by the example provided by once prosperous enterprises for which expansion resulted in failure. A businessman who, thanks to his splendid goodwill, is in a position to sell at higher prices than less renowned competitors, could, of course, renounce his advantage and reduce his prices to the level of his competitors. Like every seller of commodities or of labor, he could abstain from taking fullest advantage of the state of the market and sell at a price at which demand exceeds supply. In doing so, he would be making presents to some people. The donees would be those who could buy at this lowered price. Others, although ready to buy at the same price, would have to go away empty-handed because the supply was not sufficient. The restriction of the quantity of every article produced and offered for sale is always the outcome of the decisions of entrepreneurs intent upon reaping the highest possible profit and avoiding losses. The characteristic mark of monopoly prices is not to be seen in the fact that the entrepreneurs did not produce more of the article concerned, and thus did not bring about a fall in its price. Neither is it to be seen in the fact that complementary factors of production remain unused, although their fuller employment would have lowered the price of the product. The only relevant question is whether or not the restriction of production is the outcome of the action of the monopolistic owner of a supply of goods and services who withholds a part of this supply in order to attain higher prices for the rest. The characteristic feature of monopoly prices is the monopolist's defiance of the wishes of the consumers. A competitive price for copper means that the final price of copper tends toward a point at which the deposits are exploited to the extent permitted by the prices of the required non-specific complementary factors of production. The marginal mine does not yield mining rent. The consumers are getting as much copper as they themselves determine by the prices they allow for copper and all other commodities. A monopoly price of copper means that the deposits of copper are utilized only to a smaller degree, because this is more advantageous to the owners. Capital and labor, which, if the supremacy of the consumers were not infringed, would have been employed for the production of additional copper, are employed for the production of other articles, for which the demand of the consumers is less intense. The interests of the owners of the copper deposits take precedence over those of the consumers. The available resources of copper are not employed according to the wishes and plans of the public. Profits are, of course, also the outcome of a discrepancy between the wishes of the consumers and the actions of the entrepreneurs. If the entrepreneurs had had in the past better foresight of the present state of the market, no profits and losses would have emerged. Their competition would have already adjusted in the past, due allowance being made for time preference, the prices of the complementary factors of production to the present prices of the products. But this statement cannot brush away the fundamental difference between profits and monopoly gains.
The entrepreneur profits to the extent he has succeeded in serving the consumers better than other people have done. The monopolist reaps monopoly gains through impairing the satisfaction of the consumers. 8. Monopoly of Demand Monopoly prices can emerge only from a monopoly of supply. A monopoly of demand does not bring about a market situation different from that under not-monopolized demand. The monopolistic buyer, whether he is an individual or a group of individuals acting in concert, cannot reap a specific gain corresponding to the monopoly gains of monopolistic sellers. If he restricts demand, he will buy at a lower price, but then the quantity bought will drop too. In the same way in which governments restrict competition in order to improve the position of privileged sellers, they can also restrict competition for the benefit of privileged buyers. Again and again, governments have put an embargo on the export of certain commodities. Thus, by excluding foreign buyers, they have aimed at lowering the domestic price. But such a lower price is not a counterpart of monopoly prices. What is commonly dealt with as monopoly of demand are certain phenomena of the determination of prices for specific complementary factors of production. The production of one unit of the commodity M requires, besides the employment of various non-specific factors, the employment of one unit of each of the two absolutely specific factors A and B. Neither A nor B can be replaced by any other factor. On the other hand, A is of no use when not combined with B, and vice versa. The available supply of A far exceeds the available supply of B. It is therefore not possible for the owners of A to attain any price for A. The demand for A always lags behind the supply. A is not an economic good. If A is a mineral deposit, the extraction of which requires the use of capital and labor, the ownership of the deposits does not yield a royalty. There is no mining rent. But if the owners of A form a cartel, they can turn the tables. They can restrict the supply of A offered for sale to such a fraction that the supply of B exceeds the supply of A. Now A becomes an economic good for which prices are paid, while the price of B dwindles to zero. If, then, the owners of B react by forming a cartel, too, a price struggle develops between the two monopolistic combines about the outcome of which catalactics can make no statements. As has already been pointed out, the pricing process does not bring about a uniquely determined result in cases in which more than one of the factors of production required is of an absolutely specific character. It does not matter whether or not the market situation is such that the factors A and B together could be sold at monopoly prices. It does not make any difference whether the price for a lot, including one unit of both A and B, is a monopoly price or a competitive price. 
Thus, what is sometimes viewed as a monopoly of demand turns out to be a monopoly of supply formed under particular conditions. The sellers of A and of B are intent upon selling at monopoly prices, without regard to the question whether or not the price of M can become a monopoly price. What alone matters for them is to obtain as great a share as possible of the joint price which the buyers are ready to pay for A and B together. The case does not indicate any feature which would make it permissible to apply to it the term monopoly of demand. This mode of expression becomes understandable, however, if one takes into account the accidental features marking the contest between the two groups. If the owners of A or B are at the same time the entrepreneurs conducting the processing of M, their cartel takes on the outward appearance of a monopoly of demand. But this personal union combining two separate catalactic functions does not alter the essential issue. What is at stake is the settlement of affairs between two groups of monopolistic sellers. Our example fits, mutatis mutandis, the case in which A and B can also be employed for purposes other than the production of M, provided these other employments only yield smaller returns. 9. Consumption as Affected by Monopoly Prices The individual consumer may react to monopoly prices in different ways. 1. Notwithstanding the rise in price, the individual consumer does not restrict his purchases of the monopolized article. He prefers to restrict the purchase of other goods. If all consumers were to react in this way, the competitive price would have already risen to the height of the monopoly price. 2. The consumer restricts his purchase of the monopolized article to such an extent that he does not spend for it more than he would have spent for the purchase of a larger quantity under the competitive price. If all people were to react in this way, the seller would not get more under the monopoly price than he did under the competitive price. He would not derive any gain by deviating from the competitive price. 3. The consumer restricts his purchase of the monopolized commodity to such an extent that he spends less for it than he would have spent under the competitive price. He buys with the money thus saved goods which he would not have bought otherwise. If all people were to react in this way, the seller would harm his interests by substituting a higher price for the competitive price. No monopoly price could emerge. Only a benefactor who wanted to wean his fellow men from the consumption of pernicious drugs would, in this case, raise the price of the article concerned above the competitive level. 4. The consumer spends more for the monopolized commodity than he would have spent under the competitive price, and acquires only a smaller quantity of it. However the consumer may react, his satisfaction appears to be impaired from the viewpoint of his own valuations. He is not so well served under monopoly prices as under competitive prices. The monopoly gain of the seller is borne by a monopoly deprivation of the buyer. 
even if some consumers, as in case three, acquire goods which they would not have bought in the absence of the monopoly price, their satisfaction is lower than it would have been under a different state of prices. Capital and labor, which are withdrawn from the production of products, which drops on account of the monopolistic restriction of the supply of one of the complementary factors required for their production, are employed for the production of other things, which would otherwise not have been produced. But the consumers value these other things less. Yet there is an exception to this general rule that monopoly prices benefit the seller and harm the buyer, and infringe the supremacy of the consumer's interests. If on a competitive market one of the complementary factors, namely F, needed for the production of the consumer's good, G, does not attain any price at all, Although the production of F requires various expenditures, and consumers are ready to pay for the consumer's good G, a price which makes its production profitable on a competitive market, the monopoly price for F becomes a necessary requirement for the production of G. It is this idea that people advance in favor of patent and copyright legislation. If inventors and authors were not in a position to make money by inventing and writing, they would be prevented from devoting their time to these activities, and from defraying the costs involved. The public would not derive any advantage from the absence of monopoly prices for F. It would, on the contrary, miss the satisfaction it could derive from the acquisition of G. Many people are alarmed by the reckless use of the deposits of minerals and oil which cannot be replaced. Our contemporaries, they say, squander an exhaustible stock without any regard for the coming generations. We are consuming our own birthright and that of the future. Now these complaints make little sense. We do not know whether later ages will still rely upon the same raw materials on which we depend today. It is true that the exhaustion of the oil deposits, and even those of coal, is progressing at a quick rate. But it is very likely that in a hundred or five hundred years people will resort to other methods of producing heat and power. Nobody knows whether we, in being less profligate with these deposits, would not deprive ourselves without any advantage to men of the twenty-first or of the twenty-fourth centuries. It is vain to provide for the needs of ages the technological abilities of which we cannot even dream. But it is contradictory if the same people who lament the depletion of some natural resources are no less vehement in indicting monopolistic restraint in their present-day exploitation. The effect of monopoly prices of mercury is certainly a slowing down of the rate of depletion. In the eyes of those frightened by the aspect of a future scarcity of mercury, this effect must appear highly desirable. Economics, in unmasking such contradictions, does not aim at a justification of monopoly prices for oil, minerals, and ore. Economics has neither the task of justifying nor of condemning. It has merely to scrutinize the effects of all modes of human action.
It does not enter the arena in which friends and foes of monopoly prices are intent upon pleading their causes. Both sides in this heated controversy resort to fallacious arguments. The anti-monopoly party is wrong in attributing to every monopoly the power to impair the situation of the buyers by restricting supply and bringing about monopoly prices. It is no less wrong in assuming that there prevails within a market economy, not hampered and sabotaged by government interference, a general tendency toward the formation of monopoly. It is a grotesque distortion of the true state of affairs to speak of monopoly capitalism instead of monopoly interventionism, and of private cartels instead of government-made cartels. Monopoly prices would be limited to some minerals which can be mined in only a few places, and to the field of local limited space monopolies if the government were not intent upon fostering them. The pro-monopoly party is wrong in crediting to the cartels the economies of big-scale production. Monopolistic concentration of production in one hand, they say, as a rule reduces average costs of production, and thus increases the amount of capital and labor available for additional production. However, no cartel is needed in order to eliminate the plants producing at higher costs. Competition on the free market achieves this effect in the absence of any monopoly and of any monopoly prices. It is, on the contrary, often the purpose of government-sponsored cartelization to preserve the existence of plants and farms which the free market would force to discontinue operations, precisely because they are producing at too high costs of production. The free market would have eliminated, for example, the sub-marginal farms and preserved only those for which production pays under the prevailing market price. But the New Deal preferred a different arrangement. It forced all farmers to a proportional restriction of output. It raised by its monopolistic policy the price of agricultural products to such a height that production became reasonable again on submarginal soil. No less erroneous are the conclusions derived from a confusion of the economies of product standardization and monopoly. If men asked only for one standard type of a definite commodity, production could be arranged in a more economical way and costs would be lowered accordingly. But if people were to behave in such a manner, standardization and the corresponding cost reduction would emerge also in the absence of monopoly. If, on the other hand, one forces the consumers to be content with one standard type only, one does not increase their satisfaction, one impairs it. A dictator may deem the conduct of the consumers rather foolish. Why should not women be dressed in uniforms like soldiers? Why should they be so crazy about individually fashioned clothes? He may be right from the point of view of his own value judgments, but the trouble is that valuation is personal, individual, and arbitrary. 
The democracy of the market consists in the fact that people themselves make their choices, and that no dictator has the power to force them to submit to his value judgments. 10. Price Discrimination on the Part of the Seller Both competitive prices and monopoly prices are the same for all buyers. There prevails on the market a permanent tendency to eliminate all discrepancies in prices for the same commodity or service. Although the valuations of the buyers and the intensity of their demand as effective on the market are different, they pay the same prices. The wealthy man does not pay more for bread than the less wealthy man, although he would be ready to pay a higher price if he could not buy it cheaper. The enthusiast, who would rather restrict his consumption of food than miss a performance of a Beethoven symphony, pays no more for admission than a man for whom music is merely a pastime, and who would not care for the concert if he could attend it only by renouncing his desire for some trifles. The difference between the price one must pay for a good and the highest amount one would be prepared to pay for it has sometimes been called consumer's surplus. But there can appear on the market conditions which make it possible for the seller to discriminate between the buyers. He can sell a commodity or a service at different prices to different buyers. He can obtain prices which may sometimes even rise to the point at which the whole consumer's surplus of a buyer disappears. Two conditions must coincide in order to make price discrimination advantageous to the seller. The first condition is that those buying at a cheaper price are not in a position to resell the commodity or the service to people to whom the discriminating seller sells only at a higher price. If such reselling cannot be prevented, the first seller's intention would be thwarted. The second condition is that the public does not react in such a way that the total net proceeds of the seller lag behind the total net proceeds he would obtain under price uniformity. This second condition is always present under conditions which would make it advantageous to a seller to substitute monopoly prices for competitive prices. But it can also appear under a market situation which would not bring about monopoly gains. For price discrimination does not enjoin upon the seller the necessity of restricting the amount sold. He does not lose any buyer completely. He must merely take into account that some buyers may restrict the amount of their purchases. But as a rule, he has the opportunity to sell the remainder of his supply to people who would not have bought at all, or would have bought only smaller quantities if they had had to pay the uniform competitive price. Consequently, the configuration of production costs plays no role in the considerations of the discriminating seller. Production costs are not affected as the total amount produced and sold remains unaltered. The most common case of price discrimination is that of physicians. A doctor who can perform 80 treatments in a week and charges $3 for each treatment is fully employed by attending to 30 patients and makes $240 a week. 
if he charges the ten wealthiest patients, who together consume fifty treatments, four dollars instead of three dollars, they will consume only forty treatments. The doctor sells the remaining ten treatments at two dollars each to patients who would not have expended three dollars for his professional services. Then his weekly proceeds rise to two hundred seventy dollars. As price discrimination is practiced by the seller only if it is more advantageous to him than selling at a uniform price, it is obvious that it results in an alteration of consumption and the allocation of factors of production to various employments. The outcome of discrimination is always that the total amount expended for the acquisition of the good concerned increases. The buyers must provide for their excess expenditure by cutting down other purchases. As it is very unlikely that those benefited by price discrimination will spend their gains for the purchase of the same goods as those the other people no longer buy in the same quantity, changes in the market data and in production become unavoidable. In the above example, the ten wealthiest patients are damaged. They pay $4 for a service for which they used to pay only $3. But it is not only the doctor who derives advantage from the discrimination. The patients whom he charges $2 are benefited too. It is true they must provide the doctor's fees by renouncing other satisfactions. However, they value these other satisfactions less than that conveyed to them by the doctor's treatment their degree of contentment attained is increased. For a full comprehension of price discrimination, it is well to remember that under the division of labor, competition among those eager to acquire the same product does not necessarily impair the individual competitor's position. The competitor's interests are antagonistic only with regard to the services rendered by the complementary, nature-given factors of production. This inescapable natural antagonism is superseded by the advantages derived from the division of labor. As far as average costs of production can be reduced by big-scale production, competition among those eager to acquire the same commodity brings about an improvement in the individual competitor's situation. The fact that not only a few people, but a great number, are eager to acquire the commodity C makes it possible to manufacture it in cost-saving processes. Then, even people with modest means can afford it. In the same way, it can sometimes happen that price discrimination renders the satisfaction of a need possible, which would have remained unsatisfied in its absence. There live in a city P lovers of music, each of whom would be prepared to spend two dollars for the recital of a virtuoso. But such a concert requires an expenditure greater than two P dollars, and can therefore not be arranged. But if discrimination of admission fees is possible, and among the P friends of music, N are ready to spend four dollars, the recital becomes feasible, provided that the amount, two times N plus P dollars, is sufficient. Then, N people spend $4 each, and P-N people $2 each for the admission, 
and forego the satisfaction of the least urgent need they would have satisfied if they had not preferred to attend the recital. Each person in the audience fares better than he would have if the unfeasibility of price discrimination had prevented the performance. It is to the interest of the organizers to enlarge the audience to the point at which the admission of additional customers involves higher costs than the fees they are ready to spend. Things would be different if the recital would have been arranged in spite of the fact that none of those admitted paid more than two dollars. Then price discrimination would have impaired the satisfaction of those who are charged four dollars. The most common practices in selling admission tickets for artistic performances and railroad tickets at different rates are not the outcome of price discrimination in the catalactical sense of the term. He who pays a higher rate gets something appreciated more than he who pays less. He gets a better seat, a more comfortable traveling opportunity, and so on. Genuine price discrimination is present in the case of physicians who, although attending to each patient with the same care, charge the wealthier clients more than the less wealthy. It is present in the case of railroads charging more for the shipping of goods, the transportation of which adds more to their value than for others, although the costs incurred by the railroad are the same. It is obvious that both the doctor and the railroad can practice discrimination only within the limits fixed by the opportunity given to the patient and the shipper to find another solution of their problems more to their own advantage. But this refers to one of the two conditions required for the emergence of price discrimination. It would be idle to point out a state of affairs in which price discrimination could be practiced by all sellers of all kinds of commodities and services. It is more important to establish the fact that within a market economy not sabotaged by government interference, the conditions required for price discrimination are so rare that it can fairly be called an exceptional phenomenon. 11. Price Discrimination on the Part of the Buyer While monopoly prices and monopoly gains cannot be realized to the advantage of a monopolistic buyer, the case is different with price discrimination. There is only one condition required for the emergence of price discrimination on the part of a monopolistic buyer on a free market, namely, crass ignorance of the state of the market on the part of the sellers. As such ignorance is unlikely to last for any length of time, price discrimination can only be practiced if the government interferes. The Swiss government has established a government-owned and operated trade monopoly for cereals. It buys cereals at world market prices on foreign markets and at higher prices from domestic farmers. In domestic purchases, it pays a higher price to farmers producing at higher costs on the rocky soil of the mountain districts, and a lower price, although still higher than the world market price, to the farmers tilling more fertile land. 12. The Connexity of Prices If a definite process of production brings about the products P and Q simultaneously, 
The entrepreneurial decisions and actions are directed by weighing the sum of the anticipated prices of P and Q. The prices of P and Q are particularly connected with one another as changes in the demand for P or for Q generate changes in the supply of Q or of P. The mutual relation of the prices of P and Q can be called connexity of production. The businessman calls P or Q a byproduct of Q or P. The production of the consumer's good Z requires the employment of the factors P and Q. The production of P the employment of the factors A and B and the production of Q, the employment of the factors C and D. Then, changes in the supply of P, or of Q, bring about changes in the demand for Q, or for P. It does not matter whether the process of producing Z out of P and Q is accomplished by the same enterprises which produce P out of A and B, and Q out of C and D, or by entrepreneurs financially independent of one another, or by the consumers themselves as a preliminary step in their consuming. The prices of P and Q are particularly connected with one another because P is useless or of a smaller utility without Q, and vice versa. The mutual relation of the prices of P and Q can be called connexity of consumption. If the services rendered by a commodity B can be substituted, even though in a not perfectly satisfactory way, for those rendered by another commodity, A, a change in the price of one of them affects the price of the other two. The mutual relation of the prices of A and B can be called connexity of substitution. Connexity of production, connexity of consumption, and connexity of substitution are particular connexities of the prices of a limited number of commodities. From these particular connexities, one must distinguish the general connexity of the prices of all goods and services. This general connexity is the outcome of the fact that for every kind of want satisfaction, besides various more or less specific factors, one scarce factor is required, which, in spite of the differences in its qualitative power to produce, can, within the limits precisely defined above, be called a non-specific factor, namely, labor. Within a hypothetical world in which all factors of production are absolutely specific, human action would operate in a multiplicity of fields of want satisfaction independent of one another. What links together in our actual world the various fields of want satisfaction is the existence of a great many non-specific factors, suitable to be employed for the attainment of various ends, and to be substituted in some degree for one another. The fact that one factor, labor, is on the one hand required for every kind of production, and on the other hand is, within the limits defined, non-specific, brings about the general connexity of all human activities. It integrates the pricing process into a whole in which all gears work on one another, 
It makes the market a concatenation of mutually interdependent phenomena. It would be absurd to look upon a definite price as if it were an isolated object in itself. A price is expressive of the position which acting men attach to a thing under the present state of their efforts to remove uneasiness. It does not indicate a relationship to something unchanging, but merely the instantaneous position in a kaleidoscopically changing assemblage. In this collection of things considered valuable by the value judgments of acting men, each particle's place is interrelated with those of all other particles. What is called a price is always a relationship within an integrated system which is the composite effect of human valuations. 13. Prices and Income A market price is a real historical phenomenon, the quantitative ratio at which, at a definite place and at a definite date, two individuals exchanged definite quantities of two definite goods. It refers to the special conditions of the concrete act of exchange. It is ultimately determined by the value judgments of the individuals involved. It is not derived from the general price structure or from the structure of the prices of a special class of commodities or services. What is called the price structure is an abstract notion derived from a multiplicity of individual concrete prices. The market does not generate prices of land or motor cars in general, nor wage rates in general, but prices for a certain piece of land and for a certain car, and wage rates for a performance of a certain kind. It does not make any difference for the pricing process to what class the things exchanged are to be assigned from any point of view. However, they may differ in other regards. In the very act of exchange, they are nothing but commodities, that is, things valued on account of their power to remove felt uneasiness. The market does not create or determine incomes. It is not a process of income formation. If the owner of a piece of land and the worker husband the physical resources concerned, the land and the man will renew and preserve their power to render services. The agricultural and urban land for a practically indefinite period, the man for a number of years. If the market situation for these factors of production does not deteriorate, it will be possible in the future, too, to attain a price for their productive employment. Land and working power can be considered as sources of income if they are dealt with as such, that is, if their capacity to produce is not prematurely exhausted by reckless exploitation. It is provident restraint in the use of factors of production, not their natural and physical properties, which convert them into somewhat durable sources of income. There is, in nature, no such thing as a stream of income. Income is a category of action. It is the outcome of careful economizing of scarce factors. This is still more obvious in the case of capital goods. The produced factors of production are not permanent. 
Although some of them may have a life of many years, all of them eventually become useless, through wear and tear, sometimes even by the mere passing of time. They become durable sources of income only if their owners treat them as such. Capital can be preserved as a source of income if the consumption of its products, market conditions remaining unchanged, is restricted in such a way as not to impair the replacement of the worn-out parts. Changes in the market data can frustrate every endeavor to perpetuate a source of income. Industrial equipment becomes obsolete if demand changes or if it is superseded by something better. Land becomes useless if more fertile soil is made accessible in sufficient quantities. Expertness and skill for the performance of special kinds of work lose their remunerativeness when new fashions or new methods of production narrow the opportunity for their employment. The success of any provision for the uncertain future depends on the correctness of the anticipations which guided it. No income can be made safe against changes not adequately foreseen. Neither is the pricing process a form of distribution. As has been pointed out already, there is nothing in the market economy to which the notion of distribution could be applied. 14. Prices and Production the pricing process directs production into those channels in which it best serves the wishes of the consumers, as manifested on the market. Only in the case of monopoly prices have the monopolists the power to divert production within a limited range from this line into other lines to their own benefit. The prices determine which of the factors of production should be employed and which should be left unused. The specific factors of production are employed only if there is no more valuable employment available for the complementary nonspecific factors. There are technological recipes, land, and non-convertible capital goods whose capacity to produce remains unused because their employment would mean a waste of the scarcest of all factors, labor. While under the conditions present in our world, there cannot be in the long run unemployment of labor in a free labor market, unused capacity of land and of inconvertible industrial equipment is a regular phenomenon. It is nonsense to lament the fact of unused capacity. The unused capacity of equipment made obsolete by technological improvement is a landmark of material progress. It would be a blessing if the establishment of durable peace would render munitions plants unused, or if the discovery of an efficient method of preventing and curing tuberculosis would render obsolete sanatoria for the treatment of people affected by this evil. It would be sensible to deplore the lack of provision in the past which resulted in malinvestment of capital goods. Yet men are not infallible. A certain amount of malinvestment is unavoidable. What has to be done is to shun policies like credit expansion which artificially foster malinvestment. Modern technology could easily grow oranges and grapes in hothouses in the Arctic and subarctic countries. Everybody would call such a venture lunacy. 
but it is essentially the same to preserve the growing of cereals in Rocky Mountain valleys by tariffs and other devices of protectionism, while elsewhere there is plenty of fallow, fertile land. The difference is merely one of degree. The inhabitants of the Swiss Jura prefer to manufacture watches instead of growing wheat. Watchmaking is, for them, the cheapest way to acquire wheat. On the other hand, the growing of wheat is the cheapest way for the Canadian farmer to acquire watches. The fact that the inhabitants of the Jura do not grow wheat, and the Canadians do not manufacture watches, is not more worthy of notice than the fact that tailors do not make their shoes, and shoemakers do not make their clothes. 15. THE CHIMERA OF NON-MARKET PRICES Prices are a market phenomenon. They are generated by the market process and are the pith of the market economy. There is no such thing as prices outside the market. Prices cannot be constructed synthetically, as it were. They are the resultant of a certain constellation of market data of actions and reactions of the members of a market society. It is vain to meditate what prices would have been if some of their determinants had been different. Such fantastic designs are not more sensible than whimsical speculations about what the course of history would have been if Napoleon had been killed in the Battle of Arcoal, or if Lincoln had ordered Major Anderson to withdraw from Fort Sumter. It is no less vain to ponder on what prices ought to be. Everybody is pleased if the prices of things he wants to buy drop and the prices of the things he wants to sell rise. In expressing such wishes, a man is sincere if he admits that his point of view is personal. It is another question whether, from his personal point of view, he would be well advised to prompt the government to use its power of coercion and oppression to interfere with the market's price structure. It will be shown in the sixth part of this book what the inescapable consequences of such a policy of interventionism must be. But one deludes oneself, or practices deception, if one calls such wishes and arbitrary value judgments the voice of objective truth. In human action, nothing counts but the various individuals' desires for the attainment of ends. With regard to the choice of these ends, there is no question of truth. All that matters is value. Value judgments are necessarily always subjective, whether they are passed by one man only or by many men, by a blockhead, a professor, or a statesman. Any price determined on a market is the necessary outgrowth of the interplay of the forces operating, that is, demand and supply. Whatever the market situation which generated this price may be, with regard to it, the price is always adequate, genuine, and real. It cannot be higher if no bidder ready to offer a higher price turns up, and it cannot be lower if no seller ready to deliver at a lower price turns up. Only the appearance of such people ready to buy or to sell can alter prices. Economics analyzes the market process which generates commodity prices, wage rates, and interest rates, 
It does not develop formulas which would enable anybody to compute a correct price different from that established on the market by the interaction of buyers and sellers. At the bottom of many efforts to determine non-market prices is the confused and contradictory notion of real costs. If costs were a real thing, that is, a quantity independent of personal value judgments and objectively discernible and measurable, it would be possible for a disinterested arbiter to determine their height, and thus the correct price. There is no need to dwell any longer on the absurdity of this idea. Costs are a phenomenon of valuation. Costs are the value attached to the most valuable want satisfaction which remains unsatisfied because the means required for its satisfaction are employed for that want satisfaction the cost of which we are dealing with. The attainment of an excess of the value of the product over the costs, a profit, is the goal of every production effort. Profit is the payoff of successful action. It cannot be defined without reference to valuation. It is a phenomenon of valuation, and has no direct relation to physical and other phenomena of the external world. Economic analysis cannot help reducing all items of cost to value judgments. The socialists and interventionists call entrepreneurial profit, interest on capital and rent of land, unearned, because they consider that only the toil and trouble of the worker is real and worthy of being rewarded. However, reality does not reward toil and trouble. If toil and trouble is expended according to well-conceived plans, its outcome increases the means available for want satisfaction. Whatever some people may consider as just and fair, the only relevant question is always the same. What alone matters is which system of social organization is better suited to attain those ends for which people are ready to expend toil and trouble. The question is, market economy or socialism? There is no third solution. The notion of a market economy with non-market prices is absurd. The very idea of cost prices is unrealizable. Even if the cost-price formula is applied only to entrepreneurial profits, it paralyzes the market. If commodities and services are to be sold below the price the market would have determined for them, supply always lags behind demand. Then the market can neither determine what should or should not be produced, nor to whom the commodities and services should go. Chaos results. This refers also to monopoly prices. It is reasonable to abstain from all policies which could result in the emergence of monopoly prices. But whether monopoly prices are brought about by such pro-monopoly government policies, or in spite of the absence of such policies, no alleged fact-finding and no armchair speculation can discover another price at which demand and supply would become equal. The failure of all experiments to find a satisfactory solution for the limited space monopoly of public utilities clearly proves this truth. 
It is the very essence of prices that they are the offshoot of the actions of individuals and groups of individuals acting on their own behalf. The catalactic concept of exchange ratios and prices precludes anything that is the effect of actions of a central authority, of people resorting to violence and threats in the name of society or the state or of an armed pressure group. In declaring that it is not the business of the government to determine prices, we do not step beyond the borders of logical thinking. A government can no more determine prices than a goose can lay hen's eggs. We can think of a social system in which there are no prices at all, and we can think of government decrees which aim at fixing prices at a height different from that which the market would determine. It is one of the tasks of economics to study the problems implied. However, precisely because we want to examine these problems, it is necessary clearly to distinguish between prices and government decrees. Prices are, by definition, determined by people's buying and selling or abstention from buying and selling. They must not be confused with fiats issued by governments or other agencies enforcing their orders by an apparatus of coercion and compulsion. In order not to confuse the reader by the introduction of too many new terms, we shall keep to the widespread usage of calling such fiats prices, interest rates, wage rates, decreed and enforced by governments or other agencies of compulsion, for example, labor unions. But one must never lose sight of the fundamental difference between the market phenomena of prices, wages, and interest rates on the one hand, and the legal phenomena of maximum or minimum prices, wages, and interest rates, designed to nullify these market phenomena, on the other hand. Chapter 17. Indirect Exchange 1. Media of Exchange and Money Interpersonal exchange is called indirect exchange if, between the commodities and services the reciprocal exchange of which is the ultimate end of exchanging, one or several media of exchange are interposed. The subject matter of the theory of indirect exchange is the study of the ratios of exchange between the media of exchange on the one hand and the goods and services of all orders on the other hand. The statements of the theory of indirect exchange refer to all instances of indirect exchange and to all things which are employed as media of exchange. A medium of exchange which is commonly used as such is called money. The notion of money is vague, as its definition refers to the vague term commonly used. There are borderline cases in which it cannot be decided whether a medium of exchange is or is not commonly used and should be called money. But this vagueness in the denotation of money in no way affects the exactitude and precision required by praxeological theory. For all that is to be predicated of money is valid for every medium of exchange. It is therefore immaterial whether one preserves the traditional term theory of money or substitutes for it another term. 
The theory of money was and is always the theory of indirect exchange and of the media of exchange. The theory of monetary calculation does not belong to the theory of indirect exchange. It is a part of the general theory of praxeology. 2. Observations on some widespread errors. The fateful errors of popular monetary doctrines which have led astray the monetary policies of almost all governments would hardly have come into existence if many economists had not themselves committed blunders in dealing with monetary issues and did not stubbornly cling to them. There is, first of all, the spurious idea of the supposed neutrality of money. An outgrowth of this doctrine was the notion of the level of prices that rises or falls proportionately with the increase or decrease in the quantity of money in circulation. It was not realized that changes in the quantity of money can never affect the prices of all goods and services at the same time and to the same extent. Nor was it realized that changes in the purchasing power of the monetary unit are necessarily linked with changes in the mutual relations between those buying and selling. In order to prove the doctrine that the quantity of money and prices rise and fall proportionately, recourse was had in dealing with the theory of money to a procedure entirely different from that modern economics applies in dealing with all its other problems. Instead of starting from the actions of individuals, as catalactics must do without exception, formulas were constructed designed to comprehend the whole of the market economy. Elements of these formulas were the total supply of money available in the Volkswirtschaft, the volume of trade, that is, the money equivalent of all transfers of commodities and services as effected in the Volkswirtschaft, the average velocity of circulation of the monetary units, the level of prices. These formulas seemingly provided evidence of the correctness of the price-level doctrine, in fact, however, this whole mode of reasoning is a typical case of arguing in a circle, for the equation of exchange already involves the level doctrines which it tries to prove. It is essentially nothing but a mathematical expression of the untenable doctrine that there is proportionality in the movements of the quantity of money and of prices. In analyzing the equation of exchange, one assumes that one of its elements, total supply of money, volume of trade, velocity of circulation, changes, without asking how such changes occur. It is not recognized that changes in these magnitudes do not emerge in the Volkswirtschaft as such, but in the individual actor's conditions and that it is the interplay of the reactions of these actors that results in alterations of the price structure. The mathematical economists refuse to start from the various individuals' demand for and supply of money. They introduce instead the spurious notion of velocity of circulation fashioned according to the patterns of mechanics.
There is at this point of our reasoning no need to deal with the question of whether or not the mathematical economists are right in assuming that the services rendered by money consist wholly or essentially in its turnover, in its circulation. Even if this were true, it would still be faulty to explain the purchasing power, the price of the monetary unit, on the basis of its services. The services rendered by water, whiskey, and coffee do not explain the prices paid for these things. What they explain is only why people, as far as they recognize these services, under certain further conditions demand definite quantities of these things. It is always demand that influences the price structure, not the objective value in use. It is true that with regard to money the task of catalactics is broader than with regard to vendable goods. It is not the task of catalactics, but of psychology and physiology, to explain why people are intent on securing the services which the various vendable commodities can render. It is a task of catalactics, however, to deal with this question with regard to money. Catalactics alone can tell us what advantages a man expects from holding money. But it is not these expected advantages which determine the purchasing power of money. The eagerness to secure these advantages is only one of the factors in bringing about the demand for money. It is demand a subjective element whose intensity is entirely determined by value judgments and not any objective fact, any power to bring about a certain effect, that plays a role in the formation of the market's exchange ratios. The deficiency of the equation of exchange and its basic elements is that they look at market phenomena from a holistic point of view, they are deluded by their prepossession with the Volkswirtschaft notion. But where there is, in the strict sense of the term, a Volkswirtschaft, there is neither a market nor prices and money. On a market there are only individuals or groups of individuals acting in concert. What motivates these actors is their own concerns, not those of the whole market economy. If there is any sense in such notions as volume of trade and velocity of circulation, then they refer to the resultant of the individual's actions. It is not permissible to resort to these notions in order to explain the actions of the individuals. The first question that catalactics must raise with regard to changes in the total quantity of money available in the market system is how such changes affect the various individuals' conduct. Modern economics does not ask what iron or bread is worth, but what a definite piece of iron or of bread is worth to an acting individual at a definite date and a definite place. It cannot help proceeding in the same way with regard to money. The equation of exchange is incompatible with the fundamental principles of economic thought. It is a relapse to the thinking of ages in which people failed to comprehend praxeological phenomena because they were committed to holistic notions. It is sterile, as were the speculations of earlier ages concerning the value of iron and bread in general. The theory of money is an essential part of the catalactic theory, 
it must be dealt with in the same manner which is applied to all other catalactic problems. 3. Demand for Money and Supply of Money In the marketability of the various commodities and services, there prevail considerable differences. There are goods for which it is not difficult to find applicants ready to disperse the highest recompense which, under the given state of affairs, can possibly be obtained, or a recompense only slightly smaller. There are other goods for which it is very hard to find a customer quickly, even if the vendor is ready to be content with a compensation much smaller than he could reap if he could find another aspirant whose demand is more intense. It is these differences in the marketability of the various commodities and services which created indirect exchange. A man who, at the instant, cannot acquire what he wants to get for the conduct of his own household or business, or who does not yet know what kind of goods he will need in the uncertain future, comes nearer to his ultimate goal if he exchanges a less marketable good he wants to trade against a more marketable one. It may also happen that the physical properties of the merchandise he wants to give away, as, for instance, its perishability or the costs incurred by its storage or similar circumstances, impel him not to wait longer. Sometimes he may be prompted to hurry in giving away the good, concerned because he is afraid of a deterioration of its market value. In all such cases he improves his own situation in acquiring a more marketable good, even if this good is not suitable to satisfy directly any of his own needs. A medium of exchange is a good which people acquire neither for their own consumption nor for employment in their own production activities, but with the intention of exchanging it at a later date against those goods which they want to use, either for consumption or for production. Money is a medium of exchange. It is the most marketable good which people acquire because they want to offer it in later acts of interpersonal exchange. Money is the thing which serves as the generally accepted and commonly used medium of exchange. This is its only function. All the other functions which people ascribe to money are merely particular aspects of its primary and sole function that of a medium of exchange. Media of exchange are economic goods. They are scarce. There is a demand for them. There are on the market people who desire to acquire them and are ready to exchange goods and services against them. Media of exchange have value in exchange. People make sacrifices for their acquisition. They pay prices for them. The peculiarity of these prices lies merely in the fact that they cannot be expressed in terms of money. In reference to the vendable goods and services, we speak of prices, or of money prices. In reference to money, we speak of its purchasing power with regard to various vendable goods. There exists a demand for media of exchange because people want to keep a store of them. Every member of a market society wants to have a definite amount of money in his pocket or box, a cash holding or cash balance of a definite height. 
Sometimes he wants to keep a larger cash holding, sometimes a smaller. In exceptional cases, he may even renounce any cash holding. At any rate, the immense majority of people aim not only to own various vendable goods, they want no less to hold money. Their cash holding is not merely a residuum, an unspent margin of their wealth. It is not an unintentional remainder left over after all intentional acts of buying and selling have been consummated. Its amount is determined by a deliberate demand for cash. And as with all other goods, it is the changes in the relation between demand for and supply of money that bring about changes in the exchange ratio between money and the vendable goods. Every piece of money is owned by one of the members of the market economy. The transfer of money from the control of one actor into that of another is temporally immediate and continuous. There is no fraction of time in between in which the money is not a part of an individual's or a firm's cash holding, but just in circulation. Money can be in the process of transportation, it can travel in trains, ships, or planes from one place to another, but it is in this case, too, always subject to somebody's control. It is unsound to distinguish between circulating and idle money. It is no less faulty to distinguish between circulating money and hoarded money. What is called hoarding is a height of cash holding which, according to the personal opinion of an observer, exceeds what is deemed normal and adequate. However, hoarding is cash holding. Hoarded money is still money, and it serves in the hoards the same purposes which it serves in cash holdings called normal. He who hoards money believes that some special conditions make it expedient to accumulate a cash holding which exceeds the amount he himself would keep under different conditions, or other people keep, or an economist censuring his action considers appropriate. That he acts in this way influences the configuration of the demand for money in the same way in which every normal demand influences it. Many economists avoid applying the terms demand and supply in the sense of demand for and supply of money for cash holding because they fear a confusion with the current terminology as used by the bankers. It is, in fact, customary to call demand for money the demand for short-term loans and supply of money the supply of such loans. Accordingly, one calls the market for short-term loans the money market. One says money is scarce if there prevails a tendency toward a rise in the rate of interest for short-term loans, and one says money is plentiful if the rate of interest for such loans is decreasing. These modes of speech are so firmly entrenched that it is out of the question to venture to discard them. But they have favored the spread of fateful errors. They made people confound the notions of money and of capital, and believe that increasing the quantity of money could lower the rate of interest lastingly. 
but it is precisely the crassness of these errors which makes it unlikely that the terminology suggested could create any misunderstanding. It is hard to assume that economists could err with regard to such fundamental issues. Others maintain that one should not speak of the demand for and supply of money because the aims of those demanding money differ from the aims of those demanding vendable commodities. Commodities, they say, are demanded ultimately for consumption, while money is demanded in order to be given away in further acts of exchange. This objection is no less invalid. The use which people make of a medium of exchange consists eventually in its being given away. But first of all, they are eager to accumulate a certain amount of it in order to be ready for the moment in which a purchase may be accomplished. Precisely because people do not want to provide for their own needs right at the instant at which they give away the goods and services they themselves bring to the market, precisely because they want to wait, or are forced to wait, until propitious conditions for buying appear, they barter not directly but indirectly through the interposition of a medium of exchange. The fact that money is not worn out by the use one makes of it, and that it can render its services practically for an unlimited length of time, is an important factor in the configuration of its supply. But it does not alter the fact that the appraisement of money is to be explained in the same way as the appraisement of all other goods, by the demand on the part of those who are eager to acquire a definite quantity of it. Economists have tried to enumerate the factors which, within the whole economic system, may increase or decrease the demand for money. Such factors are the population figure the extent to which the individual households provide for their own needs by autarkic production, and the extent to which they produce for other people's needs, selling their products and buying for their own consumption on the market. The distribution of business activity and the settlement of payments over the various seasons of the year. Institutions for the settlement of claims and counterclaims by mutual cancellation, such as clearinghouses. All these factors indeed influence the demand for money and the height of the various individuals and firms' cash holding. But they influence them only indirectly by the role they play in the considerations of people concerning the determination of the amount of cash balances they deem appropriate. What decides the matter is always the value judgments of the men concerned. The various actors make up their minds about what they believe the adequate height of their cash holding should be. They carry out their resolution by renouncing the purchase of commodities, securities, and interest-bearing claims, and by selling such assets, or conversely by increasing their purchases. With money, things are not different from what they are with regard to all other goods and services. The demand for money is determined by the conduct of people intent upon acquiring it for their cash holding. Another objection raised against the notion of the demand for money was this. The marginal utility of the money unit decreases much more slowly than that of the other commodities, 
In fact, its decrease is so slow that it can be practically ignored. With regard to money, nobody ever says that his demand is satisfied, and nobody ever forsakes an opportunity to acquire more money, provided the sacrifice required is not too great. It is therefore impermissible to consider the demand for money as limited. The very notion of an unlimited demand is, however, contradictory. This popular reasoning is entirely fallacious. It confounds the demand for money, for cash holding, with the desire for more wealth as expressed in terms of money. He who says that his thirst for more money can never be quenched does not mean to say that his cash holding can never be too large. What he really means is that he can never be rich enough. If additional money flows into his hands, he will not use it for an increase of his cash balance, or he will use only a part of it for this purpose. He will expend the surplus either for instantaneous consumption or for investment. Nobody ever keeps more money than he wants to have as cash holding. The insight that the exchange ratio between money on the one hand and the vendable commodities and services on the other hand is determined in the same way as the mutual exchange ratios between the various vendable goods, by demand and supply, was the essence of the quantity theory of money. This theory is essentially an application of the general theory of supply and demand to the special instance of money. Its merit was the endeavor to explain the determination of money's purchasing power by resorting to the same reasoning which is employed for the explanation of all other exchange ratios. Its shortcoming was that it resorted to a holistic interpretation— it looked at the total supply of money in the Volkswirtschaft, and not at the actions of the individual men and firms. An outgrowth of this erroneous point of view was the idea that there prevails a proportionality in the changes of the total quantity of money and of money prices. But the older critics failed in their attempts to explode the errors inherent in the quantity theory, and to substitute a more satisfactory theory for it. They did not fight what was wrong in the quantity theory. They attacked, on the contrary, its nucleus of truth. They were intent upon denying that there is a causal relation between the movements of prices and those of the quantity of money. This denial led them into a labyrinth of errors, contradictions, and nonsense, Modern monetary theory takes up the thread of the traditional quantity theory as far as it starts from the cognition that changes in the purchasing power of money must be dealt with according to the principles applied to all other market phenomena, and that there exists a connection between the changes in the demand for and supply of money on the one hand and those of purchasing power on the other. In this sense, one may call the modern theory of money an improved variety of the quantity theory. The Epistemological Import of Karl Menger's Theory of the Origin of Money Karl Menger has not only provided an irrefutable praxeological theory of the origin of money, 
he has also recognized the import of his theory for the elucidation of fundamental principles of praxeology and its methods of research. There were authors who tried to explain the origin of money by decree or covenant. The authority, the state, or a compact between citizens has purposively and consciously established indirect exchange and money. The main deficiency of this doctrine is not to be seen in the assumption that people of an age unfamiliar with indirect exchange and money could design a plan of a new economic order entirely different from the real conditions of their own age, and could comprehend the importance of such a plan. Neither is it to be seen in the fact that history does not afford a clue for the support of such statements there are more substantial reasons for rejecting it. If it is assumed that the conditions of the parties concerned are improved by every step that leads from direct exchange to indirect exchange, and subsequently to giving preference for use as a medium of exchange to certain goods distinguished by their especially high marketability, it is difficult to conceive why one should, in dealing with the origin of indirect exchange, resort in addition to authoritarian decree or an explicit compact between citizens. A man who finds it hard to obtain in direct barter what he wants to acquire renders better his chances to acquire what he is asking for in later acts of exchange by the procurement of a more marketable good. Under these circumstances there was no need of government interference or of a compact between the citizens. The happy idea of proceeding in this way could strike the shrewdest individuals, and the less resourceful could imitate the former's method. It is certainly more plausible to take for granted that the immediate advantages conferred by indirect exchange were recognized by the acting parties than to assume that the whole image of a society trading by means of money was conceived by a genius, and if we adopt the covenant doctrine made obvious to the rest of the people by persuasion. If, however, we do not assume that individuals discovered the fact that they fare better through indirect exchange than through waiting for an opportunity for direct exchange, and, for the sake of argument, admit that the authorities or a compact introduced money, further questions are raised. We must ask what kind of measures were applied in order to induce people to adopt a procedure the utility of which they did not comprehend, and which was technically more complicated than direct exchange. We may assume that compulsion was practiced. But then we must ask, further, at what time and by what occurrences indirect exchange and the use of money later cease to be procedures troublesome or at least indifferent to the individuals concerned, and became advantageous to them. The praxeological method traces all phenomena back to the actions of individuals. If conditions of interpersonal exchange are such that indirect exchange facilitates the transactions, and if and as far as people realize these advantages, indirect exchange and money come into being. Historical experience shows that these conditions were and are present. 
how, in the absence of these conditions, people could have adopted indirect exchange and money and clung to these modes of exchanging is inconceivable. The historical question concerning the origin of indirect exchange and money is, after all, of no concern to praxeology. The only relevant thing is that indirect exchange and money exist because the conditions for their existence were and are present. If this is so, praxeology does not need to resort to the hypothesis that authoritarian decree or a covenant invented these modes of exchanging. The etatists may, if they like, continue to ascribe the invention of money to the state however unlikely this may be. What matters is that a man acquires a good not in order to consume it or to use it in production, but in order to give it away in a further act of exchange. Such conduct on the part of people makes a good a medium of exchange, and if such conduct becomes common with regard to a certain good, makes it money. All theorems of the catalactic theory of media of exchange and of money refer to the services which a good renders in its capacity as a medium of exchange. Even if it were true that the impulse for the introduction of indirect exchange and money was provided by the authorities or by an agreement between the members of society, the statement remains unshaken that only the conduct of exchanging people can create indirect exchange and money. History may tell us where and when for the first time media of exchange came into use and how, subsequently, the range of goods employed for this purpose was more and more restricted. As the differentiation between the broader notion of a medium of exchange and the narrower notion of money is not sharp, but gradual, no agreement can be reached about the historical transition from simple media of exchange to money. This is a matter of historical understanding. But, as has been mentioned, the distinction between direct exchange and indirect exchange is sharp and everything that catalactics establishes with regard to media of exchange refers categorially to all goods which are demanded and acquired as such media. As far as the statement that indirect exchange and money were established by decree or by covenant is meant to be an account of historical events, it is the task of historians to expose its falsity. As far as it is advanced merely as a historical statement, it can in no way affect the catalactic theory of money and its explanation of the evolution of indirect exchange. But if it is designed as a statement about human action and social events, it is useless, because it states nothing about action. It is not a statement about human action to declare that one day rulers or citizens assembled in convention were suddenly struck by the inspiration that it would be a good idea to exchange indirectly and through the intermediary of a commonly used medium of exchange. It is merely pushing back the problem involved. 
It is necessary to comprehend that one does not contribute anything to the scientific conception of human actions and social phenomena if one declares that the state, or a charismatic leader, or an inspiration which descended upon all the people, have created them. Neither do such statements refute the teachings of a theory showing how such phenomena can be acknowledged as the unintentional outcome, the resultant not deliberately designed and aimed at by specifically individual endeavors of the members of a society. 4. The Determination of the Purchasing Power of Money as soon as an economic good is demanded not only by those who want to use it for consumption or production, but also by people who want to keep it as a medium of exchange and to give it away at need in a later active exchange, the demand for it increases. A new employment for this good has emerged and creates an additional demand for it. As with every other economic good, such an additional demand brings about a rise in its value in exchange, that is, in the quantity of other goods which are offered for its acquisition. The amount of other goods which can be obtained in giving away a medium of exchange, its price as expressed in terms of various goods and services, is in part determined by the demand of those who want to acquire it as a medium of exchange. If people stop using the good in question as a medium of exchange, this additional specific demand disappears, and the price drops concomitantly. Thus the demand for a medium of exchange is the composite of two partial demands. The demand displayed by the intention to use it in consumption and production, and that displayed by the intention to use it as a medium of exchange. With regard to modern metallic money, one speaks of the industrial demand and of the monetary demand. The value in exchange, purchasing power, of a medium of exchange is the resultant of the cumulative effect of both partial demands. Now the extent of that part of the demand for a medium of exchange, which is displayed on account of its service as a medium of exchange, depends on its value in exchange. This fact raises difficulties which many economists considered insoluble, so that they abstained from following farther along this line of reasoning. It is illogical, they said, to explain the purchasing power of money by reference to the demand for money, and the demand for money by reference to its purchasing power. The difficulty is, however, merely apparent. The purchasing power which we explain by referring to the extent of specific demand is not the same purchasing power the height of which determines this specific demand. The problem is to conceive the determination of the purchasing power of the immediate future, of the impending moment. For the solution of this problem we refer to the purchasing power of the immediate past, of the moment just past. These are two distinct magnitudes. It is erroneous to object to our theorem, which may be called the regression theorem, that it moves in a vicious circle. But, say the critics, this is tantamount to merely pushing back the problem. For now, one must still explain the determination of yesterday's purchasing power. 
If one explains this in the same way by referring to the purchasing power of the day before yesterday, and so on, one slips into a regressus in infinitum. This reasoning, they assert, is certainly not a complete and logically satisfactory solution of the problem involved. What these critics fail to see is that the regression does not go back endlessly. It reaches a point at which the explanation is completed, and no further question remains unanswered. If we trace the purchasing power of money back step by step, we finally arrive at the point at which the service of the good concerned as a medium of exchange begins. At this point, yesterday's exchange value is exclusively determined by the non-monetary, industrial demand, which is displayed only by those who want to use this good for other employments than that of a medium of exchange. But, the critics continue, this means explaining that part of money's purchasing power, which is due to its service as a medium of exchange, by its employment for industrial purposes. The very problem, the explanation of the specific monetary component of its exchange value, remains unsolved. Here, too, the critics are mistaken. That component of money's value, which is an outcome of the services it renders as a medium of exchange, is entirely explained by reference to these specific monetary services and the demand they create. Two facts are not to be denied, and are not denied by anybody. First, that the demand for a medium of exchange is determined by considerations of its exchange value, which is an outcome both of the monetary and the industrial services it renders. Second, that the exchange value of a good which has not yet been demanded for service as a medium of exchange is determined solely by a demand on the part of people eager to use it for industrial purposes, that is, either for consumption or for production. Now, the regression theorem aims at interpreting the first emergence of a monetary demand for a good which previously had been demanded exclusively for industrial purposes as influenced by the exchange value that was ascribed to it at this moment on account of its non-monetary services only. This certainly does not involve explaining the specific monetary exchange value of a medium of exchange on the ground of its industrial exchange value. Finally, it was objected to the regression theorem that its approach is historical, not theoretical. This objection is no less mistaken. To explain an event historically means to show how it was produced by forces and factors operating at a definite date and a definite place. These individual forces and factors are the ultimate elements of the interpretation. They are ultimate data, and as such not open to any further analysis and reduction. To explain a phenomenon theoretically means to trace back its appearance to the operation of general rules which are already comprised in the theoretical system. The regression theorem complies with this requirement. It traces the specific exchange value of a medium of exchange back to its function as such a medium, and to the theorems concerning the process of valuing and pricing as developed by the general catalactic theory.
It deduces a more special case from the rules of a more universal theory. It shows how the special phenomenon necessarily emerges out of the operation of the rules generally valid for all phenomena. It does not say, this happened at that time and at that place. It says, this always happens when the conditions appear. Whenever a good which has not been demanded previously for the employment as a medium of exchange begins to be demanded for this employment, the same effects must appear again. No good can be employed for the function of a medium of exchange which at the very beginning of its use for this purpose did not have exchange value on account of other employments. And all these statements implied in the regression theorem are enounced apodictically, as implied in the a priorism of praxeology. It must happen this way. Nobody can ever succeed in constructing a hypothetical case in which things were to occur in a different way. The purchasing power of money is determined by demand and supply as is the case with the prices of all vendable goods and services. As action always aims at a more satisfactory arrangement of future conditions, he who considers acquiring or giving away money is, of course, first of all interested in its future purchasing power and the future structure of prices. But he cannot form a judgment about the future purchasing power of money otherwise than by looking at its configuration in the immediate past. It is this fact that radically distinguishes the determination of the purchasing power of money from the determination of the mutual exchange ratios between the various vendable goods and services. With regard to these latter, the actors have nothing else to consider than their importance for future want satisfaction. If a new commodity unheard of before is offered for sale, as was, for instance, the case with radio sets a few decades ago, the only question that matters for the individual is whether or not the satisfaction that the new gadget will provide is greater than that expected from those goods he would have to renounce in order to buy the new thing. Knowledge about past prices is, for the buyer, merely a means to reap a consumer's surplus, if he were not intent upon this goal, he could, if need be, arrange his purchases without any familiarity with the market prices of the immediate past, which are popularly called present prices. He could make value judgments without appraisement. As has been mentioned already, the obliteration of the memory of all prices of the past would not prevent the formation of new exchange ratios between the various vendable things. But, if knowledge about money's purchasing power were to fade away, the process of developing indirect exchange and media of exchange would have to start anew. It would become necessary to begin again with employing some goods, more marketable than the rest, as media of exchange. The demand for these goods would increase, and would add to the amount of exchange value derived from their industrial, non-monetary employment, a specific component due to their new use as a medium of exchange. 
A value judgment is, with reference to money, only possible if it can be based on appraisement. The acceptance of a new kind of money presupposes that the thing in question already has previous exchange value on account of the services it can render directly to consumption or production. Neither a buyer nor a seller could judge the value of a monetary unit if he had no information about its exchange value, its purchasing power, in the immediate past. The relation between the demand for money and the supply of money, which may be called the money relation, determines the height of purchasing power. Today's money relation, as it is shaped on the ground of yesterday's purchasing power, determines today's purchasing power. He who wants to increase his cash holding restricts his purchases and increases his sales, and thus brings about a tendency toward falling prices. He who wants to reduce his cash holding increases his purchases, either for consumption or for production and investment, and restricts his sales. Thus he brings about a tendency toward rising prices. Changes in the supply of money must necessarily alter the disposition of vendable goods as owned by various individuals and firms. The quantity of money available in the whole market system cannot increase or decrease otherwise than by first increasing or decreasing the cash holdings of certain individual members. We may, if we like, assume that every member gets a share of the additional money right at the moment of its inflow into the system, or shares in the reduction in the quantity of money. But whether we assume this or not, the final result of our demonstration will remain the same. This result will be that changes in the structure of prices brought about by changes in the supply of money available in the economic system never affect the prices of the various commodities and services to the same extent and at the same date. Let us assume that the government issues an additional quantity of paper money. The government plans either to buy commodities and services or to repay debts incurred or to pay interest on such debts. However this may be, the treasury enters the market with an additional demand for goods and services. It is now in a position to buy more goods than it could buy before. The prices of the commodities it buys rise. If the government had expended in its purchases money collected by taxation, the taxpayers would have restricted their purchases, and while the prices of the goods bought by the government would have risen, those of other goods would have dropped. But this fall in the prices of the goods the taxpayers used to buy does not occur if the government increases the quantity of money at its disposal without reducing the quantity of money in the hands of the public. The prices of some commodities, namely of those the government buys, rise immediately, while those of the other commodities remain unaltered for the time being. But the process goes on. Those selling the commodities asked for by the government are now themselves in a position to buy more than they used previously. The prices of the things these people are buying in larger quantities therefore rise too. 
Thus the boom spreads from one group of commodities and services to other groups, until all prices and wage rates have risen. The rise in prices is thus not synchronous with the various commodities and services. When eventually, in the further course of the increase in the quantity of money, all prices have risen, the rise does not affect the various commodities and services to the same extent. For the process has affected the material position of various individuals to different degrees. While the process is underway, some people enjoy the benefit of higher prices for the goods or services they sell, while the prices of the things they buy have not yet risen or have not risen to the same extent. On the other hand, there are people who are in the unhappy situation of selling commodities and services whose prices have not yet risen, or not in the same degree as the prices of the goods they must buy for their daily consumption. For the former, the progressive rise in prices is a boon, for the latter, a calamity. Besides, the debtors are favored at the expense of the creditors. When the process once comes to an end, the wealth of various individuals has been affected in different ways and to different degrees. Some are enriched, some impoverished. Conditions are no longer what they were before. The new order of things results in changes in the intensity of demand for various goods. The mutual ratio of the money prices of the vendable goods and services is no longer the same as before. The price structure has changed apart from the fact that all prices in terms of money have risen. The final prices to the establishment of which the market tends after the effects of the increase in the quantity of money have been fully consummated are not equal to the previous final prices multiplied by the same multiplier. The main fault of the old quantity theory, as well as the mathematical economists' equation of exchange, is that they have ignored this fundamental issue. Changes in the supply of money must bring about changes in other data, too. The market system before and after the inflow or outflow of a quantity of money is not merely changed in that the cash holdings of the individuals and prices have increased or decreased. There have been effected also changes in the reciprocal exchange ratios between the various commodities and services, which, if one wants to resort to metaphors, are more adequately described by the image of price revolution than by the misleading figure of an elevation or a sinking of the price level. We may at this point disregard the effects brought about by the influence on the content of all deferred payments as stipulated by contracts. We will deal later with them, and with the operation of monetary events on consumption and production, investment in capital goods, and accumulation and consumption of capital. But even in setting aside all these things, we must never forget that changes in the quantity of money affect prices in an uneven way. It depends on the data of each particular case, at what moment and to what extent the prices of the various commodities and services are affected. In the course of a monetary expansion, inflation, 
The first reaction is not only that the prices of some of them rise more quickly and more steeply than others. It may also occur that some fall at first, as they are for the most part demanded by those groups whose interests are hurt. Changes in the money relation are not only caused by governments issuing additional paper money. An increase in the production of the precious metals employed as money has the same effects, although, of course, other classes of the population may be favored or hurt by it. Prices also rise in the same way if, without a corresponding reduction in the quantity of money available, the demand for money falls because of a general tendency toward a diminution of cash holdings. The money expended additionally by such a dishoarding brings about a tendency toward higher prices in the same way as that flowing from the gold mines or from the printing press. Conversely, prices drop when the supply of money falls, for example, through a withdrawal of paper money, or the demand for money increases, for example, through a tendency toward hoarding, the keeping of greater cash balances. The process is always uneven, and by steps, disproportionate and asymmetrical. It could be and has been objected that the normal production of the gold mines brought to the market may well entail an increase in the quantity of money, but does not increase the income, still less the wealth, of the owners of the mines. These people earn only their normal income, and thus their spending of it cannot disarrange market conditions and the prevailing tendencies toward the establishment of final prices and the equilibrium of the evenly rotating economy. For them, the annual output of the mines does not mean an increase in riches and does not impel them to offer higher prices. They will continue to live at the standard at which they used to live before. Their spending within these limits will not revolutionize the market. Thus the normal amount of gold production, although certainly increasing the quantity of money available, cannot put into motion the process of depreciation. It is neutral with regard to prices. As against this reasoning, one must first of all observe that within a progressing economy in which population figures are increasing, and the division of labor and its corollary, industrial specialization, are perfected, there prevails a tendency toward an increase in the demand for money. Additional people appear on the scene and want to establish cash holdings. The extent of economic self-sufficiency, that is, of production for the household's own needs, shrinks, and people become more dependent upon the market. This will, by and large, impel them to increase their holding of cash. Thus the price-raising tendency emanating from what is called the normal gold production encounters a price-cutting tendency emanating from the increased demand for cash holding. However, these two opposite tendencies do not neutralize each other. Both processes take their own course. Both result in a disarrangement of existing social conditions, making some people richer, some people poorer. Both affect the prices of various goods at different dates and to a different degree. 
It is true that the rise in the prices of some commodities caused by one of these processes can finally be compensated by the fall caused by the other process. It may happen that at the end some or many prices come back to their previous height. But this final result is not the outcome of an absence of movements provoked by changes in the money relation. It is rather the outcome of the joint effect of the coincidence of two processes, independent of each other, each of which brings about alterations in the market data, as well as in the material conditions of various individuals and groups of individuals. The new structure of prices may not differ very much from the previous one, but it is the resultant of two series of changes which have accomplished all inherent social transformations. The fact that the owners of gold mines rely upon steady yearly proceeds from their gold production does not cancel the newly mined gold's impression upon prices. The owners of the mines take from the market, in exchange for the gold produced, the goods and services required for their mining, and the goods needed for their consumption and their investments in other lines of production. If they had not produced this amount of gold, prices would not have been affected by it. It is beside the point that they have anticipated the future yield of the mines and capitalized it, and that they have adjusted their standard of living to the expectation of steady proceeds from the mining operations. The effects which the newly mined gold exercises on their expenditure and on that of those people whose cash holdings step by step it enters later begin only at the instant this gold is available in the hands of the mine owners. If, in the expectation of future yields, they had expended money at an earlier date, and the expected yield failed to appear, conditions would not differ from other cases in which consumption was financed by credit based on expectations not realized by later events. Changes in the extent of the desired cash-holding of various people neutralize one another only to the extent that they are regularly recurring and mutually connected by a causal reciprocity. Salaried people and wage-earners are not paid daily, but at certain paydays for a period of one or several weeks. They do not plan to keep their cash holding within the period between paydays at the same level. The amount of cash in their pockets declines with the approach of the next payday. On the other hand, the merchants who supply them with the necessities of life increase their cash holdings concomitantly. The two movements condition each other. There is a causal interdependence between them, which harmonizes them both with regard to time and to quantitative amount. Neither the dealer nor his customer lets himself be influenced by these recurrent fluctuations. Their plans concerning cash holding, as well as their business operations and their spending for consumption, respectively, have the whole period in view, and take it into account as a whole. It was this phenomenon that led economists to the image of a regular circulation of money, and to the neglect of the changes in the individual's cash holdings. However, we are faced with a concatenation which is limited to a narrow, neatly circumscribed field. 
only as far as the increase in the cash holding of one group of people is temporally and quantitatively related to the decrease in the cash holding of another group, and as far as these changes are self-liquidating within the course of a period which the members of both groups consider as a whole in planning their cash holding, can the neutralization take place. Beyond this field, there is no question of such a neutralization. 5. The Problem of Hume and Mill and the Driving Force of Money Is it possible to think of a state of affairs in which changes in the purchasing power of money occur at the same time, and to the same extent, with regard to all commodities and services, and in proportion to the changes effected in either the demand for or the supply of money? In other words, is it possible to think of neutral money within the frame of an economic system which does not correspond to the imaginary construction of an evenly rotating economy? We may call this pertinent question the problem of Hume and Mill. It is uncontested that neither Hume nor Mill succeeded in finding a positive answer to this question. Is it possible to answer it categorically in the negative? We imagine two systems of an evenly rotating economy, A and B. The two systems are independent and in no way connected with one another. The two systems differ from one another only in the fact that to each amount of money M in A, there corresponds an amount NM in B, N being greater or smaller than 1. We assume that there are no deferred payments and that the money used in both systems serves only monetary purposes and does not allow of any non-monetary use. Consequently, the prices in the two systems are in the ratio 1 to N. Is it thinkable that conditions in A can be altered at one stroke in such a way as to make them entirely equivalent to conditions in B? The answer to this question must obviously be in the negative. He who wants to answer it in the positive must assume that a deus ex machina approaches every individual at the same instant, increases or decreases his cash holding by multiplying it by n, and tells him that henceforth he must multiply by n all price data which he employs in his appraisements and calculations. This cannot happen without a miracle. It has been pointed out already that in the imaginary construction of an evenly rotating economy, the very notion of money vanishes into an unsubstantial calculation process, self-contradictory and devoid of any meaning. It is impossible to assign any function to indirect exchange, media of exchange, and money within an imaginary construction, the characteristic mark of which is unchangeability and rigidity of conditions. Where there is no uncertainty concerning the future, there is no need for any cash holding. As money must necessarily be kept by people in their cash holdings, there cannot be any money. The use of media of exchange and the keeping of cash holdings are conditioned by the changeability of economic data. Money in itself is an element of change, 
Its existence is incompatible with the idea of a regular flow of events in an evenly rotating economy. Every change in the money relation alters, apart from its effects upon deferred payments, the conditions of the individual members of society. Some become richer, some poorer. It may happen that the effects of a change in the demand for and supply of money encounter the effects of opposite changes occurring by and large at the same time and to the same extent. It may happen that the resultant of the two opposite movements is such that no conspicuous changes in the price structure emerge. But even then, the effects on the conditions of the various individuals are not absent. Each change in the money relation takes its own course and produces its own particular effects. If an inflationary movement and a deflationary one occur at the same time, or if an inflation is temporarily followed by a deflation in such a way that prices finally are not very much changed, the social consequences of each of the two movements do not cancel each other. To the social consequences of an inflation, those of a deflation are added. There is no reason to assume that all or even most of those favored by one movement will be hurt by the second one, or vice versa. Money is neither an abstract numeraire nor a standard of value or prices. It is necessarily an economic good, and as such it is valued and appraised on its own merits, that is, the services which a man expects from holding cash. On the market there is always change and movement. Only because there are fluctuations is there money. Money is an element of change not because it circulates, but because it is kept in cash holdings. Only because people expect changes about the kind and extent of which they have no certain knowledge whatsoever, do they keep money. While money can be thought of only in a changing economy, it is in itself an element of further changes. Every change in the economic data sets it in motion and makes it the driving force of new changes. Every shift in the mutual relation of the exchange ratios between the various non-monetary goods not only brings about changes in production and in what is popularly called distribution, but also provokes changes in the money relation and thus further changes. Nothing can happen in the orbit of vendable goods without affecting the orbit of money, and all that happens in the orbit of money affects the orbit of commodities. The notion of a neutral money is no less contradictory than that of a money of stable purchasing power. Money without a driving force of its own would not, as people assume, be a perfect money. It would not be money at all. It is a popular fallacy to believe that perfect money should be neutral and endowed with unchanging purchasing power, and that the goal of monetary policy should be to realize this perfect money. It is easy to understand this idea as a reaction against the still more popular postulates of the inflationists, but it is an excessive reaction, 
It is in itself confused and contradictory, and it has worked havoc because it was strengthened by an inveterate error inherent in the thought of many philosophers and economists. These thinkers are misled by the widespread belief that a state of rest is more perfect than one of movement. Their idea of perfection implies that no more perfect state can be thought of, and consequently that every change would impair it. The best that can be said of a motion is that it is directed toward the attainment of a state of perfection, in which there is rest, because every further movement would lead into a less perfect state. Motion is seen as the absence of equilibrium and full satisfaction, as a manifestation of trouble and want. As far as such thoughts merely establish the fact that action aims at the removal of uneasiness, and ultimately at the attainment of full satisfaction, they are well founded. But one must not forget that rest and equilibrium are not only present in a state in which perfect contentment has made people perfectly happy, but no less in a state in which, although wanting in many regards, they do not see any means of improving their condition. The absence of action is not only the result of full satisfaction, it can no less be the corollary of the inability to render things more satisfactory. It can mean hopelessness as well as contentment. With the real universe of action and unceasing change, with the economic system which cannot be rigid, neither neutrality of money nor stability of its purchasing power are compatible. A world of the kind which the necessary requirements of neutral and stable money presuppose would be a world without action. It is therefore neither strange nor vicious that in the frame of such a changing world money is neither neutral nor stable in purchasing power. All plans to render money neutral and stable are contradictory. Money is an element of action, and consequently of change. Changes in the money relation, that is, in the relation of the demand for and the supply of money, affect the exchange ratio between money on the one hand and the vendable commodities on the other hand. These changes do not affect at the same time and to the same extent the prices of the various commodities and services. They consequently affect the wealth of the various members of society in a different way. 6. Cash-induced and goods-induced changes in purchasing power Changes in the purchasing power of money that is, in the exchange ratio between money and the vendable goods and commodities, can originate either from the side of money or from the side of the vendable goods and commodities. The change in the data which provokes them can either occur in the demand for and supply of money or in the demand for and supply of the other goods and services. We may accordingly distinguish between cash-induced and goods-induced changes in purchasing power. Goods-induced changes in purchasing power can be brought about by changes in the supply of commodities and services, or in the demand for individual commodities and services. A general rise or fall in the demand for all goods and services, or the greater part of them, can be effected only from the side of money.
Let us now scrutinize the social and economic consequences of changes in the purchasing power of money under the following three assumptions. First, that the money in question can only be used as money, that is, as a medium of exchange, and can serve no other purpose. Second, that there is only exchange of present goods, and no exchange of present goods against future goods. Third, that we disregard the effects of changes in purchasing power on monetary calculation. Under these assumptions, all that cash-induced changes in purchasing power bring about are shifts in the disposition of wealth among different individuals. Some get richer, others poorer. Some are better supplied, others less. What some people gain is paid for by the loss of others. It would, however, be impermissible to interpret this fact by saying that total satisfaction remained unchanged, or that, while no changes have occurred in total supply, the state of total satisfaction, or of the sum of happiness, has been increased or decreased by changes in the distribution of wealth. The notions of total satisfaction or total happiness are empty, it is impossible to discover a standard for comparing the different degrees of satisfaction or happiness attained by various individuals. Cash-induced changes in purchasing power indirectly generate further changes by favoring either the accumulation of additional capital or the consumption of capital available. Whether and in what direction such secondary effects are brought about depends on the specific data of each case. We shall deal with these important problems at a later point. Goods-induced changes in purchasing power are sometimes nothing else but consequences of a shift of demand from some goods to others. If they are brought about by an increase or a decrease in the supply of goods, they are not merely transfers from some people to other people. They do not mean that Peter gains what Paul has lost. Some people may become richer, although nobody is impoverished, and vice versa. We may describe this fact in the following way. Let A and B be two independent systems which are in no way connected with each other. In both systems, the same kind of money is used, a money which cannot be used for any non-monetary purpose. Now we assume, as case one, that A and B differ from each other only insofar as in B the total supply of money is N, M, M being the total supply of money in A, and that to every cash holding of C, and to every claim in terms of money, D, in A there corresponds a cash holding of NC and a claim of ND in B. In every other respect, A equals B. Then we assume, as case two, that A and B differ from each other only insofar as in B the total supply of a certain commodity R is in P, P being the total supply of this commodity in A, and that to every stock V of this commodity R in A there corresponds a stock of NV in B. In both cases, N is greater than 1. 
If we ask every individual of A whether he is ready to make the slightest sacrifice in order to exchange his position for the corresponding place in B, the answer will be unanimously in the negative, in case 1. But in case 2, all owners of R, and all those who do not own any R but are eager to acquire a quantity of it, that is, at least one individual, will answer in the affirmative. The services money renders are conditioned by the height of its purchasing power. Nobody wants to have in his cash holding a definite number of pieces of money or a definite weight of money. He wants to keep a cash holding of a definite amount of purchasing power. As the operation of the market tends to determine the final state of money's purchasing power at a height at which the supply of and the demand for money coincide, there can never be an excess or a deficiency of money. Each individual, and all individuals together, always enjoy fully the advantages which they can derive from indirect exchange and the use of money no matter whether the total quantity of money is great or small. Changes in money's purchasing power generate changes in the disposition of wealth among the various members of society. From the point of view of people eager to be enriched by such changes, the supply of money may be called insufficient or excessive and the appetite for such gains may result in policies designed to bring about cash-induced alterations in purchasing power. However, the services which money renders can be neither improved nor impaired by changing the supply of money. There may appear an excess or a deficiency of money in an individual's cash holding, but such a condition can be remedied by increasing or decreasing consumption or investment. Of course, one must not fall prey to the popular confusion between the demand for money for cash holding and the appetite for more wealth. The quantity of money available in the whole economy is always sufficient to secure for everybody all that money does and can do. From the point of view of this insight, one may call wasteful all expenditures incurred for increasing the quantity of money. The fact that things which could render some other useful services are employed as money, and thus withheld from these other employments, appears as a superfluous curtailment of limited opportunities for want satisfaction. It was this idea that led Adam Smith and Ricardo to the opinion that it was very beneficial to reduce the cost of producing money by resorting to the use of paper-printed currency. However, things appear in a different light to the students of monetary history. If one looks at the catastrophic consequences of the great paper-money inflations, one must admit that the expensiveness of gold production is the minor evil. It would be futile to retort that these catastrophes were brought about by the improper use which the governments made of the powers that credit money and fiat money placed in their hands, and that wiser governments would have adopted sounder policies. As money can never be neutral and stable in purchasing power, a government's plans concerning the determination of the quantity of money can never be impartial and fair to all members of society. 
Whatever a government does in the pursuit of aims to influence the height of purchasing power depends necessarily upon the ruler's personal value judgments. It always furthers the interests of some groups of people at the expense of other groups. It never serves what is called the commonweal or the public welfare. In the field of monetary policies, too, there is no such thing as a scientific ought. The choice of the good to be employed as a medium of exchange and as money is never indifferent. It determines the course of the cash-induced changes in purchasing power. The question is only who should make the choice, the people buying and selling on the market or the government. It was the market which, in a selective process going on for ages, finally assigned to the precious metals, gold and silver, the character of money. For two hundred years, the governments have interfered with the market's choice of the money medium. Even the most bigoted etatists do not venture to assert that this interference has proved beneficial. Inflation and Deflation Inflationism and Deflationism The notions of inflation and deflation are not praxeological concepts. They were not created by economists, but by the mundane speech of the public and of politicians. They implied the popular fallacy that there is such a thing as neutral money, or money of stable purchasing power, and that sound money should be neutral and stable in purchasing power. From this point of view, the term inflation was applied to signify cash-induced changes resulting in a drop in purchasing power, and the term deflation to signify cash-induced changes resulting in a rise in purchasing power. However, those applying these terms are not aware of the fact that purchasing power never remains unchanged, and that consequently there is always either inflation or deflation. They ignore these necessarily perpetual fluctuations as far as they are only small and inconspicuous, and reserve the use of the terms to big changes in purchasing power. Since the question as to at what point a change in purchasing power begins to deserve being called big depends on personal relevance judgments, it becomes manifest that inflation and deflation are terms lacking the categorical precision required for praxeological, economic, and catalactic concepts. Their application is appropriate for history and politics. Catalactics is free to resort to them only when applying its theorems to the interpretation of events of economic history and of political programs. Moreover, it is very expedient, even in rigid catalactic disquisitions, to make use of these two terms whenever no misinterpretation can possibly result, and pedantic heaviness of expression can be avoided. But it is necessary never to forget that all that catalactic says with regard to inflation and deflation, that is, big cash-induced changes in purchasing power, is valid also with regard to small changes, although, of course, the consequences of smaller changes are less conspicuous than those of big changes. The terms inflationism and deflationism 
inflationist and deflationist, signify the political programs aiming at inflation and deflation in the sense of big, cash-induced changes in purchasing power. The semantic revolution, which is one of the characteristic features of our day, has also changed the traditional connotation of the terms inflation and deflation. What many people today call inflation or deflation is no longer the great increase or decrease in the supply of money, but its inexorable consequences, the general tendency toward a rise or a fall in commodity prices and wage rates. This innovation is by no means harmless. It plays an important role in fomenting the popular tendencies toward inflationism. First of all, there is no longer any term available to signify what inflation used to signify. It is impossible to fight a policy which you cannot name. Statesmen and writers no longer have the opportunity of resorting to a terminology accepted and understood by the public when they want to question the expediency of issuing huge amounts of additional money. They must enter into a detailed analysis and description of this policy with full particulars and minute accounts whenever they want to refer to it, and they must repeat this bothersome procedure in every sentence in which they deal with the subject. As this policy has no name, it becomes self-understood and a matter of fact. It goes on luxuriantly. The second mischief is that those engaged in futile and hopeless attempts to fight the inevitable consequences of inflation, the rise in prices, are disguising their endeavors as a fight against inflation. While merely fighting symptoms, they pretend to fight the root causes of the evil. Because they do not comprehend the causal relation between the increase in the quantity of money on the one hand and the rise in prices on the other, they practically make things worse. The best example was provided by the subsidies granted on the part of the governments of the United States, Canada, and Great Britain to farmers. Price ceilings reduce the supply of the commodities concerned, because production involves a loss for the marginal producers. To prevent this outcome, the governments granted subsidies to the farmers producing at the highest costs. These subsidies were financed out of additional increases in the quantity of money. If the consumers had had to pay higher prices for the products concerned, no further inflationary effects would have emerged. The consumers would have had to use for such surplus expenditure only money which had already been issued previously. Thus the confusion of inflation and its consequences, in fact, can directly bring about more inflation. It is obvious that this newfangled connotation of the terms inflation and deflation is utterly confusing and misleading, and must be unconditionally rejected. 7. Monetary Calculation and Changes in Purchasing Power Monetary calculation reckons with the prices of commodities and services as they were determined or would have been determined or presumably will be determined on the market. It is eager to detect price discrepancies and to draw conclusions from such a detection. 
Cash-induced changes in purchasing power cannot be taken into account in such calculations. It is possible to put in the place of calculation based on a definite kind of money, A, a mode of calculating based on another kind of money, B. Then the result of the calculation is made safe against adulteration on the part of changes effected in the purchasing power of A but it can still be adulterated by changes effected in the purchasing power of B. There is no means of freeing any mode of economic calculation from the influence of changes in the purchasing power of the definite kind of money on which it is based. All results of economic calculation and all conclusions derived from them are conditioned by the vicissitudes of cash-induced changes in purchasing power. In accordance with the rise or fall in purchasing power, there emerge between items reflecting earlier prices and those reflecting later prices specific differences. The calculus shows profits or losses which are merely produced by cash-induced changes effected in the purchasing power of money. If we compare such profits or losses with the result of a calculation accomplished on the basis of a kind of money whose purchasing power had been subject to less vehement changes, we can call them imaginary or apparent only. But one must not forget that such statements are only possible as a result of the comparison of calculations carried out in different kinds of money. As there is no such thing as a money with stable purchasing power, such apparent profits and losses are present with every mode of economic calculation, no matter on what kind of money it may be based. It is impossible to distinguish precisely between genuine profits and losses and merely apparent profits and losses. It is therefore possible to maintain that economic calculation is not perfect. However, nobody can suggest a method which could free economic calculation from these defects or design a monetary system which could remove this source of error entirely. It is an undeniable fact that the free market has succeeded in developing a currency system which well served all the requirements both of indirect exchange and of economic calculation. The aims of monetary calculation are such that they cannot be frustrated by the inaccuracies which stem from slow and comparatively slight movements in purchasing power. Cash-induced changes in purchasing power of the extent to which they occurred in the last two centuries with metallic money, especially with gold money, cannot influence the result of the businessman's economic calculations so considerably as to render such calculations useless. Historical experience shows that one could, for all practical purposes of the conduct of business, manage very well with these methods of calculation. Theoretical consideration shows that it is impossible to design, still less to realize, a better method. In view of these facts, it is vain to call monetary calculation imperfect. Man has not the power to change the categories of human action he must adjust his conduct to them. 
Businessmen never deemed it necessary to free economic calculation in terms of gold from its dependence on the fluctuations in purchasing power. The proposals to improve the currency system by adopting a tabular standard based on index numbers or by adopting various methods of commodity standards were not advanced with regard to business transactions and to monetary calculation. Their aim was to provide a less fluctuating standard for long-run loan contracts. Businessmen did not even consider it expedient to modify their accounting methods in those regards in which it would have been easy to narrow down certain errors induced by fluctuations in purchasing power. It would, for instance, have been possible to discard the practice of writing off durable equipment by means of yearly depreciation quotas, invariably fixed in a percentage of the cost of its acquisition. In its place, one could resort to the device of laying aside in renewal funds as much as seems necessary to provide the full costs of the replacement at the time when it is required. But business was not eager to adopt such a procedure. All this is valid only with regard to money which is not subject to rapid, big cash-induced changes in purchasing power. But money with which such rapid and big changes occur loses its suitability to serve as a medium of exchange altogether. 8. The Anticipation of Expected Changes in Purchasing Power The deliberations of the individuals which determine their conduct with regard to money are based on their knowledge concerning the prices of the immediate past. If they lacked this knowledge, they would not be in a position to decide what the appropriate height of their cash holdings should be, and how much they should spend for the acquisition of various goods. A medium of exchange without a past is unthinkable. Nothing can enter into the function of a medium of exchange which was not already previously an economic good and to which people assigned exchange value already, before it was demanded as such a medium. But the purchasing power handed down from the immediate past is modified by today's demand for and supply of money. Human action is always providing for the future, be it sometimes only the future of the impending hour. He who buys, buys for future consumption and production. As far as he believes that the future will differ from the present and the past, he modifies his valuation and appraisement. This is no less true with regard to money than it is with regard to all vendable goods. In this sense, we may say that today's exchange value of money is an anticipation of tomorrow's exchange value. The basis of all judgments concerning money is its purchasing power, as it was in the immediate past. But as far as cash-induced changes in purchasing power are expected, a second factor enters the scene, the anticipation of these changes. He who believes that the prices of the goods in which he takes an interest will rise buys more of them than he would have bought in the absence of this belief. Accordingly, he restricts his cash holding. He who believes that prices will drop restricts his purchases, and thus enlarges his cash holding. 
As long as such speculative anticipations are limited to some commodities, they do not bring about a general tendency toward changes in cash holding. But it is different if people believe that they are on the eve of big cash-induced changes in purchasing power. When they expect that the money prices of all goods will rise or fall, they expand or restrict their purchases. These attitudes strengthen and accelerate the expected tendencies considerably. This goes on until the point is reached beyond which no further changes in the purchasing power of money are expected. Only then does the inclination to buy or to sell stop, and do people begin again to increase or to decrease their cash holdings. But if once public opinion is convinced that the increase in the quantity of money will continue and never come to an end, and that consequently the prices of all commodities and services will not cease to rise, everybody becomes eager to buy as much as possible and to restrict his cash holding to a minimum size. For under these circumstances the regular costs incurred by holding cash are increased by the losses caused by the progressive fall in purchasing power. The advantages of holding cash must be paid for by sacrifices which are deemed unreasonably burdensome. This phenomenon was, in the great European inflations of the twenties, called flight into real goods, or crack-up boom. The mathematical economists are at a loss to comprehend the causal relation between the increase in the quantity of money and what they call velocity of circulation. The characteristic mark of the phenomenon is that the increase in the quantity of money causes a fall in the demand for money. The tendency toward a fall in purchasing power as generated by the increased supply of money is intensified by the general propensity to restrict cash holdings which it brings about. Eventually, a point is reached where the prices at which people would be prepared to part with real goods discount to such an extent the expected progress in the fall of purchasing power that nobody has a sufficient amount of cash at hand to pay them. The monetary system breaks down. All transactions in the money concerned cease. A panic makes its purchasing power vanish altogether. People return either to barter or to the use of another kind of money. The course of a progressing inflation is this. At the beginning, the inflow of additional money makes the prices of some commodities and services rise. Other prices rise later. The price rise affects the various commodities and services, as has been shown, at different dates and to a different extent. This first stage of the inflationary process may last for many years. While it lasts, the prices of many goods and services are not yet adjusted to the altered money relation. There are still people in the country who have not yet become aware of the fact that they are confronted with a price revolution, which will finally result in a considerable rise of all prices although the extent of this rise will not be the same in the various commodities and services. These people still believe that prices one day will drop. 
Waiting for this day, they restrict their purchases and, concomitantly, increase their cash holdings. As long as such ideas are still held by public opinion, it is not yet too late for the government to abandon its inflationary policy. But then, finally, the masses wake up. They become suddenly aware of the fact that inflation is a deliberate policy and will go on endlessly. A breakdown occurs. The crack-up boom appears. Everybody is anxious to swap his money against real goods, no matter whether he needs them or not, no matter how much money he has to pay for them. Within a very short time, within a few weeks or even days, the things which were used as money are no longer used as media of exchange. They become scrap paper. Nobody wants to give away anything against them. It was this that happened with the continental currency in America in 1781, with the French Mandat Territorio in 1796, and with the German Mark in 1923. It will happen again whenever the same conditions appear. If a thing has to be used as a medium of exchange, public opinion must not believe that the quantity of this thing will increase beyond all bounds. Inflation is a policy that cannot last forever. 9. The Specific Value of Money As far as a good used as money is valued and appraised on account of the services it renders for non-monetary purposes, no problems are raised which would require special treatment. The task of the theory of money consists merely in dealing with that component in the valuation of money which is conditioned by its function as a medium of exchange. In the course of history, various commodities have been employed as media of exchange. A long evolution eliminated the greater part of these commodities from the monetary function. Only two, the precious metals, gold and silver, remained. In the second part of the nineteenth century, more and more governments deliberately turned toward the demonetization of silver. In all these cases, what is employed as money is a commodity which is used also for non-monetary purposes. Under the gold standard, gold is money, and money is gold. It is immaterial whether or not the laws assign legal tender quality only to gold coins minted by the government. What counts is that these coins really contain a fixed weight of gold, and every quantity of bullion can freely be transformed into coins. Under the gold standard, the dollar and the pound sterling were merely names for a definite weight of gold, within very narrow margins precisely determined by the laws. We may call such a sort of money commodity money. A second sort of money is credit money. Credit money evolved out of the use of money substitutes. It was customary to use claims, payable on demand and absolutely secure, as substitutes for the sum of money to which they gave a claim. We shall deal with the features and problems of money substitutes in the next section. 
The market did not stop using such claims when one day their prompt redemption was suspended, and thereby doubts about their safety and the solvency of the obligee were raised. As long as these claims had been daily maturing claims against a debtor of undisputed solvency, and could be collected without notice and free of expense, their exchange value was equal to their face value. It was this perfect equivalence which assigned to them the character of money substitutes. Now, as redemption was suspended, the maturity date postponed to an undetermined day, and consequently doubts about the solvency of the debtor, or at least about his willingness to pay, emerged, they lost a part of the value previously ascribed to them. They were now merely claims, which did not bear interest, against a questionable debtor, and falling due on an undefined day. But, as they were used as media of exchange, their exchange value did not drop to the level to which it would have dropped if they were merely claims. One can fairly assume that such credit money could remain in use as a medium of exchange, even if it were to lose its character as a claim against a bank or a treasury, and thus would become fiat money. Fiat money is a money consisting of mere tokens, which can neither be employed for any industrial purposes, nor convey a claim against anybody. It is not a task of catalactics, but of economic history, to investigate whether there appeared in the past specimens of fiat money, or whether all the sorts of money which were not commodity money were credit money. The only thing that catalactics has to establish is that the possibility of the existence of fiat money must be admitted. The important thing to be remembered is that with every sort of money, demonetization, that is, the abandonment of its use as a medium of exchange, must result in a serious fall of its exchange value. What this practically means has become manifest when, in the last eighty years, the use of silver as commodity money has been progressively restricted. There are specimens of credit money and fiat money which are embodied in metallic coins. Such money is printed, as it were, on silver, nickel, or copper. If such a piece of fiat money is demonetized, it still retains exchange value as a piece of metal. But this is only a very small indemnification of the owner. It has no practical importance. The keeping of cash holding requires sacrifices. To the extent that a man keeps money in his pockets or in his balance with a bank, he forsakes the instantaneous acquisition of goods he could consume or employ for production. In the market economy, these sacrifices can be precisely determined by calculation. They are equal to the amount of originary interest he would have earned by investing the sum. The fact that a man takes this falling off into account is proof that he prefers the advantages of cash holding to the loss in interest yield. It is possible to specify the advantages which people expect from keeping a definite amount of cash. 
but it is a delusion to assume that an analysis of these motives could provide us with a theory of the determination of purchasing power, which could do without the notions of cash holding and demand for and supply of money. The advantages and disadvantages derived from cash holding are not objective factors which could directly influence the size of cash holdings. They are put on the scales by each individual and weighed against one another. The result is a subjective judgment of value, colored by the individual's personality. Different people and the same people at different times value the same objective facts in a different way. Just as knowledge of a man's wealth and his physical condition does not tell us how much he would be prepared to spend for food of a certain nutritive power, so knowledge about data concerning a man's material situation does not enable us to make definite assertions with regard to the size of his cash holding. 10. The Import of the Money Relation The money relation, that is, the relation between demand for and supply of money, uniquely determines the price structure as far as the reciprocal exchange ratio between money and the vendable commodities and services is involved. If the money relation remains unchanged, neither an inflationary, expansionist, nor a deflationary, contractionist, pressure on trade, business, production, consumption, and employment can emerge. The assertions to the contrary reflect the grievances of people reluctant to adjust their activities to the demands of their fellow men as manifested on the market. However, it is not an account of an alleged scarcity of money that prices of agricultural products are too low to secure to the submarginal farmers proceeds of the amount they would like to earn. The cause of these farmers' distress is that other farmers are producing at lower costs. What is wrong with British manufacturing is not that the level of prices is too low, but the fact that they did not succeed in raising the productivity of the capital invested and the men employed to a height that would provide all the goods the British want to consume. An increase in the quantity of goods produced, other things being unchanged, must bring about an improvement in people's conditions. Its consequence is a fall in the money prices of the goods the production of which has been increased. But such a fall in money prices does not in the least impair the benefits derived from the additional wealth produced. One may consider as unfair the increase in the share of the additional wealth which goes to the creditors, although such criticisms are questionable as far as the rise in purchasing power has been correctly anticipated and adequately taken into account by a negative price premium. But one must not say that a fall in prices caused by an increase in the production of the goods concerned is the proof of some disequilibrium which cannot be eliminated otherwise than by increasing the quantity of money. Of course, as a rule, every increase in production of some or of all commodities requires a new allocation of factors of production to the various branches of business. 
If the quantity of money remains unchanged, the necessity of such a reallocation becomes visible in the price structure. Some lines of production become more profitable, while in others profits drop or losses appear. Thus the operation of the market tends to eliminate these much-discussed disequilibria. It is possible by means of an increase in the quantity of money to delay or to interrupt this process of adjustment. It is impossible either to make it superfluous or less painful for those concerned. If the government made cash-induced changes in the purchasing power of money resulted only in shifts of wealth from some people to other people, it would not be permissible to condemn them from the point of view of catalactic scientific neutrality. It is obviously fraudulent to justify them under the pretext of the commonweal or public welfare, but one could still consider them as political measures suitable to promote the interests of some groups of people at the expense of others without further detriment. However, there are still other things involved. It is not necessary to point out the consequences to which a continued deflationary policy must lead. Nobody advocates such a policy. The favor of the masses and of the writers and politicians eager for applause goes to inflation. With regard to these endeavors, we must emphasize three points. First, inflationary or expansionist policy must result in overconsumption on the one hand and in malinvestment on the other. It thus squanders capital and impairs the future state of want satisfaction. Second, The inflationary process does not remove the necessity of adjusting production and reallocating resources. It merely postpones it, and thereby makes it more troublesome. Third, inflation cannot be employed as a permanent policy, because it must, when continued, finally result in a breakdown of the monetary system. A retailer or innkeeper can easily fall prey to the illusion that all that is needed to make him and his colleagues more prosperous is more spending on the part of the public. In his eyes, the main thing is to impel people to spend more. But it is amazing that this belief could be presented to the world as a new social philosophy. Lord Keynes and his disciples make the lack of the propensity to consume responsible for what they deem unsatisfactory in economic conditions. What is needed in their eyes to make men more prosperous is not an increase in production, but an increase in spending. In order to make it possible for people to spend more, an expansionist policy is recommended. This doctrine is as old as it is bad. Its analysis and refutation will be undertaken in the chapter dealing with the trade cycle. 11. The Money Substitutes Claims to a definite amount of money, payable and redeemable on demand, against a debtor about whose solvency and willingness to pay there does not prevail the slightest doubt, render to the individual all the services money can render, provided that all parties with whom he could possibly transact business are perfectly familiar with these essential qualities of the claims concerned. 
daily maturity, and undoubted solvency and willingness to pay on the part of the debtor. We may call such claims money substitutes, as they can fully replace money in an individual's or a firm's cash holding. The technical and legal features of the money substitutes do not concern catalactics. A money substitute can be embodied either in a banknote or in a demand deposit with a bank subject to check, checkbook money, or deposit currency, provided the bank is prepared to exchange the note or the deposit daily, free of charge, against money proper. Token coins are also money substitutes, provided the owner is in a position to exchange them at need against money free of expense and without delay. To achieve this, it is not required that the government be bound by law to redeem them. What counts is the fact that these tokens can be really converted free of expense and without delay. If the total amount of token coins issued is kept within reasonable limits, no special provisions on the part of the government are necessary to keep their exchange value at par with their face value. The demand of the public for small change gives everybody the opportunity to exchange them easily against pieces of money. The main thing is that every owner of a money substitute is perfectly certain that it can, at every instant and free of expense, be exchanged against money. If the debtor, the government, or a bank keeps against the whole amount of money substitutes a reserve of money proper, we call the money substitute a money certificate. The individual money certificate is, not necessarily in a legal sense, but always in the catalactic sense, a representative of a corresponding amount of money kept in the reserve. The issuing of money certificates does not increase the quantity of things suitable to satisfy the demand for money for cash holding. Changes in the quantity of money certificates, therefore, do not alter the supply of money and the money relation. They do not play any role in the determination of the purchasing power of money. If the money reserve kept by the debtor against the money substitutes issued is less than the total amount of such substitutes, we call that amount of substitutes which exceeds the reserve fiduciary media. As a rule, it is not possible to ascertain whether a concrete specimen of money substitutes is a money certificate or a fiduciary medium. A part of the total amount of money substitutes issued is usually covered by a money reserve held. Thus, a part of the total amount of money substitutes issued is money certificates, the rest fiduciary media. But this fact can only be recognized by those familiar with the bank's balance sheets. The individual banknote, deposit, or token coin does not indicate its catalactic character. The issue of money certificates does not increase the funds which the bank can employ in the conduct of its lending business. A bank which does not issue fiduciary media can only grant commodity credit. That is, it can only lend its own funds and the amount of money which its customers have entrusted to it. The issue of fiduciary media enlarges the bank's funds available for lending beyond these limits. 
It can now not only grant commodity credit, but also circulation credit, that is, credit granted out of the issue of fiduciary media. While the quantity of money certificates is indifferent, the quantity of fiduciary media is not. The fiduciary media affect the market phenomena in the same way as money does. Changes in their quantity influence the determination of money's purchasing power, and of prices, and, temporarily, also of the rate of interest. Earlier economists applied a different terminology. Many were prepared to call the money substitutes simply money, as they are fit to render the services money renders. However, this terminology is not expedient. The first purpose of a scientific terminology is to facilitate the analysis of the problems involved. The task of the catalactic theory of money, as differentiated from the legal theory and from the technical disciplines of bank management and accountancy, is the study of the problems of the determination of prices and interest rates. This task requires a sharp distinction between money certificates and fiduciary media. The term credit expansion has often been misinterpreted. It is important to realize that commodity credit cannot be expanded. The only vehicle of credit expansion is circulation credit. But the granting of circulation credit does not always mean credit expansion. If the amount of fiduciary media previously issued has consummated all its effects upon the market, if prices, wage rates, and interest rates have been adjusted to the total supply of money proper plus fiduciary media, supply of money in the broader sense, granting of circulation credit without a further increase in the quantity of fiduciary media is no longer credit expansion. Credit expansion is present only if credit is granted by the issue of an additional amount of fiduciary media, not if banks lend a new fiduciary media paid back to them by the old debtors. 12. The Limitation on the Issuance of Fiduciary Media People deal with money substitutes as if they were money because they are fully confident that it will be possible to exchange them at any time, without delay and without cost, against money. We may call those who share in this confidence and are therefore ready to deal with money substitutes as if they were money the clients of the issuing banker, bank, or authority. It does not matter whether or not this issuing establishment is operated according to the patterns of conduct customary in the banking business. Token coins issued by a country's treasury are money substitutes, too, although the treasury, as a rule, does not enter the amount issued into its accounts as a liability and does not consider this amount a part of the national debt. It is no less immaterial whether or not the owner of a money substitute has an actionable claim to redemption. What counts is whether the money substitute can really be exchanged against money without delay and cost. It is furthermore immaterial whether or not the laws assign to the money substitute's legal tender quality. If these things are really dealt with by people as money substitutes, and are therefore money substitutes and equal in purchasing power to the respective amount of money, 
The only effect of the legal tender quality is to prevent malicious people from resorting to chicanery for the mere sake of annoying their fellow men. If, however, the things concerned are not money substitutes and are traded at a discount below their face value, the assignment of legal tender quality is tantamount to an authoritarian price ceiling, the fixing of a maximum price for gold and foreign exchange, and of a minimum price for the things which are no longer money substitutes, but either credit money or fiat money. Then the effects appear, which Gresham's Law describes. Issuing money certificates is an expensive venture. The banknotes must be printed, the token coins minted, a complicated accounting system for the deposits must be organized, the reserves must be kept in safety. Then there is the risk of being cheated by counterfeit banknotes and checks. Against all these expenses stands only the slight chance that some of the banknotes issued may be destroyed, and the still slighter chance that some depositors may forget their deposits. Issuing money certificates is a ruinous business, if not connected with issuing fiduciary media. In the early history of banking, there were banks whose only operation consisted in issuing money certificates. But these banks were indemnified by their clients for the costs incurred. At any rate, Catalactics is not interested in the purely technical problems of banks not issuing fiduciary media. The only interest that Catalactics takes in money certificates is the connection between issuing them and the issuing of fiduciary media. While the quantity of money certificates is catalactically unimportant, an increase or decrease in the quantity of fiduciary media affects the determination of money's purchasing power in the same way as do changes in the quantity of money. Hence the question of whether there are or are not limits to the increase in the quantity of fiduciary media has fundamental importance. If the clientele of the bank includes all members of the market economy, the limit to the issue of fiduciary media is the same as that drawn to the increase in the quantity of money. A bank which is, in an isolated country or in the whole world, the only institution issuing fiduciary media, and the clientele of which comprises all individuals and firms, is bound to comply in its conduct of affairs with two rules. First, it must avoid any action which could make the clients, that is, the public, suspicious. As soon as the clients begin to lose confidence, they will ask for the redemption of the banknotes and withdraw their deposits. How far the bank can go on increasing its issues of fiduciary media without arousing distrust depends on psychological conditions. Second, it must not increase the amount of fiduciary media at such a rate and with such speed that the clients get the conviction that the rise in prices will continue endlessly at an accelerated pace. For if the public believes that this is the case, they will reduce their cash holdings, flee into real values, and bring about the crack-up boom. It is impossible to imagine the approach of this catastrophe without assuming that its first manifestation consists in the evanescence of confidence. 
The public will certainly prefer exchanging the fiduciary media against money to fleeing into real values, that is, to the indiscriminate buying of various commodities. Then the bank must go bankrupt. If the government interferes by freeing the bank from the obligation of redeeming its banknotes and of paying back the deposits in compliance with the terms of the contract, the fiduciary media become either credit money or fiat money. The suspension of specie payments entirely changes the state of affairs. There is no longer any question of fiduciary media, of money certificates, and of money substitutes. The government enters the scene with its government-made legal tender laws. The bank loses its independent existence. It becomes a tool of government policies, a subordinate office of the Treasury. The catalactically most important problems of the issuance of fiduciary media on the part of a single bank, or of banks acting in concert, the clientele of which comprehends all individuals, are not those of the limitations drawn to the amount of their issuance. We will deal with them in Chapter 20, devoted to the relations between the quantity of money and the rate of interest. At this point of our investigations, we have to scrutinize the problem of the coexistence of a multiplicity of independent banks. Independence means that every bank in issuing fiduciary media follows its own course and does not act in concert with other banks. Coexistence means that every bank has a clientele which does not include all members of the market system. For the sake of simplicity, we will assume that no individual or firm is a client of more than one bank. It would not affect the result of our demonstration if we were to assume that there are also people who are clients of more than one bank, and people who are not clients of any bank. The question to be raised is not whether or not there are limits to the issuance of fiduciary media on the part of such independently coexisting banks. As there are even limits to the issuance of fiduciary media on the part of a unique bank, the clientele of which comprises all people, it is obvious that there are such limits for a multiplicity of independently coexisting banks, too. What we want to show is that for such a multiplicity of independently coexisting banks, the limits are narrower than those drawn for a single bank with an unlimited clientele. We assume that within a market system several independent banks have been established in the past. While previously only money was in use, these banks have introduced the use of money substitutes, a part of which are fiduciary media. Each bank has a clientele and has issued a certain quantity of fiduciary media which are kept as money substitutes in the cash holdings of various clients. The total quantity of the fiduciary media, as issued by the banks and absorbed by the cash holdings of their clients, has altered the structure of prices and the monetary unit's purchasing power. But these effects have already been consummated, and at present the market is no longer stirred by any movements generated from this past credit expansion. But now we assume further, one bank alone embarks upon an additional issue of fiduciary media, while the other banks do not follow suit. 
the clients of the expanding bank, whether it's old clients or new ones acquired on account of the expansion, receive additional credits. They expand their business activities. They appear on the market with an additional demand for goods and services. They bid up prices. Those people who are not clients of the expanding bank are not in a position to afford these higher prices. They are forced to restrict their purchases. Thus there prevails on the market a shifting of goods from the non-clients to the clients of the expanding bank. The clients buy more from the non-clients than they sell to them. They have more to pay to the non-clients than they receive from them. But money substitutes issued by the expanding bank are not suitable for payments to non-clients, as these people do not assign to them the character of money substitutes. In order to settle the payments due to non-clients, the clients must first exchange the money substitutes issued by their own, namely the expanding bank, against money. The expanding bank must redeem its banknotes and pay out its deposits. Its reserve, we suppose that only a part of the money substitutes it had issued had the character of fiduciary media, dwindles. The instant approaches in which the bank will, after the exhaustion of its money reserve, no longer be in a position to redeem the money substitutes still current. In order to avoid insolvency, it must as soon as possible return to a policy of strengthening its money reserve. It must abandon its expansionist methods. This reaction of the market to a credit expansion on the part of a bank with a limited clientele has been brilliantly described by the currency school. The special case dealt with by the currency school referred to the coincidence of credit expansion on the part of one country's privileged central bank, or of all banks of one country, and of a non-expansionist policy on the part of the banks of other countries. Our demonstration covers the more general case of the coexistence of a multiplicity of banks with different clientele, as well as the most general case of the existence of one bank with a limited clientele, in a system in which the rest of the people do not patronize any bank, and do not consider any claims as money substitutes. It does not matter, of course, whether one assumes that the clients of a bank live neatly separated from those of the other banks in a definite district or country, or whether they live together with those of the other banks. These are merely differences in the data not affecting the catalactic problems involved. A bank can never issue more money substitutes than its clients can keep in their cash holdings. The individual client can never keep a larger portion of his total cash holding in money substitutes than that corresponding to the proportion of his turnover with other clients of his bank to his total turnover. For considerations of convenience, he will, as a rule, remain far below this maximum proportion. Thus a limit is drawn to the issue of fiduciary media. We may admit that everybody is ready to accept in his current transactions indiscriminately banknotes issued by any bank and checks drawn upon any bank. But he deposits without delay with his own bank not only the checks but also the banknotes of banks of which he is not himself a client. 
In the further course, his bank settles its accounts with the bank engaged. Thus the process described above comes into motion. A lot of nonsense has been written about a perverse predilection of the public for banknotes issued by dubious banks. The truth is that except for small groups of businessmen who were able to distinguish between good and bad banks, banknotes were always looked upon with distrust. It was the special charters which the governments granted to privileged banks that slowly made these suspicions disappear. The often advanced argument that small banknotes come into the hands of poor and ignorant people who cannot distinguish between good and bad notes cannot be taken seriously. The poorer the recipient of a banknote is, and the less familiar he is with bank affairs, the more quickly will he spend the note, and the more quickly will it return, by way of retail and wholesale trade, to the issuing bank or to people conversant with banking conditions. It is very easy for a bank to increase the number of people who are ready to accept loans granted by credit expansion and paid out in an amount of money substitutes. But it is very difficult for any bank to enlarge its clientele, that is, the number of people who are ready to consider these claims as money substitutes and to keep them as such in their cash holdings. To enlarge this clientele is a troublesome and slow process, as is the acquisition of any kind of goodwill. On the other hand, a bank can lose its clientele very quickly. If it wants to preserve it, it must never permit any doubt about its ability and readiness to discharge all its liabilities in due compliance with the terms of the contract. A reserve must be kept large enough to redeem all banknotes which a holder may submit for redemption. Therefore, no bank can content itself with issuing fiduciary media only. It must keep a reserve against the total amount of money substitutes issued, and thus combine issuing fiduciary media and money certificates. It was a serious blunder to believe that the reserve's task is to provide the means for the redemption of those banknotes, the holders of which have lost confidence in the bank. The confidence which a bank and the money substitutes it has issued enjoy is indivisible. It is either present with all its clients, or it vanishes entirely. If some of the clients lose confidence, the rest of them lose it too. No bank issuing fiduciary media and granting circulation credit can fulfill the obligations which it has taken over in issuing money substitutes if all clients are losing confidence and want to have their banknotes redeemed and their deposits paid back. This is an essential feature or weakness of the business of issuing fiduciary media and granting circulation credit. No system of reserve policy and no reserve requirements as enforced by the laws can remedy it. All that a reserve can do is to make it possible for the bank to withdraw from the market an excessive amount of fiduciary media issued. If the bank has issued more banknotes than its clients can use in doing business with other clients, it must redeem such an excess. 
The laws which compelled the banks to keep a reserve in a definite ratio of the total amount of deposits and of banknotes issued were effective insofar as they restricted the increase in the amount of fiduciary media and of circulation credit. They were futile, as far as they aimed at safeguarding, in the event of a loss of confidence, the prompt redemption of the banknotes and the prompt payment of deposits. The banking school failed entirely in dealing with these problems. It was confused by a spurious idea according to which the requirements of business rigidly limit the maximum amount of convertible banknotes that a bank can issue. They did not see that the demand of the public for credit is a magnitude dependent on the bank's readiness to lend, and that banks which do not bother about their own solvency are in a position to expand circulation credit by lowering the rate of interest below the market rate. It is not true that the maximum amount which a bank can lend if it limits its lending to discounting short-term bills of exchange resulting from the sale and purchase of raw materials and half-manufactured goods is a quantity uniquely determined by the state of business and independent of the bank's policies. This quantity expands or shrinks with the lowering or raising of the rate of discount. Lowering the rate of interest is tantamount to increasing the quantity of what is mistakenly considered as the fair and normal requirements of business. The currency school gave a quite correct explanation of the recurring crises as they upset English business conditions in the thirties and forties of the nineteenth century. There was credit expansion on the part of the Bank of England and the other British banks and bankers, while there was no credit expansion, or at least not to the same degree, in the countries with which Great Britain traded. The external drain occurred as the necessary consequence of this state of affairs. Everything that the banking school advanced in order to refute this theory was vain. Unfortunately, the currency school erred in two respects. It never realized that the remedy it suggested, namely strict legal limitation of the amount of banknotes issued beyond the specie reserve, was not the only one. It never gave a thought to the idea of free banking. The second fault of the currency school was that it failed to recognize that deposits subject to check are money substitutes and, as far as their amount exceeds the reserve kept, fiduciary media, and consequently no less a vehicle of credit expansion than our banknotes. It was the only merit of the banking school that it recognized that what is called deposit currency is a money substitute, no less than banknotes. But except for this point, all the doctrines of the banking school were spurious. It was guided by contradictory ideas concerning money's neutrality. It tried to refute the quantity theory of money by referring to a deus ex machina, the much-talked-about hoards, and it misconstrued entirely the problems of the rate of interest. It must be emphasized that the problem of legal restrictions upon the issue of fiduciary media could emerge only because governments had granted special privileges to one or several banks, and had thus prevented the free evolution of banking. If the governments had never interfered for the benefit of special banks, 
if they had never released some banks from the obligation incumbent upon all individuals and firms in the market economy to settle their liabilities in full compliance with the terms of the contract, no bank problem would have come into being. The limits which are drawn to credit expansion would have worked effectively. Considerations of its own solvency would have forced every bank to cautious restraint in issuing fiduciary media. Those banks which would not have observed these indispensable rules would have gone bankrupt, and the public, warned through damage, would have become doubly suspicious and reserved. The attitudes of the European governments and their satellites with regard to banking were from the beginning insincere and mendacious. The pretended solicitude for the nation's welfare, for the public in general, and for the poor ignorant masses in particular, was a mere blind. The governments wanted inflation and credit expansion. They wanted booms and easy money. Those Americans who twice succeeded in doing away with a central bank were aware of the dangers of such institutions. It was only too bad that they failed to see that the evils they fought were present in every kind of government interference with banking. Today, even the most bigoted etatists cannot deny that all the alleged evils of free banking count little when compared with the disastrous effects of the tremendous inflations which the privileged and government-controlled banks have brought about. It is a fable that governments interfered with banking in order to restrict the issue of fiduciary media and to prevent credit expansion. The idea that guided governments was, on the contrary, the lust for inflation and credit expansion. They privileged banks because they wanted to widen the limits drawn to credit expansion by conditions prevailing on the unhampered market, or because they were eager to open to the Treasury a source of revenue. For the most part, both of these considerations motivated the authorities. They were convinced that the fiduciary media are an efficient means of lowering the rate of interest, and asked the banks to expand credit for the benefit of both business and the treasury. Only when the undesired effects of credit expansion became visible were laws enacted to restrict the issue of banknotes, and sometimes also of deposits, not covered by specie. The establishment of free banking was never seriously considered, precisely because it would have been too efficient in restricting credit expansion. For rulers, writers, and the public were unanimous in the belief that business has a fair claim to a normal and necessary amount of circulation credit, and that this amount could not be attained under free banking. The notion of normal credit expansion is absurd. Issuance of additional fiduciary media, no matter what its quantity may be, always sets in motion those changes in the price structure, the description of which is the task of the theory of the trade cycle. Of course, if the additional amount issued is not large, neither are the inevitable effects of the expansion. Many governments never looked upon the issuance of fiduciary media from a point of view other than that of fiscal concerns. In their eyes, the foremost task of the banks was to lend money to the Treasury. The money substitutes were pacemakers for government-issued paper money. 
The convertible banknote was merely a first step on the way to the non-redeemable banknote. With the progress of statolatry and the policy of interventionism, these ideas have become general and are no longer questioned by anybody. No government is willing today to give any thought to the program of free banking, because no government wants to renounce what it considers a handy source of revenue. What is called today financial war preparedness is merely the ability to procure by means of privileged and government-controlled banks all the money a warring nation may need. Radical inflationism, although not admitted explicitly, is an essential feature of the economic ideology of our age. But even at the time liberalism enjoyed its highest prestige, and governments were more eager to preserve peace and well-being than to foment war, death, destruction, and misery, people were biased in dealing with the problems of banking. Outside of the Anglo-Saxon countries, public opinion was convinced that it is one of the main tasks of good government to lower the rate of interest, and that credit expansion is the appropriate means for the attainment of this end. Great Britain was free from these errors when, in 1844, it reformed its bank laws. But the two shortcomings of the currency school vitiated this famous act. On one hand, the system of government interference with banking was preserved. On the other hand, limits were placed only on the issuance of banknotes not covered by specie. The fiduciary media were suppressed only in the shape of banknotes. They could thrive as deposit currency. In carrying the idea implied in the currency theory to its full logical conclusion, one could suggest that all banks be forced by law to keep against the total amount of money substitutes, banknotes plus demand deposits, a 100% money reserve. This is the core of Professor Irving Fisher's 100% plan. But Professor Fisher combined his plan with his proposals concerning the adoption of an index number standard. It has been pointed out already why such a scheme is illusory and tantamount to open approval of the government's power to manipulate purchasing power according to the appetites of powerful pressure groups. But even if the 100% reserve plan were to be adopted on the basis of the unadulterated gold standard, it would not entirely remove the drawbacks inherent in every kind of government interference with banking. What is needed to prevent any further credit expansion is to place the banking business under the general rules of commercial and civil laws, compelling every individual and firm to fulfill all obligations in full compliance with the terms of the contract. If banks are preserved as privileged establishments, subject to special legislative provisions, the tool remains that governments can use for fiscal purposes. Then every restriction imposed upon the issuance of fiduciary media depends upon the government's and the parliament's good intentions. They may limit the issuance for periods which are called normal. The restriction will be withdrawn whenever a government deems that an emergency justifies resorting to extraordinary measures. 
If an administration and the party backing it want to increase expenditure without jeopardizing their popularity through the imposition of higher taxes, they will always be ready to call their impasse an emergency. Recourse to the printing press and to the obsequiousness of bank managers willing to oblige the authorities regulating their conduct of affairs is the foremost means of governments eager to spend money for purposes for which the taxpayers are not ready to pay higher taxes. Free banking is the only method available for the prevention of the dangers inherent in credit expansion. It would, it is true, not hinder a slow credit expansion, kept within very narrow limits on the part of cautious banks which provide the public with all information required about their financial status. But under free banking, it would have been impossible for credit expansion with all its inevitable consequences to have developed into a regular, one is tempted to say, normal, feature of the economic system. Only free banking would have rendered the market economy secure against crises and depressions. Looking backward upon the history of the last hundred years, one cannot help realizing that the blunders committed by liberalism in handling the problems of banking were a deadly blow to the market economy. There was no reason whatever to abandon the principle of free enterprise in the field of banking. The majority of liberal politicians simply surrendered to the popular hostility against money lending and interest taking. They failed to realize that the rate of interest is a market phenomenon which cannot be manipulated ad libitum by the authorities or by any other agency. They adopted the superstition that lowering the rate of interest is beneficial and that credit expansion is the right means of attaining such cheap money. Nothing harmed the cause of liberalism more than the almost regular return of feverish booms and of the dramatic breakdown of bull markets followed by lingering slumps. Public opinion has become convinced that such happenings are inevitable in the unhampered market economy. People did not conceive that what they lamented was the necessary outcome of policies directed toward a lowering of the rate of interest by means of credit expansion. They stubbornly kept to these policies and tried in vain to fight their undesired consequences by more and more government interference.